why the show hasn't started yet. It's about to start. We still haven't started yet. Hi. Still haven't started. Now we've started. Welcome to the mop-up for March 3rd, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 39 degrees and sunny. Where is President Biden on bringing peace to Ukraine? It's been a lot of tough talk and threats. We saw it during the State of the Union, but no real calls for a ceasefire. Where is Joe Biden on bringing peace to Ukraine? Where is America? Why are peace talks right now going on between Ukraine and Russia? Why are those peace talks being brokered by Belarus? That's Biden's job. Our Secretary of State, Blinken, should be over there right now, working around the clock, trying to stop the fighting. Why is President of France, Emmanuel Macron, speaking to Putin and not Biden? Why is French President Emmanuel Macron speaking to Putin and not Biden? Where is Biden? Where is America? War is wrong. War is a crime. Invading Ukraine is a crime. The same way invading Iraq and Afghanistan were also crimes. We must stop war no matter what it takes. We must stop war and we must only fight war after every single other avenue has been exhausted. Can Joe Biden honestly say he's exhausted every avenue towards peace? Now, people have asked why Putin waited until Biden was president before invading Ukraine. They say, why didn't he invade when Trump was president? Okay, Trump should be behind bars. Trump is the worst president this country's ever had. But I think the reason Putin didn't invade when Trump was president is because Trump made it clear that he wanted to dissolve NATO. We didn't like it when he said that we don't want to dissolve NATO, but he made it clear to Putin that he was no fan of NATO. Putin didn't invade when Trump was president, probably because Trump and the entire Republican Party are puppets of Putin. They get their money and their compromise from Putin because the right in America view Putin as the standard bearer of white nationalism. Putin is evil. Trump is evil. White nationalists are evil. And so is invading Ukraine. That's evil. Invading Ukraine is evil. And it is the job of the United States, my country. It is the job of America, which spends more on military than the 10 countries below it combined. It is the job of America to keep the peace. Where is the shuttle diplomacy? Where is the promise to Putin that we can negotiate Ukraine, that maybe we'll, we won't uh, invite Ukraine to join NATO, if that will bring peace to Ukraine? If promising Putin that Ukraine will never join NATO is enough to stop the invasion, wouldn't you make that promise? The whole purpose of NATO is to protect our allies. If you can protect one of our allies, Ukraine, by saying, no, it's not going to join NATO if that will keep Putin from invading, wouldn't you say that? We're told that Putin invaded because he's afraid UK Ukraine would join NATO. 
So before you unleash the dogs of war, why don't you make a promise to him that Ukraine won't join NATO? Shouldn't we at least try that? I mean, the purpose of NATO is to protect our allies. If one of the ways of protecting our allies is keeping them out of NATO, shouldn't we at least try that? Now, what we have right now, what we have right now is a nightmare scenario. And it is the job of our president, it is the job of America to do everything you can to prevent what is going on right now. Unless you've tried everything and you become absolutely certain that this nightmare scenario is necessary to prevent a far worse nightmare scenario. But America didn't try to stop this nightmare scenario. All we've offered for the past two weeks is tough talks and weapons. Two weeks ago, before the invasion of Ukraine, our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, canceled talks with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov after Vladimir Putin recognized two separatist regions in Ukraine's Donbass region. He recognized them as independent Republicans, and he deployed Russian troops to protect them. That was wrong. That was a provocation of war. But what was also wrong is that Anthony Blinken, two weeks ago, our Secretary of State, stopped talking to Russia. Two weeks ago, the minute Russia recognized the Donbass region, we stopped talking to Russia. That's when you start talking to Russia. And right after Putin, even before Putin recognized the Donbass region, Biden kept saying, Putin's going to invade. No doubt about it, Putin's going to invade. And now, after Putin invades, Biden and the Democrats want credit for getting that right. It's unbelievable that there are Democrats who say, see, Biden was right. He got that right. Putin invaded. No, Biden was wrong. You get on a flight to Geneva before Putin invades and you start negotiating. You do everything in your power to stop what is happening right now. Of course, Putin is to blame. Of course, Putin is to blame. He committed a, a war crime against humanity. He invaded Ukraine. He's to blame. But when it comes to war, the first thing you do in the West is try to prevent it, especially when you're coming from a position of strength like America has. Russia has an economy, if it's lucky, Russia's economy is about the size of Texas's. America is the largest economy in the world. We, and we have the entire world on our side. We had it on our side before the invasion, and we have it on our side now. Putin is isolated. If you come from that position of strength, Joe Biden, you fly to Geneva, you, you fly to Moscow, and you meet with Putin. You meet with Putin. You're coming from the ultimate position of strength. You meet with Putin, you ask him if he's doing keto because he looks fantastic, and you say whatever it takes to prevent what is happening right now. You say whatever it takes to prevent 
the mass slaughter that is taking place right now in Ukraine. Where is the State Department? Where is the diplomacy? Why is Belarus, Belarus, brokering the peace talks? Why is America on the sidelines? There is a full-scale invasion right now. Before that full-scale war, which this is, you exhaust every diplomatic channel. You keep talking and you talk and you talk. This is not a game. The problem in Washington is a lot of the people advising Joe Biden think this is a game. We have a lot of military historians who are loving this because it's this is a ground war, essentially. Essentially, it's a ground war. It's old school and military historians cream their pants over this stuff. They, they get to compare it to Napoleon. They're pouring over the satellite maps. They're enjoying supply chain issues for Russian troops who are reportedly not getting fed. There are people, there are military historians who are not only fascinated by war, they love it. And they can't get enough of this because it's an old school war. It's a 20th century war. But this isn't a game. It's not a military exercise to see what Putin's got. It's war. And you do anything and everything to stop it. You do everything and anything to prevent it. And then once it breaks out, you do everything to stop it. Where is the shuttle diplomacy? Where is Anthony Blinken? Where is Joe Biden on this? So far, the White House is just sitting back. Tough talk at the State of the Union. A lot of tough talk. A lot of bipartisan warmongering. Tough talk. I googled the words, Joe Biden calls for peace. I googled the words, Joe Biden calls for ceasefire. And I came up empty. Anthony Blinken, our Secretary of State, is founder of West Exec, a Washington firm that lobbies on behalf of the defense industry. I am not suggesting Blinken wanted this invasion. I'm suggesting he's not appalled by war the way normal sentient human beings are. I suspect Blinken and the people around him see they see war as a permanent state of nature, and it is their job to minimize it while profiting off of it. Let's not forget where Joe Biden spent Thanksgiving inside the $40 million mansion of David Rubenstein, founder of the Carlyle Group, the largest war profiteer in the world. Let's never forget that. So instead of talking with Putin to try to prevent this war, this slaughter, where maybe 5 million Ukrainians are going to end up as refugees, uh, you talk. You don't cut off peace negotiations because Russia has sent troops into Ukraine to protect separatist republics. You start peace talks when that happens. That's when you throw yourself completely into peace talks and you keep talking until the fighting stops. Now, maybe Putin would have invaded Ukraine no matter what we promised, no matter what we said, but at least you were talking. At least you tried 
and you keep talking until there's a cease fire. This should not be going into its second week because nobody wins a war, not Ukraine, not Russia, not America. There's no such thing as winning a war. You cannot win a war. We didn't win World War One, which is why we had to fight World War Two. And did we really win World War Two? Or did we just destroy Germany? Did we level Germany and prevent England, France, Belgium, and the Netherlands from falling under the Nazis? Is that winning? We couldn't stop the Russians from taking over all of Eastern Europe. And after that, we couldn't stop North Korea or Vietnam from becoming communist. We couldn't bring democracy to Iraq or Afghanistan. All war is a failure. The fact that you are fighting a war is a failure and the war itself will always be a failure. The most you can hope for, like in World War Two, is a few million more of their guys ending up dead than ours. That's not victory. War, by its very nature, is both a crime and a failure. And that includes World War Two, the good war, the war my father fought in. Now, we always talk about World War II here in America starting on December 7th, 1941, but nobody ever asked what we could have done 10 years earlier in the lead up to prevent it. When we think of the war in, in Europe, we think of Chamberlain at Munich in, it was 1938, 19, I think it was 38. We always think of Chamberlain at Munich appeasing Hitler. Well, Nobody ever asks, what could Great Britain have done 10 years before that, starting in 1928? The fact that there was a war in 38 and 39 tells us that Great Britain failed. France failed. They didn't take the necessary steps 10 years previously before the war started. Any appraisal of any war will tell you the necessary steps to prevent that war were not implemented for one reason. Greed. Greed and more greed. A little laziness, but most importantly, greed. I can assure you that in 2012, there were plenty of steps America could have taken to prevent what's going on right now in Ukraine. There were steps we could have taken 10 years ago to prevent Putin from invading Ukraine, but greed got in the way. Greed got in the way. And greed is getting in the way right now. Greed is what prevents Joe Biden from getting on Air Force One and flying to Geneva or Moscow or Belarus and sitting down with Putin and putting an end to this war. Where is the diplomacy? Instead of being angry that Russia invaded Ukraine, which I am, we should be equally angry that Biden is not talking to Putin. The greed 10 years ago was America wanted Ukraine. Ukraine is the largest and probably richest former Soviet Republic. Our banks 10 years ago wanted Ukraine. The International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, wanted to lend Ukraine money so it could do what it does to every developing country, privatize whatever the oligarchs hadn't stolen. 
And our defense industry wanted Ukraine to join NATO. Our defense industry was salivating, is salivating over the idea of Ukraine joining NATO because NATO members must spend 2% of their GDP on weaponry. If you want to join NATO, 2% of your entire economy is skimmed off the top by the military industrial complex. It was a perfect recipe. Ukraine was a perfect recipe 10 years ago for our banks and the military industrial complex. Our banks, we build up Ukraine's GDP. The bigger Ukraine's GDP is, that means 2% goes to the defense industry. The larger you can make Ukraine's economy, the more they have to spend on defense. That was 10 years ago. We could have stopped. We could have stopped Putin from invading Russia, but greed got in the way. Here's the latest on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which now goes into its second week because Joe Biden will not fly to Geneva or Belarus or Moscow to call for a ceasefire. So far, one million Ukrainians. By the way, I'm not blaming uh, Putin is to blame here. Putin is to blame. But when you are going up against, if you're seven foot three and you weigh 400 pounds and a five foot two a-hole wants to pick a fight with you, you do everything you can not to pick him up and drop him into a cesspool. It's, it's not becoming to, if you're seven feet five, to, to go fight somebody who's five foot two. And that's what Russia is. Russia is a pygmy economically and militarily compared to America and the entire world. The whole world is against Russia right now. But we can't negotiate to save the lives of Ukrainians who are supposed to be our allies. Right now, one million ref refugees are leaving Ukraine for neighboring nations such as Poland, Hungary, Romania. French President Emmanuel Macron said on Thursday that Putin wants all of Ukraine. Macron also warned that the worst is yet to come. Macron made those comments after a 90-minute phone call with Vladimir Putin, who told Macron the invasion was going exactly as planned. This is the third conversation French President Macron has had with Putin since the war began. Three conversations. Putin called him. The Kremlin reached out to Macron. He was the one who wished to speak with Macron, but we've stopped talking to the Russians. Biden has not spoken to Putin. He has told his, his uh, Secretary of State to stop talking. During his State of the Union on Tuesday, he told his audience that Putin has no idea what's coming. And people cheered and screamed, USA, USA, Putin has no idea what's coming. I hear a lot of tough talk from Joe Biden. I heard a lot of tough talk uh, back when we were pulling out of Afghanistan and terrorists killed our soldiers. And Biden went on national television and said he was going to get even with them. He's going to pick the time and the place of his choosing. It was a lot of Liam Neeson tough talk. And you know what he did? He got even by killing seven children, along with eight other innocent uh, passerbys who had nothing to do 
with that attack on our soldiers. We, he ordered in a faulty drone strike that killed seven children. Tough talk is really, it's really easy, Joe. Uh, President Macron says Putin told him he invaded Ukraine to denazify the country, as well as make sure Ukraine remains neutral on the world stage. Well, maybe we should give that a try. Maybe we should assure Putin that Ukraine is neutral. Maybe we should try that as opposed to what we're trying now, which is war. Again, Putin doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. The purpose of joining NATO is so you are protected if you get invaded. If keeping you out of NATO protects you from getting invaded, doesn't it make sense to make assurances that Ukraine will not join NATO? That's not appeasement. That's realpolitik. Uh, I'd hate to say it, but this is something even Kissinger would do. At least Kissinger, who's a war criminal, at least he engaged in shuttle diplomacy. Well, meanwhile, a second round of peace talks in neighboring Belarus continue between Putin's top senior aide and Ukraine's defense minister. Not America, not our secretary of defense. Nobody's brokering this other than Belarus. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky held his first official press conference since the war began. A week ago, he held that press conference today. Zelensky spoke to reporters inside his official office, surrounded by sandbags. Zelensky told the Ukrainian people he acknowledged Russian troops were seizing more territory, but insisted it was only temporary. Then Zelensky said, we'll drive them out with shame. And that is why he's quickly becoming a hero in America, because we love that. We love tough talk. Look, I'm rooting for Zelensky. I'm rooting for Ukraine. And the best way to root for Zelensky and Ukraine is to call for an immediate ceasefire by any means necessary. I have Googled the words Biden calls for ceasefire. I come up empty. If we have to give Russia a few billion to buy peace, then buy it. If it if it costs a couple of billion dollars to buy peace, we buy it. I don't care. We're the wealthiest, most powerful nation in the history of civilization. The last thing we need to do uh, to guarantee peace is allow war. The idea that war will bring us peace is Orwellian. We can buy peace. We do it all the time. President Joe Biden today asked Congress to provide Ukraine with $10 billion in emergency military and humanitarian aid. Or we can give $10 billion in humanitarian aid to both Ukraine and the Russians. We can call Putin and ask him if he wants a couple hundred billion dollars unfrozen. Maybe you call up and say, we'll unfreeze a few hundred billion if you'll give us a ceasefire. Maybe sit down and say, we have $650 billion of your dollars. Uh, close to 80% of Russia's GDP is in offshore accounts. How about we offer to unfreeze that if Putin pulls out? How about we negotiate and give Putin the dignity 
he doesn't deserve. Is that asking too much to, in the name of the people of Ukraine to save five million lives? Is it asking too much to give Vladimir Putin the dignity he doesn't deserve just to prevent this war from taking place, to save five million people from ending up dead and or refugees? But instead, instead of giving Putin some money and the dignity he doesn't deserve, instead, we're standing on principle. And right now we have the makings of the worst European refugee crisis since World War II. Uh, the problem isn't Putin spreading throughout Europe. The problem is Ukrainians, refugees, spreading throughout Europe because they no longer have a place to live. The United Nations and the United States have both predicted that unless there is an immediate ceasefire, five million Ukrainians will be forced to leave their homes. Five million Ukrainians will be forced to leave their homes. Right now, the world has 31 million refugees. That's the largest number of refugees ever, including World War II. And it's going to get worse with climate change, climate catastrophe. Five million Ukrainians forced to leave their homes. When you look at Ukraine, Russia and Belarus, and you're the United States, you're NATO, you do whatever it takes to make sure that Europe is not flooded with 5 million Ukrainian refugees. You make peace by any means necessary. Where is the shuttle diplomacy? This is insane that this war is going on and Biden and America and Great Britain were powerless, power, like acting power, as if we're powerless, as if we can't sit down and cut a check and, and hand it to Putin to stop this war. This is, I, I am angry that Putin invaded Ukraine, but I am also angry that the war continues. We knew this was going to happen three weeks ago. That's what Biden kept saying. He's going to invade. He's going to invade. If you know he's going to invade, you fly to Moscow to prevent it. And you cut a check. You say whatever you have to say to stop the invasion. Because no matter what your view of geopolitics is that you want to cling to, it's not as important as the five million Ukrainians who will be forced to leave their homes because of your pride, because you cling to some view of the world. We already have 31 million refugees. Where are these Ukrainians heading? Half have gone to Poland. Hungary has taken in 116,000. Uh, 67,000 have gone to Slovakia, 45,000 to Romania, and 79,000 are in Moldova, Europe's poorest country. There are reports, by the way, Moldova, I'll talk about health care for the even Europe's poorest country, Moldova, has guaranteed health care to all Ukrainian refugees. I'll talk about that in a second. There are reports that Ukrainians of color 
were attacked in Poland by far-right nationalists who demanded the Ukrainians go home. Polish police are warning citizens to ignore fake stories being spread that dark, dark-skinned Ukrainians are committing crimes. Five Polish men reportedly beat a group of non-white Ukrainian refugees with one being taken to the hospital. Some of Ukrainian refugees include Africans, South Asian, and Middle Eastern students. Well, let's talk about Moldova, Europe's poorest country, taking in roughly 79,000 uh, Ukrainians and providing them with health care. The European Union said today it is planning to provide all Ukrainian refugees the right to health care, housing, work, and uh, clothes and medicine for at least a year without being forced to go through the tortuous procedure of filing for political asylum. The European Union says if the situation in Ukraine continues to deteriorate, they will extend these rights an additional year. Five million refugees about to be absorbed into Europe if we can't get a ceasefire. Uh, they'll be given health care. Last year, America took in 11,411 refugees. That's not a misprint. Last year, America under Joe Biden took in 11,411 refugees. Biden wanted to bring in about 40,000, but we didn't have the, the, the staff to do this. Richest country in the history of civilization, we could not afford to bring in the, the 45,000 refugees last year that Joe Biden wanted. We could only afford to bring in 11,411 refugees. And you wonder why jobs go unfilled here in America. We do not take in immigrants. We do not take in refugees. Give me just a handful of your huddled masses yearning to be free as long as they're white and can deposit a few grand into an American bank account. Richest country in the history of civilization. Not everyone is leaving Ukraine. President Zelensky has declared martial law. He issued an edict that any man between the age of 18 and 60 must stay and take arms against Russian troops. <clears throat> As a result, 50,000 Ukrainian citizens living abroad have returned to Ukraine to fight. 80% of them are men between the ages of 18 and 60. This invasion <clears throat> is wrong. It's a war crime, the same way the invasion of Panama in 89 the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan were also war crimes. This invasion of Ukraine is a war crime. And by all accounts, the Ukrainian people are not welcoming Russian troops as liberators. Despite what Vladimir Putin says, the Ukrainian people do not want his troops on their soil. President Zelensky on Sunday announced the formation of a foreign legion comprised of soldiers from all over the world. <clears throat> Dmitro Koliba, 
Ukraine's foreign minister has invited foreigners willing to defend Ukraine and the world order to join his country's new international legion of territorial defense of Ukraine. So this is kind of like the Spanish Civil War where freedom fighters from America, the Lincoln Brigade, you have people from all over Europe fighting uh, in Spain during the Civil War. And you also have Western powers using Spain to test their weapons. This is uh, very similar in some ways to the Spanish Civil War. We have people high up in, in America, NATO, Great Britain, who want to test our weapons. They're watching this war to see how the weapons are working, to see what Putin's got the same way they sat back and watched the Spanish Civil War in the lead up to World War II. Reports from France indicate right-wing militia are heading over to Ukraine right now to join the Ukrainian resistance. That's interesting. There are also reports of some right-wing militia here in the United States encouraging its members to go fight alongside Ukrainian soldiers in order to pick up the necessary skills for America's impending civil war. This is very scary. You have right-wing <clears throat> white nationalists, separatists, encouraging militia to in America to go to Ukraine to fight on the side of the Ukrainians, pick up some skills that they will need back here in the United States. The idea of far-right militia going to fight on the side of Ukraine versus Vladimir Putin runs counter to the narrative that Vladimir Putin serves as a hero to white nationalists around the world. When you scratch underneath the skin of the Republican Party, they love Vladimir Putin, not just because he's giving them money, but also because he's a devout Christian who has cracked down on the LGBT community in Russia. And most importantly, he is the last bastion of white nationalism. He is seen as white and standing for the Slavic people who are also perceived as white. 20 nations, mostly members of either NATO or the European Union, are sending weapons to Ukrainian soldiers. So this is good for business. We have 20 nations sending weapons to Ukrainian soldiers. Those weapons have to be replaced, so they'll be buying more. The New York Times reports Germany is sending shoulder-launched missiles. The Dutch are sending rocket launchers to knock Russian planes and helicopters out of the sky. Estonia is providing Javelin missiles, which are used to destroy tanks. Poland and Latvia are providing Stinger surface-to-air missiles. And the Czechs have sent machine guns, sniper rifles, pistols, and ammunition. Congratulations, all the people propping up the National Rifle Association. The Czechs have come through buying up machine guns, sniper rifles, pistols, and ammunition. There's a lot of money to be made by keeping this war going. The Times says non-NATO countries like Finland and Sweden are also providing weapons to Ukraine. Austria 
not a member of NATO, is now reportedly considering membership. That's 2% of Austria's GDP going to the military-industrial complex. You join NATO, you have to give 2% of your GDP to the military-industrial complex. This is great if you own stock in the weapons industry. If you're David Rubenstein, founder of the Carlyle Group, David Rubenstein, the single biggest arms profiteer, single biggest war profiteer in the world, David Rubenstein. On the ground in Ukraine, things are horrible and getting worse. This should not be happening. This is not be, this should not be happening. French President Macron should not be the one meeting with Putin, should be Joe Biden. Maybe Putin is meeting with France because France has always questioned the necessity of NATO. France, under President Charles de Gaulle, left NATO in 1966 and then rejoined 43 years later under President Sarkozy. France, their view towards NATO, we can take it or leave it, which is what we should be instilling in the Ukrainian people about NATO. Take it or leave, leave it. If France doesn't care that much about NATO, neither should Ukraine. Look, again, Putin is a war criminal. What he's doing in Ukraine, he should be frog-marched before The Hague. He doesn't belong there. But America should not be luring, enticing Ukraine, Russia's neighboring countries like Ukraine, to join a military alliance like NATO that was specifically designed to engage in war against Russia. That's what NATO was set up to do, to defend Europe from Russia. Uh, I'm not against NATO. Uh, I, I understand what, Na uh, what Russia did to Eastern Europe. But if you want peace, you don't put troops along the border of your enemy, uh, especially Afghanistan. You don't put troops in Afghanistan. NATO's portfolio was supposed to be Europe, but it is extended beyond Europe. NATO took part in the invasion of Afghanistan, a war crime, by the way. And Afghanistan, if you look at a map, Afghanistan sits along Russia's southern border. Afghanistan is not Europe. What was NATO doing in Afghanistan? Why was NATO taking part in the illegal invasion of Afghanistan? Russia didn't attack us on 9-11. Neither did Afghanistan. Neither did the Taliban. Why was NATO fighting so close to the border of Russia for 20 years? Why was America fighting so close to the border of Russia for 20 years. Putin is evil. Putin is evil. At, but at the very least, we should show respect for his paranoia and what a, a cornered monster might do. I'm not going to defend Putin. 
the world would be better off without Vladimir Putin. But this is the world as it is, the world that America has to take credit for. We, we helped create Putin. Again, uh, we helped create Saddam Hussein. We helped create Al-Qaeda and certainly helped create Osama bin Laden. America created Osama bin Laden. We armed Osama bin Laden, and I couldn't have been happier when we killed Osama bin Laden. And I, was, I didn't shed a tear when Saddam Hussein, uh, who shook hands with Donald Rumsfeld, when he was hanged. I was glad. Uh, I'm an American. I, I want my country to do well. Uh, and one of the ways we do well is we stop supporting and propping up monsters. And when we do create a monster who uh, bites back at us, like uh, Noriega or Putin or bin Laden or uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, those are all monsters we created and then bit back at us. Maybe a little humili humility dictates that we take a pause and say, okay, let's see if we can work this out peacefully because we did create you. That means we can destroy you. But let's see if we can do this without a lot of people dying. So I'm not going to defend Putin. Again, the world would be better off without Putin. Russia would have been better off if Wall Street, the IMF and the World Bank stayed away from Russia after the Soviet Union fell. That's also true. Uh, we have to respect the Russian people. And anywhere between 25 to 30 million Russians died in World War II. We owe the Russians that respect. Anywhere between 15 to 20% of its population died during World War II. So out of respect for the Russian people, we might want to be a little understanding of why their leaders might be afraid of getting invaded by Western forces, especially the United States, which, as we all know, invaded Russia in 1918. We all learned about this in high school. The Expeditionary Force, President Woodrow Wilson, as if World War I wasn't bad enough, he topped it off by ordering 8,500 American forces into Russia to overthrow the newly created Soviet Union. And who won that war? Oh, right, right. We lost that as well. A little icing on the cake of defeat. World War One was a, a, a tragedy. Both my grandparents, grandfathers fought in that for nothing. They fought in that war for nothing. They were gassed and died early for nothing, for, as John Reed said, profits. So a little respect is due to the Russian people. A little respect. It was Russia that destroyed the Germans. Eight out of 10 German casualties occurred on the Eastern Front. When it comes to defeating Hitler, the Russians and my apologies to my father and his friends, the Russians did most of the fighting. A little respect for the Russian people.
and the Ukrainian people who did most of the fighting during World War II. America, uh, you know, D-Day wasn't until 1944. When it comes to World War II, Churchill and Roosevelt, I hate to say this, but it's true, D-Day wasn't until 1944. Churchill and Roosevelt sat out the first couple of years fighting Hitler in Northern Africa, you know, Rommel and Italy, while Russia was doing the heavy lifting on the Eastern Front. They, we waited until Russia had sufficiently weakened the Germans before we decided to go in. Uh, like I said, 80% of German casualties were at the hands of Russian soldiers. Not to discount D-Day, but we owe the Russians a lot of gratitude and respect. The Germans would have been a lot tougher to beat had they not been pinned down by the Russians far to the east. So a little respect to the Russian people and little uh, empathy. You, you, you might think that after World War II, the Russians might be a little prickly about Western nations nibbling around their border. Again, Putin is bad. The world would be better off without Putin. The world uh, would not be better off without Russian people. The Russian people uh, are our friends, and they have every reason to fear NATO and America and the West. We owe the Russian people an apology. Putin, bad guy, horrible guy, war criminal, even before Grozny, even Chechnya, Georgia, even before Ukraine, war criminal. He witnessed, however, what Wall Street and London did to Moscow right after the fall of the Soviet Union back in 1991. He watched Boris Yeltsin, his predecessor, the drunk, the puppet of the West, Boris Yeltsin, Clinton's puppet, Boris Yeltsin, greenlit Wall Street in London, financializing Russia's entire infrastructure, creating a new generation of oligarchs who transferred their offshore wealth to Western tax havens while Russian citizens saw a lower life expectancy than they had under the Soviet Union. We facilitated a kleptocracy under Boris Yeltsin and the money, all the money got transferred to ex-KGB agents who became oligarchs, who took their money, hid it off in offshore accounts and then our bankers said, hey, we, we, we'll take that money. We'll invest it for you. So Putin views the fall of the Soviet Union as a catastrophe for reasons other than pride. It was a catastrophe because Soviet wealth was looted by Western financiers. 
because America decided it won the Cold War and didn't have to answer to anybody. And we decided in 1991, after the fall of the Soviet Union, that the spoils go to the victor and those spoils belong to our banks and our financial institutions who swept in and extracted Russia's material wealth. You know, we didn't need to seize their oil. We just went right for their gold, their, their, their reserves. It is a, a, a new form of economic colonialism, new form of economic imperialism, where you enslave a population simply by taking their reserves. We don't want your rubber. We don't want your nutmeg anymore or your timber. We want your money. That's what we did to Russia. We just went in there and mined Russia for its money. Right after the Soviet Union fell, that nation's wealth was turned over to a handful of oligarchs who in turn handed over all their wealth to American, German, and British bankers who were kind enough to shield it from the Russian people. And they shield it by purchasing American skyscrapers. Donald Trump took some of that money. We had some oligarchs buying Barclays Center out in Brooklyn. One bought the Nets. They buy stadiums, stocks, and of course, treasury bills. So they benefit because their money, their assets are now American and we benefit. It's great for America. It's great. If you own real estate, you own stocks it causes your the value of your stocks to go up the value of your your soccer teams to go up the money left moscow and went straight to london and new york the reason one of the reasons you can't buy a home in america is because a russian oligarch's shell company owns it so by the time putin became leader in about 99 after about seven years of the country, of, of Russia being stripped of its assets, Putin comes to power. But by then, Wall Street and London had mined Russia's financial resources. And uh, we've had uh, Putin in charge for about 23 years. And our financiers did such a great job mining Russia's financial resources, Biden has to be really careful with these economic sanctions. It is estimated that as much as possibly 80% of Russia's entire GDP is housed in offshore Western banks, in London, in Nevada, Biden's Delaware. Those are all tax havens where money is laundered, cleaned up, and invested in uh, legitimate businesses that benefits uh, America's GDP. So right now, yeah, there's a, there's a threat of nuclear war. I would never discount that. But maybe the real threat is that the West, Joe Biden and the EU, they're going to tighten the noose around Russia's economy so tightly that the entire country will fall to its knees 
and bring the world economy down with it. We've seen this before. When Clinton was president, there was a, uh, a, a, a run on the money in Russia, and it almost had a snowball effect. We've seen this before. One country that's been gutted by the West uh, can end up destroying the world economy. And so we do have power over Russia. These economic sanctions have only just begun. We have the power because we have their money, practically all of it. Some would say 80%. Again, their money isn't just sitting there in an offshore account in cash. Their money is sitting in Manhattan and London real estate. Russian oligarchs own things that you can't even imagine. Uh, they own everything except Russia. Russia comes up short. If you're a Russian oligarch, the last place you want to put your money is in Russia. Why would you want to do that? You want to invest in someplace safe, like America or Great Britain. That's what winning the Cold War bought us. The spoils of victory, Russian assets that were converted into cash and then American or British Western assets. We helped ex-KGB agents, including Vladimir Putin, become oligarchs. We helped them become majority owners of oil companies, television networks, and mining companies in Russia. We showed them how to steal former Soviet assets for themselves. And in return, we provided a safe haven for that stolen money. London, especially London, gave half these oligarchs citizenship, as has Israel. That way, when things get too hot in Russia, they have a place to live, but they're not really, they, they don't live in Russia. Their money is now international. They don't need to live in, in Moscow. Most of them don't, it's not safe. They literally left with all the money and instead of investing in the country whose assets they pillaged, instead they handed it over to Donald Trump to finance some hotels. That's, that's what we did. That's what the West did to Russia. Putin is a bad guy. He's a war criminal. The world would be better off without him, but Russia would have been better off without America. We pillaged, our, our bankers pillaged Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. That's how, you know, it was money. The Republicans say it was money that ultimately won the Cold War. That's the Reagan myth that Reagan outspent the Russians on the Star Wars defense initiative. This is the legend of Ronald Reagan that he brought Gorbachev to his knees because Reagan decided, I don't care if the Star Wars defense initiative, if it works or it doesn't, we're going to spend trillions on this nonsense. And that means the Russians are going to have to spend trillions on it. And they don't have that kind of money and they'll go broke. And that's what 
dyed-in-the-wool Republicans who love the Gipper, that's they that's how they say Reagan won the Cold War by outspending the Russians on a Star Wars defense initiative that is fake, doesn't work. And now, uh, after we bring Gorbachev to his knees and the Soviet Union falls, America supposedly gets a return on that investment. Instead of marching into Russia when the Soviet Union fell, we sent our bankers into Russia who captured their assets and transferred them here to America with the help of ex-KGB agents who were rewarded with you know, enough loot to become oligarchs. Between the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, we no longer need to invade a country. We just need to lend ex-Soviet republics some money like the mafia does. And when these countries can't pay back the loan, which they never can, we take their collateral. We take whatever they put up as collateral, we take that instead. We take their power plants, their buildings, their dams, their bridges, whatever they used as collateral, we take and we privatize. We privatize their state-run collateral. We do that all over South America, and we're doing that. We did that in Eastern Europe, and we're, <laughs> we're trying to do that in Ukraine. So, so maybe, maybe Vladimir Putin, bad guy, war criminal, maybe Vladimir Putin, maybe we should try to understand why he wants to keep America at arm's length. Has he gotten rich? Yeah. Uh, using American and British bankers? For sure. But you, you can't understand how a Russian gangster like Putin might not want to share with American gangsters, right? We understand how the five families work. You know, don't infringe on my business. We, I have no quarrel with you. As, you know, uh, Don Corleone says to the Turk, you know, you, you want to deal heroin? That's fine. Just don't infringe on my business. Can't we respect people's territory? Uh, it's really bad in Ukraine right now. And it was the West's responsibility to stop the invasion by any means necessary. Flying to Geneva to meet with Putin after he sends troops to the Donbass region, after he recognizes the Donbass region in Ukraine, sending uh, uh, Blinken to meet with Putin after that is not weakness. It is not weak to do anything you possibly can to prevent 5 million Ukrainians from becoming refugees. Now, right now, there are 1 million. In, 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 in less than a week, the war is a, a week old, we've had 1 million Ukrainian refugees. How bad is this going to get unless there's a ceasefire. If you're the leader of the free world, if you have the power to shut down the Russian economy, you hop aboard Air Force One, you fly to Moscow, Geneva, Belarus, from a position of strength, and you say, what do I have to do 
to make sure you don't invade Ukraine. How many billionaires in their lives have said, what does it cost? Just tell me how much to make this check out to, to make you go away. That's what rich people do. They say to they say to pests, how much to make you go away? You go to Putin with your checkbook and you say, how much to make you go away? That's not the Munich Agreement. This isn't appeasement. If anything, Russia has been appeasing America. Look how deep NATO has creeped into Russia's backyard. Again, I have no quarrel with NATO. Uh, I think the world is a dangerous place. I think you need a military. I think you, you use the military as a last resort. But in terms of appeasement, uh, I don't see, I see Russia hacking French elections. I see Putin, you know, uh, getting involved with Brexit, the 2016 presidential election. I do see him meddling in, in Western uh, politics and affairs, but NATO creep, that is very reminiscent of the map uh, that uh, Chamberlain failed to prevent in 38. That's, if anything, he's been appeasing us. We've spent 20 years in Afghanistan. We turned Afghanistan into a military base right up against the Russian border. I think Russia's been, that's appeasement on behalf of Putin. War must be the last option, not the first. But right now, uh, we get tough talk from Joe Biden. What he should do is devote all his energy towards a ceasefire. He had weeks to prevent Putin from invading. Seriously, why didn't he negotiate? Why didn't he try to stop this? You know, it, he could have picked up the phone and just simply promised that Ukraine would not join NATO. Even Thomas Friedman has said Ukraine joining NATO would be a provocation. If Biden wanted peace, he would have understood that Russia doesn't want Ukraine to be aligned with NATO. And he would have, and Biden would have respected that. But America respects nobody, including ourselves. Putin, Putin has made it clear, and, and it, th this is mind-boggling that for weeks, Biden kept saying Putin's going to attack, and he didn't negotiate. I, maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe I'm missing something. I probably am. I, I cannot believe that, that, that if you know Putin is going to do what he's doing to Ukraine right now, and there's a chance to stop it, you don't get on a plane and negotiate. Uh, so you show Putin respect, big deal. So what? Show him respect. If that mean, if, if, if showing Putin a little respect prevents war, does it look, I don't know, does it look like Biden may have wanted Russia to invade? I, I don't know.
I don't know. Is it possible that that Biden wanted Russia to invade Ukraine because that the invasion has strengthened the resolve of NATO? It, it the invasion of Ukraine is the best thing that's happened to NATO since the fall of the Soviet Union. The the entire world has come together against Russia. Putin is isolated. And uh, again, Putin is a bad guy. Invasion of Ukraine is a war crime. But if you knew, if Joe Biden knew for weeks, he kept saying it, he's going to invade. Why aren't you flying to Geneva to stop this? It makes no sense to me. It really doesn't. Unless you wanted Russia to invade Ukraine, unless you wanted Russia bogged down in a quagmire, unless you wanted to see what Putin's got. That's what military analysts are salivating over. They love looking at these maps. Let's see what Putin's got. Maybe this is what Joe Biden wanted all along. Maybe Biden has had enough of Putin and figured let him invade Ukraine and he'll suffer cataclysmically. He'll be forced out of office. Sure, five million refugees, but that's a small price to pay for teaching Putin who's boss. Maybe that's maybe that's what Biden was thinking. Maybe Biden set Ukraine up as a trap for Putin. Maybe Biden set Ukraine up as a trap for Putin. I talked about this on last week's show. Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, likes to take credit for the fall of the Soviet Union because he tricked the Russians, he claims, when he was working for Jimmy Carter in 79, I think it was 79, he tricked the Russians into invading Afghanistan, which became the Soviet Union's Vietnam, and many say led to the dismantling of the Soviet Union. Zbigniew Brzezinski, national security advisor under Jimmy Carter, wanted credit for the fall of the Soviet Union, for tricking them into invading Afghanistan. Uh, he wants credit for that, but not the hundreds of thousands of refugees and dead civilians in Afghanistan. He wants credit for tricking the Russians into falling into the quagmire of Afghanistan, but he doesn't want to be blamed for all the dead children in Afghanistan or the Muhaddin that we supported to fight the Soviets who ended up becoming Al-Qaeda and bringing down the World Trade Center. He doesn't want any credit for blowback, for tricking the Russians into invading Afghanistan. He doesn't want the blood of all the innocent Afghanistan children and women on his hands or the people who died on 9-11 because we were funding the people who attacked us on 9-11 in Afghanistan. Uh, he just wants credit for the, the the chess game, the chess move that he played, tricking the Soviet Union into invading 
Afghanistan because it's just a game of chess, moving pieces around the board while millions of people die. Or if they're lucky, they become refugees. It's just a game of chess. And uh, we end up with uh, it, the blowback of 9-11. There would not be an Al-Qaeda if Zbigniew Brzezinski didn't trick the Russians into invading Afghanistan. Uh, by the way, uh, Mika Brzezinski from Morning Joe is the daughter of Zbigniew Brzezinski. And one morning, and I have this on tape, she let it slip how brutally she was beaten by her mother as a child. Google, go to my website they uh, and just type in Mika Brzezinski was beaten as a child. She talks about being uh, how her parents uh, would stop the car and, and beat her, Mika Brzezinski. Uh, so what we do overseas, we do to our own. These are bad people. You can't imagine the depths of depravity. These people who are using Af people in Afghanistan as pawns, they really don't care if you live or you die. We, we can't wrap our heads around it. You can wrap your head around the fact that Mika Brzezinski was beaten brutally. Listen to the tape. Go to my website by her mother and her father watched. We can understand that, but we can't understand that the father would be okay with hundreds of thousands of innocent children in Afghanistan dying. We, we have to understand that there are people who are at the top who are okay with other people dying if it furthers their needs. Uh, could you, if you were Mika Brzezinski's father and you're driving the car and the mother says, pull over and you pull over and the mother gets out of the car and starts beating Mika Brzezinski and you're big new and you do nothing. Could you do that? Well, if you could do that, if you could sit back and watch your own wife beat your daughter, don't you think you'd have no problem seeing other people's kids die so you could get a strategic advantage over the Soviet Union? This is what we're up against. There's some really dark, evil people. Uh, Biden knew Putin was going to attack, which he did for weeks. He was saying Putin was going to attack. And for weeks, Biden said NATO wouldn't intervene, which it hasn't. So it's gone exactly as Biden expected, right? He knew Ukraine would be left alone, that the West would sit back and allow this to happen. We'd, we'd buy more weapons to send to Ukraine. But he knew, if he knew it was only a matter of time before Putin was going to invade, if he knew that, then he knew that there would be a million refugees a week later. And he did nothing. He couldn't pick up a phone to stop this. Maybe, maybe I'm crazy. I know I'm crazy. Uh, 
how is this acceptable? Wouldn't you do everything in your power to stop this? Wouldn't you do everything in your power to stop this? But Joe Biden is no different from Zbigniew Brzezinski, who sat in the car while Mika Brzezinski's mother beat her on the side of the road. Go to my website, Google it, and you'll hear the tape. You cannot fathom the depths of depravity of these people. We owe it to the Ukrainians and the Russians to stop this war. We especially owe it to the Ukrainian people to stop this war. As I mentioned on Monday's show, and this is going to get you really angry. As I mentioned on Monday's show, Ukraine used to be the world's third largest nuclear power. This is, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to go over this. This is criminal, what we have done to the Ukrainian people. Ukraine declared independence in 1991. When it declared independence, it was left with one third of the Soviet Union's nuclear weapons. So this was a problem in the early 90s. This is what we had. We had Russia and America, two biggest uh, nuclear arms countries. And then right behind was Ukraine. And that was good for Ukraine to be a nuclear power because you don't get attacked if you're a nuclear power. North Korea has nuclear weapons, which is why Donald Trump flew there to negotiate. Pakistan harbored Al-Qaeda more than uh, the Taliban did. There was a big problem with Pakistan uh, with the madrasas, taking money from Saudi Arabia and hiding Al-Qaeda, uh, especially Osama bin Laden. If you don't believe me, ask yourself, how did Osama bin Laden end up getting killed in Abbottabad in Pakistan? Was it Abbottabad? I, I'm not sure, but he was killed in Pakistan. He was being harbored by the Pakistanis. We knew that after 9-11, but we couldn't invade Pakistan because it was a nuclear power. So we invaded Afghanistan after 9-11 and not Pakistan, even though Pakistan had more to do with aiding and abetting Al-Qaeda than Afghanistan. We had more to do with aiding and abetting Al-Qaeda than Afghanistan. We created Al-Qaeda. In fact, the name Al-Qaeda, the base, comes from the CIA. We named Al-Qaeda. They didn't have a name. We gave them the... I'm not making that up. We gave them the name Al-Qaeda, the base. And then they ran with it. I'm not making that up. Uh, so we invaded Afghanistan because they didn't have nuclear weapons. So in 1994... Ukraine could have kept its nuclear arsenal, which means nobody would ever invade it. Nobody's invading North Korea. Nobody's invading Pakistan. Nobody's invading China. Nobody's invading 
Russia, the reason we're not going in to Ukraine right now is because Russia has nuclear weapons. Ukraine had nuclear weapons, but it made a mistake. It trusted America. On December 5th, 1994, Bill Clinton made a deal with Yeltsin and Great Britain. I don't know who in 94 that would have been Thatcher or Majors. I don't know. Uh, it was before. I don't know. But uh, Clinton in 94 made a deal with Russia, Britain and Ukraine. And they all signed a treaty guaranteeing security for Ukraine in exchange for Ukraine destroying its nuclear weapons. And wow, was everybody happy. The world became safer. There were fewer nuclear weapons, and that's a good thing. The only thing we had to do was keep Ukraine safe. That's all we had to do. We promised Ukraine that if you get rid of your nuclear weapons, don't worry, we'll keep you safe. Britain... Russia and America would keep you safe. Now, as I said, it's what you do 10 years before a war that causes that war. And if there's a war, what you did 10 years before was an act of greed. All wars could be prevented. We have an obligation to keep the Ukrainian people safe. And the way to keep the Ukrainian people safe is to make sure that Russia doesn't feel threatened by Ukraine. We have to guarantee Ukraine's safety by telling Russia, we're not sneaking up on your border and trying to steal away from you one of your trusted allies. If you cared about the Ukrainian people, you would encourage economic cooperation between Russia and Ukraine, because as we all know, there is peace through trade. When you share financial interests, you're less likely to go to war with one another. That was what America should have done. They should have built up some kind of trade agreement and encouraged Russia and Ukraine uh, to grow economically, but our greed got in the way. We, we, there are 13 oligarchs in Ukraine right now. We wanted, we wanted to get our hands on Ukrainian assets. We wanted to own the oligarchs' assets. That's, so that's not what we did. It's not, we didn't make things better for the Ukrainian people. Ukrainian people. War can always be prevented 10 years before it happens, but that requires a lack of rapacious greed. We did everything we could to antagonize Russia when it comes to Ukraine. We pulled Ukraine towards the West. We didn't build up the Russian economy and the Ukrainian economy, what we did is we, we made the West seem more enticing to the Ukrainians. And so we tempted them. And by 2013, most Ukrainians wanted to join the EU and turn their backs away from Russia. So 
they should be free to do that. Absolutely. Uh, but we should have tried to make life easier in Ukraine so that they didn't want to turn their back on Russia. We should have kind of helped them along so we wouldn't create the problem we have right now of Ukraine wanting to join both the EU and NATO. There's no question uh, that Russia, uh, you know, exploited Ukraine, uh, it, you know, uh, from uh, 1991 until about 2013, Russia was ruled by pro-Soviet leaders, corrupt men like Leonid Kuchma and his hand-picked successor Yanukovych. Uh, these were Soviet puppets. Uh, but they wanted to do business with the EU. They just didn't want to turn their backs on Russia. They didn't want to join NATO. They, they were bad guys. They were corrupt. Putin is corrupt. Uh, after the Maidan Square in 2013-2014, uh, people, people took to the streets, uh, Ukrainians. They were protesting the, the, the Russian-controlled president of uh, Ukraine, egged on by John McCain and Obama and Hillary, uh, the Ukrainian people wanted to become a Western nation. And we were trying to bring them over to our side. Not because it would benefit the Ukrainian people, it would benefit the military industrial complex, it would benefit the EU, it would benefit Wall Street. What would have been best for the Ukrainian people is to give money to Ukraine, give money to Russia and have trade and commerce and make their lives better. But our greed got in the way. And it wasn't a coup. It wasn't a military coup that America led in Ukraine. The uh, people took to the streets and they marched towards the Ukrainian parliament, which voted democratically to remove Yanukovych. And he escaped to the Soviet Union with $15 billion in his offshore accounts. Yanukovych, bad guy, bad guy. Uh, and then we had pro-Western, semi-pro-Western Poroshenko and and now we have Zelensky. And Zelensky uh, wants all in on uh, e the EU and NATO. And uh, I'm not sure that is going to save 5 million Ukrainians from uh, becoming refugees. So while Zelensky is a hero... I'm rooting for him. I think the invasion of Ukraine is a war crime. Ten years ago, we could have stopped this by not poking the bear, by respecting Russia's fears of Western encroachment on their economy and their territory. Well, that's done. What's done is done. Uh, right now, we have a war that is continuing. 
And it is the responsibility of President Biden and Congress to orchestrate a ceasefire. It is inexcusable that we are not talking to Putin. Inexcusable. It's criminal. And unless I'm missing something, Joe Biden, just when you think it couldn't get any worse, he is turning out to be a complete failure as a president. Again, I'm a Democrat. If I have to choose between him and Trump, I'm going to go with Biden. But this is even a bigger disaster than Afghanistan. The fact that Blinken is for two weeks has stopped talking to Russia, that it's Belarus that's brokering the peace talks and not America. Once again, I'm ashamed of America. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a human man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. In this Bessemer shop, the back and outdated don't ever seem to stop. The man went down cause his heart gave out. Get back to work, we heard them shout. They said the EMTs are coming, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on the cement floor. The bookstores are all gone away. Got me some books, I'll read them someday. Right now, I got to make my rate and all these extra shifts. If I can make it to Christmas Eve, the kids will have nice gifts. And the big boss will have more money so he can go up into space. But there still won't be no chairs in this Bessemer place. 
I wish I were Professor. I wish I were Professor Mike Steinell. I really do. Ain't no chairs. AmazonLaborUnion.org. Give money to Christian Smalls. We may have a new union representing the Amazon workers on Staten Island, the great Christian Smalls, out on the streets seven days a week in the freezing cold, getting hassled by New York City cops, taking his minions in for just trying to light a little fire in a trash can to warm their hands. We may be on the verge of one of the great labor leaders. We may be seeing one of the great labor leaders of our time, Christian Smalls. So go to AmazonLaborUnion.org, and I think he's going to uh, usher in a new era of uh, union membership. I believe that much in him. Hey, Dan? We're waiting on yes, the sir. professor. Can you turn your video on? Do you mind? Sure. There you go. Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Nothing gets done. Nothing gets done here in in the uh, on the show without Dan Frankenberger. So we had a meeting yesterday with this burgeoning staff who are right now trying to keep this show going so and they need to be paid and we are 
trying to find sources of income to justify the time that people put into the show. There's certain people who do things here and, you know, I can only go out of pocket so far. And one of the things that I can assure you is the YouTube money is uh, as evil as YouTube is. We have found that it is a source of a little revenue and explain what and none of this money is going to me explain what's going on well like you said we had a meeting last night just kind of discussing financial possibilities of getting some of the the volunteers a couple of fazools in their pockets yeah. and fazools the fazools i can get some like fazools <laughs> I, I i'm not paying alimony in fazools that i i, I got plenty of fazools <laughs> As long as it's not a fugazi. <laughs> no, no, no. We got to give them money. Uh, yeah, um, so, so go ahead. Basically, basically we were going to try to uh, get into the modern times a little bit and find a way to start reading the super chats that come in, mm -hmm. which we've gotten a couple today already. Um, yeah, that's, that's right. So I, I'm a, I've been a little uncomfortable. First of all, I'm, I'm uncomfortable because YouTube runs ads and i've promised that there'd be no advertising on this show so i feel like i've gone back on my word but i don't know who's advertising on youtube and they're not going to sway my attacks on youtube or google but i have compromised a little because i am allowing uh commercials that you can skip after three seconds but we do have to figure out a way to pay people. And the thing with the super chats is I can't believe that people would. Uh, I can't believe people buy scratch off tickets uh, and eat at McDonald's. I know I shouldn't be saying this. I can't believe somebody has enough money to waste on, <laughs> on a super chat. <laughs> But I, so here's the deal. I will read your super chats, uh, but the money's going towards the people, the mods, as we call them, the moderators, the people who are, who are the show. And uh, this is uncomfortable for me. So uh, what do I do with, we're waiting on uh, Professor Ben Burgess. He's not. He's afraid of being just be, being destroyed. Like I'm, I'm sure maybe he's, busy with joe rogan maybe he's oh, busy boy. with uh <laughs> joe rogan i don't know uh, well we should read that the, we had two super chats come in today all um, right we had one now, come in from Teresa luke for 1999 and she left no message at all where do you so, read the super chat shout out to Teresa luke where, where in are the they? chat of youtube all right i'm in the so chat if you scroll up anything that if you scroll up anything with a huge bar of color Okay, top chat, live chat. So I just read. Where is it? It's right in the the chat room. If you just kind of move the the scroll bar up, you'll see. Uh, no, there's a I don't couple see that it. were very. So you better read it, and I'll make fun of them. Okay. Well, like I said, Teresa Luke uh, did a super chat for nineteen ninety nine and left no message at all. And what's your um, name? And then we had Teresa Luke. And, and how do I thank name. her for for sending money? 
We're thanking her right now. Oh, I see, here I see a D. Five, $5. Dave Campbell. Yep, so he did one recent. That's why you can see it. Oh, okay. Well, so so that's, that's another example of one. Dave Campbell, you say, thank you, Dave Campbell, for the super chat, but he didn't leave a message. Oh, so the so, second one, the second one we got today. Well, let, let me just um, say was, thank you, Dave Campbell, and the, the, the $5 that you donated or will go to the people who are producing the show. So thank you. Uh, I think you're kind of fooling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so self-destructive. I can't. Ben Burgess is. Well, go ahead. Hang on. Uh, I'm going to bring. Uh, the, the no, second, let's keep doing this because this is very uncomfortable for me, Professor Ben. <laughs> I'm reading super chats. It's just one more. The uh, one from uh, user. His name is Observer. Um, he did a super chat for five bucks and he said, uh, Biden just stole the sovereign wealth of a country. The U.S. spent decades torturing and turning into a free fire zone. Is he talking about America? Or, but which country? America? I don't know. I believe, we don't I, know. I, I, it's possible he might be in Afghanistan. He might be in Afghanistan. Uh, so who? Uh, so, I mean, I mean, go ahead. I mean, Biden actually did seize the the assets of, of Afghanistan like the um, and. It is. It really is a pretty grotesque thing to do, given uh, the level of suffering that's going on in that country right now. And we seized the oil in Syria, didn't we? Haven't we seized the oil? All right. What you might be thinking of in Syria, I'm less familiar with, but uh, but I but the Af the Afghanistan seizure was pretty recent. Okay. By the way, the thing, the great thing about I was going to make a joke. Let, let me just take care of the chats here, and then we'll come back. Uh, at 7.30. Why don't we come back and do more of these chats? And okay, sounds good. This is just a new thing for me. Who, so who are the people so far who... Uh, Teresa Luke, Observer, was uh, the other uh, name. And we had Dave Campbell. And we just had another one come in from John Anderson who says, this is worth seeing David struggle with tech. <laughs> yeah. And that's from John Anderson for two bucks. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll come back in a little while. You can talk. Um, well, talk I'll read. How about people uh, for since this? How about people write horrible things about me and I'll read them. Like I'll, I'll say horrible things about myself for money or horrible things about me. That way you can. No, 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 me. no. I for oh, this okay. way. This way I get to. <laughs> and none of this money is going to me. It's going to the the, the brave people who uh, keep the show going. Uh Thank you. So I'll talk to you in an hour. Joining us is Professor Ben Burgess. You teach at Morehouse. Yeah. Did you know that you teach at Morehouse? First time hearing about it. I probably should have been at class today. You teach at Perimeter? You teach at Rutgers? Uh, okay. So uh, right now I'm not teaching anything at, uh, well, actually I sort of am. But right now, at least in terms of regular university teaching, um, the two classes I'm teaching at Morehouse are uh, are it. I am scheduled to teach an online class at Rutgers in the fall. Obviously, I'm in Atlanta. That's in New Jersey, right. so it's online. And did Howard Zinn teach at Morehouse? Uh, close. He taught Spelman, so it's it's uh, it's right by there, and it's okay. it's a it's like a sister school, basically. So right, yeah. and it's historically black university yeah, right both of them are yeah and yep. you were just on joe rogan mm -hmm. 
and you are a columnist for Jacobin. Did you know that? I should start. I should. I should start taking notes. Yeah, this and is not just, just hope that I'm going to remember all. Just this want stuff. to remind you of all the things you do. I want to talk about. You had a great piece about the State of the Union, but let's first talk about this this tragedy that's going on. Uh, I'm not going to make a joke. Why isn't is America calling for a ceasefire? <sighs> Um, so I was actually just before I came on this, I was on my Colin show and I was, I was interviewing, uh, Dr. Kuba Brzezinski, who is, um, who I think is, uh, I actually, I would, I would recommend to everybody as like the best person to talk to about stuff like this rather than just, um, having me try to repeat, uh, you know, no, what, he, uh, what he told what, what he told me for the last hour about the, uh, about the military diplomatic situation in Ukraine. Uh, but look, it doesn't seem to me that um, that the United States um, is emphasizing uh, negotiations as much as we should. I mean, I think without taking any way, away any agency from the Russian government, which of course chose to do this. I mean, it's it's a right. You know, there was there was the um, you know whatever security concerns you think they have, or like you know, of course, obviously there's been a civil war in ukraine since 2014 that's been to a certain extent a proxy war with russia but also like this is an absolutely insane escalation of that right. invading an entire country like this i mean who and do they think they I are am, america yeah no exactly well i actually think the america analogies are really useful sort of on both ends because on the one hand uh it definitely gets to the hypocrisy of mainstream politicians but on the other hand um, you know, I think about like some of, uh, I mean, I think there are some sanctions that could really hurt ordinary Russians and not be against that. But like when I think about sort of targeted uh, seizures of assets of Russian oligarchs, I think, okay, well, in 2003, if other powers responded to the invasion of Iraq by seizing some of the wealth of like Halliburton or Donald Rumsfeld, you know, as a pressure tactic, you know, I would have been a thousand percent okay with that. So I guess I'm fine with this too. Uh, right. But, um, but, but I do, but ultimately though, I mean, I guess, I guess the only other thing I would say is that I do think that there is no way out of this. That's not either what, um, you know, recently I saw a clip of, of uh, Hillary Clinton on TV, almost salivated at the prospect that Russia was going to face this long-term insurgency in Ukraine and it was going to be like Iraq or Afghanistan, which I think is a pretty awful thing to wish on any country. And so if that's not going to happen, I mean, I assume that the Russians will eventually be able to push push through and, and uh, you know, I, people are saying, oh, it's not going as well for them as they thought or whatever. My understanding is that there's some truth to that, but also... I mean, it took the United States a lot longer than this to even invade Iraq. And, and, and right. that's, um, you know, that, that Russia has been in this push to Kiev so far. So uh, so I, I think some of that might be a little bit overly optimistic. But, you know, failing that, look, either there is just going to be a bloodshed there for forever, for the foreseeable future, or there's going to have to be some kind of negotiated settlement. And I... I I really, really hate this thing about American culture where every conflict everywhere is World War II. Anytime you ever hope to, like, you know, have a negotiated end to hostilities, you know, your chamberlain at Munich 
And and I have to say, I mean, whereas I think Biden, at least you know, he he hasn't done the thing that could be truly catastrophic, which is actually, you know, set up a no-fly zone in Ukraine and and you know potentially shoot down Russian planes to start World War Three. Uh, but I've got to say, I watched the State of the Union, and the tone of that night, like it really felt like. This was the state of union, the union that you would give right after you declared war with Russia. I yeah. Mean, this was, yeah, right? I mean, like, there, there was literally a point where there were congressmen and senators, you know, chanting, you know, USA, yeah. USA, which is something I've never seen in the state of the union. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's, he loves to talk tough. He can't back it up other than economic sanctions. So again, I get sometimes I get an idea in my head and I can't let go of it. In a previous time, there would be shuttle diplomacy, right? There would be a frantic effort on the, you know, Blinken would be going from Geneva to Belarus to Moscow to, you know, talk. Let's figure this out. This Is it possible that we have a president, we have people from West exec, advising him who are so yes. depraved that they want war not because they think war is a good thing but because it's necessary do you think we have people who who think this invasion of ukraine is necessary oh uh sorry people People where who think the invasion of Ukraine is necessary. Advising Joe Biden. Are there people, and I can't wrap my head around this because every I know what rage is. I know what anger is. I would love to yeah. beat somebody up, but I know it's wrong, and I know right. war is wrong. And I, you see one picture of one kid in a hospital, and you do. I will do as leader of the free world. I will do everything in my power to make sure this never happens again. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm sure there are people around Biden who who want uh, the United States to uh, to escalate its involvement. I mean, I, I've just been, so I've been um, going through, uh, this is going to seem like a digression, but it's not. I've been going through uh, Robert Caro's, like, multi-volume biography of LBJ. Mm -hmm. uh, my friend uh, Nando Vila from Jackman recommended these to me. But he hasn't written about you Vietnam yet. He's only gotten up to uh, the Kennedy right. assassination, right. right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Uh, so right now I'm on the last one that he put out, and I, I just got through the Cuban Missile Crisis part, you know. And, and there were plenty of people at the sort of highest levels of Curtis you know, like LeMay, the, uh, exactly. You know who who wanted uh, who wanted the United States to um, to to do like bombings in Cuba and, and you know come what may. Uh, and so I'm sure that there are people who say that now, but there are, look, there are lawmakers certainly who have openly said they want, you know, they want Biden to, uh, to do a, a no fly zone in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and, and it's, I, I actually find it really horrifying that it feels like in the few decades since the cold war ended and the, the kind of thought of global thermonuclear destruction has, dominated everybody's thoughts a lot less uh i feel like there has a certain amount of collective amnesia about how bad that would be you know i mean like like if uh, 
I mean, how bad even a conventional war between the U.S. and Russia would be, never mind the extremely real danger. I mean, Russia has already placed its uh, nuclear forces on high alert, like the the very real danger that uh, that would escalate to uh, to a nuclear war. I mean, that's, um, I, I guess, it, it just seems to me that nothing would be worse than that. And I also wouldn't underestimate like, I think, actually, let me put it this way. I think oftentimes we overestimate the rationality of imperial world powers. Like, I, I think in many ways, Russia invading Ukraine was an insanely self-destructive thing for them to do uh, in terms of the effects on the Russian economy and in terms of even the goal of stopping the spread of NATO. I mean, now all these other countries want to join NATO. Uh, I, I, don't, I think it was a self-destructive thing to do, but some people want to say, oh, well, I guess they must have really had these other goals, whatever. It's like, no, I think sometimes great powers just do really self-destructive things because because they get into a situation where they feel like they have to show everybody who's boss. And then in the process, they end up making things much worse for them than they were before. I mean, I, th- I think in some ways the America's war since 9-11 have, have shown the, uh, the, the same pattern. I mean, like that's, it's very hard to see like even in a really cynical imperial sense, you know, just thinking about American interests, it's really hard to see what we got out of those 20 years of war. Nothing other than heartache, death, and uh, the end of our empire. I know in my heart that fighting comes from fear. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I know that you invade another country out of fear to to kill the thought that you're weak i know that mm-hmm. and I, I know that sounds touchy-feely but it's true so yeah. is this something the you know do we jake sullivan the national security advisor and blinken these people are really supposedly better informed than we are is it conceivable that they want putin they want putin to invade ukraine because that will show how weak he is he'll get stuck in the mud and russia the current iteration of russia will crumble in ukraine they'll occupy ukraine but the ukrainian people seem to be valiant they don't 90% 90% of them do not want Russia to stay. Is this a, a strategic move to, to bog Putin down and get rid of him? I mean, I suppose it's possible. There, there was, uh, you know, what's what's uh, Carter's national security advisor, Zeg. Uh, I was talking about this. It's a big new Brzezinski. Yes. I uh, had... Um, I mean, famously bragged that you know he'd uh, he trapped you know the Russians in the Afghan trap. So I mean, it wouldn't be totally unprecedented uh, if that if that were true. I mean, I don't know if it actually is true in this case. I mean, this 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 could have just been that there uh, there were um, you know it could have just been that there's uh, that you know nobody thought this was really going to happen and uh, and. You know, the United States has been operating on the assumption that Russia wouldn't do things like this. So, I mean, the fact that um, the fact that there have been even, you know, like the fact that NATO was expanded to, you know, the Baltic states and that there was the at least the um, 
you know, indications that at some point, you know, that might be possible in, uh, in Ukraine too. I mean, I, I think as I think as an indication, the United States was probably assuming that uh, that Russia wouldn't do things like this, unless you think it was just a sort of you know long term calculation that. Um, well, so that, I'm confused because wasn't Biden saying uh, weeks before? There's no question he's going to invade. It's going to be two o'clock Eastern Standard Time next Wednesday, and uh, I mean he knew he was. So if you know Putin's going to invade, what what yeah. do you owe it to the world? If you know the invasion's a week away, right? what do you owe it to Ukraine and the world? What, what should he have done if he was absolutely... No, well, sure. So, so there was an op-ed by Bernie Sanders in The Guardian uh, where uh, it's called something like, we must do everything possible to stop a disastrous uh, war in uh, Ukraine. That might not be the exact title. Uh, where it, it seemed like what Bernie wanted were uh, negotiations where like everything you know would be on the table. That they, it wouldn't just be um, there. You know, like there were a lot of sort of hard lines, right? You know, we're not going to negotiate about this. We're not going to negotiate about that. And I guess we'll never know. But I think the assumption that something like that couldn't have stopped things from escalating to this point uh, seems a little arbitrary to me. I mean, I think that. And I and look, I, I totally get from the Ukrainian perspective why the idea that they could, you know, join the EU someday and you know whatever economic benefits they thought they were going to get out of that, that they might someday have the you know security protection of NATO. Like I totally get why that would be an attractive thing. Uh, but on the other hand, um, I think being realistic, you know, that we we do live in a world with uh, you know great powers and spheres of influence and all that stuff. It'd be much better if we didn't. Right. But right. since we do, uh, you know, there is, you know, uh, Cuba in the conversation tonight had a good analogy, right? It's like, okay, theoretically, you know, Canada could pull out of NATO and enter into a security alliance with China and Iran, but we all know they're not going to. And one of the reasons they're not going to, uh, not the only reason, but one of them is that it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't end well for them. Right. So, so I think that, you know, that the range of options that Canada realistically has when the United States does something militarily is they'll either get in on it or they'll do nothing, right? You know, that, that, that anything else is off the table. And so when people say, like, it would be a disastrous thing if Ukraine had, was reduced to, like, the status of Finland in the Cold War, you know, where they, they're, like, Soviet Union was really casting this long shadow over them in terms of what they could do in terms of foreign policy, I get that. On the other hand, I have to say, um, I think there are fates a lot worse than being Finland. So, you know, it's it's a. Uh, I mean, if you could, I'm not saying it's you know one to one, but I mean, if if you could, if you could be long term neutral and um, and have you know, I mean, like you know, Finland, I think is actually one of the more attractive places in the world to live, right? And has been for a long for a long time. So, I I, I think. And I also think that there is a there's an element of cynicism here because what okay, look is the primary bad actor here right the Russian government of course is they're the ones who actually did this right, right? but uh, but also like why is it right that that there that we weren't willing to put things like you know NATO membership uh, NATO status in the future on the table for negotiation it's certainly not because. 
uh, the United States was actually prepared to, to go to war to defend Ukraine. I mean, clearly not, right? And, and I'm not saying we should. I think that could potentially end the world. But I, I but like clearly, that's not something we were prepared to do anyway, right? So so why why weren't we willing to do that? And it does seem to have a lot to do with the idea that the United States has been the unchallenged kind of global hegemon for so long that just the idea of anybody else telling us what to do uh, is is has just become just, you know completely unacceptable. And I think this I would say right without taking any blame off Putin that I mean this is some evidence that that's um, that that's an attitude that makes the world a much more dangerous place. So. The Ukrainians do not want Russia in Ukraine. The yeah, Ru- I, I think that's I think that's mostly true. I will say right that I think there are exceptions to that. I think that there are parts of Ukraine that are ethnic Russian and you know and, and they're pro-Russian attitudes. And so, like uh, Crimea, you know, which Russia annexed in, in 2014, like that's probably never going back. It's not like there's been an anti-Russian insurgency in, in Crimea. I, I think that mostly people there right. uh, would uh, would prefer prefer right. that. But I think the bulk of the Ukraine, that's right. They definitely they they definitely don't want this. And my my sense of this again, I mean, I just spent an hour talking to an actual expert. I'm very far from being an expert, but they have a. But my sense of this is that um, is yeah. I mean that if 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 Russia actually does. Um, you know, push through to, to Kiev and, and, you know, I don't know, set up a puppet government, uh, then, then there are, that there is going to be like prolonged bloodshed in, right. in Ukraine. Like many we have to, to wrap come, it like, up along the lines of the United States and Iraq or Afghanistan. We have to wrap it up. Last question. There's no question that the Ukrainians for the most part do not want Russia in Ukraine. We're seeing yeah. a lot of pushback, surprising, from the Russian people. A lot of anti-war. A lot of people mm-hmm. risking a lot to challenge Putin. Mm-hmm. However, I read a poll where nearly half of the Russians blame America, specifically America, for the situation in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. In we we're out of time, but. Can you tell me why 50% of Russia, I know the propaganda, but sure. why would half of Russia believe that America is to blame? Well, again, I think that, you know, I think that the expansion of an American-led anti, you know, military alliance that was specifically founded to counter Russia, being expanded right up to the borders of Russia, is going to inflame Russian nationalism. That, that's not a justification. That's just a claim about cause and effect. Uh, but also, in some ways, I actually think it's amazing, given that, you know, I mean, there are, you know, it's not North Korea, but, you know, but it's an authoritarian country. Uh, and given that, and also just given the fact that most people's instinct most of the time is to rally around the flag when their country is at war, I actually think it's kind of amazing that it's only 50%. Yeah, I agree with you. We're out of time to be continued. Professor Ben Burgess is a columnist for Jacobin, has a great write-up in Jacobin about the State of the Union, and he's also the author of Christopher Hitchens' What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. You can buy it by going to redemmas.org. Go buy this book. 
Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. We only scratched the surface. I wanted to ask you a million questions. Uh, I will talk to you yeah, next week, I hope. Absolutely. I, I should also say, uh, just because it is very, it is topical, and I don't know where things will be at with this, you know, when I talk to you, I hope next week. Uh, but I also have another article in Jacobin that just came out uh, today. Uh, and it's it's called uh, Texas Republicans uh, Trample Their Own Principles to Attack uh, Trans Kids. And it's exactly what it sounds like. So I just thought I would Great. bring that up to direct anybody to uh, who wants to, to, you know, to read it, to go read it. Because, you know, I, I think, you know, it's entirely possible that, you know, that's uh, whatever happens there, you know, with you know the lawsuits that are going on, you know, will be in a very different place next week. But meanwhile, um, you know, meanwhile, I think it is important to just note the really simple thing that that article is about, which is just how amazingly hypocritical uh, this stuff is in, in terms of what they normally say about, you know, wanting to stop intrusive government bureaucrats from interfering with individuals and families right. and all of that stuff. <laughs> you know, they're exactly libertarian enough to not want to raise uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, taxes uh, to pay for housing for veterans, but you know, not quite libertarian enough to be against this. So, anyway, right. off topic from what we were talking about, but I did want to, uh, yes. I did want to uh, direct people to that. Great, thank you, Professor. All right, thank you, comedian. Talk to you soon. Thank you. It's time for the Hershenfelds. Let's get right into it. Doctor Philip Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst, and Philip uh, Ethan Hershenfeld is the son of a Freudian psychoanalyst, I would assume. David, can I point something out? I don't know if you noticed. Uh, Dr. Hirschenfeld just revealed one of the tricks of the trade among the psychoanalysts. What is Dad, that? Hold up your left your left wrist again. Look ah. at that. See how the on the outside? Yes. This is so that you can check how much time is left in the session without tipping off the patient. To, to if George it's Herbert very, Walker I, Bush had learned that he would have been reelected. Remember, he looked at his watch, and everybody. So uh, Ethan Hershenfeld, Thug Thug Jew. Everybody should yes. download it. It gets better and better. Red Notice on Netflix. Bull on, on CBS. And, and next week tonight, tonight uh, Thursday night uh, in week. Uh, Law and Order SVU, yes. And can you tell us who you play? This is Special Victims. I play, I play um, a character. Both of you uh, would actually have been great uh, research resources for me. Uh, the character is a disappointed dad. His, uh... <laughs> I'm not disappointed. Sorry, he's not His disappointed. Son... No, I'm kidding. He's... His son has been, my character's son has been accused of something salacious, lascivious, concupiscent. Prurient? And just all around, prurient. Even prurient. Yes, all of those. Prurient. But I, I, you know, that goes without saying. That's redundant. It's SUV. I mean, right. SVU. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, By the way, Law and Order SUV, much less popular. It's about um, <laughs> things that go wrong in large vehicles. They, they did make the pilot, but didn't test well. Yeah. So I want to turn to something that I think we're all gravely upset with and cannot believe. Anybody who lived through 
the fall of the lead up to the fall of the Soviet Union, this was not supposed to happen. This no, it's supposed to be the end of history, if you remember. Yeah, Francis. Fuka, what's his name? Ever going to happen again? Uh, I I'd like your opinion on it. One of the one of the things I I, I wanted to frame it uh, up against. You, by the way, you haven't said yet explicitly what it is you're talking about. I assume you're talking about the introduction of the uh, the meatless McNugget. Yes. At the McDonald's? Is that what we're talking yes, about? Yes, yes. And it could have been prevented. Okay, right. It could have been. Okay. Here, here's what I've noticed about myself. Uh, the Palestinians refer to the foundation of Israel as the catastrophe. Yeah, the Nakba. Yeah. And I remember hearing that later than I should have in my life. And I went, I'm not proud of it. I went, well, why would they call it a catastrophe? Like, and uh, Vladimir Putin calls the end of the Soviet Union a catastrophe. And I kind of had the same reaction that I had when I heard that the Palestinians view the founding of Israel as a catastrophe, not quite understanding why Vladimir Putin didn't welcome the fall of the Soviet Union. And certainly you're not going to cling to silly nationalism and pride in the the Slavic people. This is your what, what get over it. Like, you know, just move on. Why are you clinging to this? And then I, I, I go ahead. I think I can explain it. Um, at least this is my opinion. But bef before you do, can I just point one thing out? A word, a word from our sponsor first. <laughs> I hate to do this, Dad, but you, you're kicking whatever plinth your MacBook is resting upon. You keep kicking it, so we're getting the sense that you're... We're, you, we're, you, you, but we're, you don't realize... You don't you're realize... Like, uh, that, on a fault, you're on a fault line somewhere. First of all... I'm gonna, you know, Mr. Trump had a note from his doctor that he had shin splints. I'm going to get a note from my doctor that I have restless leg syndrome. <laughs> Rest, restless leg. It turns out restless leg is not the problem. It's just the problem of where you rest that restless leg. Oh, okay. All right. like I, I, now, I, I, now I have to take a detour, Dr. Hirschfeld. Okay. Um, before the show started about four hours ago, I had to go yeah. outside and I put on a hat and I right. looked like my father. Right? Uh -huh. I just, I saw my father in the mirror. I looked, I felt, I, I saw an old guy and I was disgusted. <laughs> That's too bad. Yes. This guy here. Wait, let David finish his point. Yeah, I'm not going to see That was a comma. That was not a period. No, no, go Most, ahead. It was go a ahead. semicolon. He's, he's, this guy here starred in I'm Not Rappaport at Harvard, directed by the new-to-be Supreme Court justice, and he powdered his beard... <laughs> And he looked 
the spitting image of my father. I mean, it, it couldn't couldn't tell them apart. I, 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 and and how did happened. that make you feel? Did it stir up? Because what the point I was going to make make is I miss my father every day, but I do yeah. remember there's like having a little anger. Like I was hypercritical of him the same way my kids are hypercritical of me. I'm not hypercritical. I'm trying to help. You don't want to uh, I, the table when you're Zooming. But by the way, David, I understand. If he you, did you that to you, that. if he did that to you, you'd be pissed <laughs> off. I would no if, no 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 I I welcome the criticism I I, I welcome criticism if, even from myself if I, I, I said to my kid it. if I said to my kid why are you kicking the table they would say to me I am permanently traumatized you humiliated me in front of your two listeners why would you couldn't you have waited it, it's not a two way street it's not fair no, if he did that we're, to we're you. Yeah. No, but David, we're here yeah. like we're like family by this point. We're this is the two year anniversary of us coming on your show. Is it really? And so, yes, we have like we have like it's you, it's us. There's the audience. We can say what's on our mind. We don't have to stand on ceremony. Okay. Uh, especially I don't have to. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. You guys should probably I'm, still. I'm, I'm gunning for. I, I, and David, we could kick you out at any time. We still alive. But why give the people what they want? By the way, I dressed up for today's episode. I noticed that I was wearing the same schmata the last two weeks in a row. So I put on my self-tape audition garb uh, for tonight's show. But but I will let me explain that phenomenon to you, as well as the Putin phenomenon. Yes, please. They may be related, actually. My dear son here claimed to hate to have to criticize me. <laughs> But he had a big smile on his face while he was doing it. It was not a criticism. It was <laughs> a suggestion. It was a praise. <laughs> but my point is that all, 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 all human relationships are ambivalent. So, of course, you loved your father. And, of course, you were pissed off at him and wanted to criticize him or felt criticized by him or whatever and of course you'd love to see him again but the one place you don't want to see him again is in the mirror right yeah because because yeah. i'm mad at him because he got old that was that was the, yeah. his crime to me was he got old and and i look yeah. in the mirror and i see myself getting old and i'm getting at i'm getting mad at myself uh the yeah. funny thing is like i i don't know if you had this phenomenon but like Dad, I have this thing with you where in my mind, I picture you probably as a 35-year-old or a 42-year-old, and I'm now w much older than either of those iterations of you even. I look at myself, and now I have this, this gray that I no longer have to paint into my beard. Right. But And there you are, um, as frosty as the snows of Kilimanjaro. And, and I say that with love. But it's it's a shocking development. We all just uh, we all move along the escalator. I think of it as an escalator of life. We're all just moving up that escalator, and at the top, there's not a, a menswear section. There's no, there's no there's no luggage. There's no shoes. There's just a vast nothingness, and you just fall off the end of the escalator. That's what's up there. And you get to see it. You're you're going up the. You're right. It's not an elevator. Yeah. It's not there's a no surprise. Food court. 
Yeah, there's not a food court. There's no. Right. There's not even a, a, a men's room. It's just emptiness. Right. And you just go right off. Yeah, but slowly. You don't fly off. It's just boop. Right. And you see the other escalator coming down, and it's empty. And you just know right. it's going to well, happen. There are babies on it. They're they're infants. They're babies and puppies on it. They're just right. starting. Yeah. Right. They're just and there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. It's. I the, think you should write a, a book with this philosophical concept in it. It would be a bestseller. All right. I'll get her. I'll put it on the list. I'm going to put it on the list. How bad? Back to Putin. Yes. Putin. Putin. He is totally identified, body, soul, mind, with the Soviet Union. Not with Russia, but with the Soviet Union. They brought him up. They fed him. They nurtured him, educated him. They gave him lifetime employment. And he's been totally humiliated. It's been a personal humiliation to him that that whole fucking thing fell apart, as it should have, because it was pure evil. But And, yeah? No, I was going to say, as David pointed out earlier, that there were ways to then be aware of that psychology and not not poke it and not provoke it and there were ways maybe not to that wouldn't have led to this outcome well i don't know because well, there's only that kind of humiliation just doesn't go away no but the way if you flatter that person and if you flatter them with a global political approach by for example not pushing not pushing east with nato and uh, maybe not engaging in certain other humiliations. I don't know. What do I know? I'm, I'm just a simple guy plowing my little right, my little plot of land. Trump tried to flatter him, and you see where that got. But that wasn't a strategic attempt to flatter him to get achieve any ends. That was simply, a, I think that that was just a a, a thinly veiled romance. Yeah, and he was and owned. He was owned by Putin, yeah. and. Yeah. You know, I I got this bug up my brain that you do anything you can to stop a war. If if you're the president of the United States, if you're Anthony Blinken, you know weeks in advance, you keep saying he's going to invade, he's going to invade. Then you get on the plane and you fly to Moscow and you say, what do we have to do to 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 make you happy. We're the wealthiest country. I, I heard I, I heard you making that point, and it does make sense. But my question when I heard you saying that was, so long term, what does that actually get you? Does that actually solve the problem? Because then once you've paid him off in dollars or in some other way, then what's to stop him the next time around in three months or in six months or in a year moving into the Baltic states or, or doing whatever he wants to do. I don't I, I, think, I don't see that that's a solution. I, I, I think we've been trained to believe that everything flows from Chamberlain in 1938 and appeasement is wrong. And you've you were reading books about you were all read. I, I'm not so sure appeasement is always bad that you No, it's not always bad but with certain types of people it's always bad hitler being one of them and putin being one of them and stalin being one of them 
but we don't know for sure because we don't know how this is going to play out. And in fact, the appeasement route in this case might have, uh, looking back, maybe will would have averted what is about to become an unthinkable disaster in all sorts of ways. We just don't know. Yeah, but I think it's much less likely now that he's going to go after the Balkans and Finland and Sweden and whatever else he would have felt like doing. Because he would have. It's less likely because of the economic sanctions. And NATO ganging up on him. Yeah. He, well, did, not, he did not expect this. Yeah, I, I, uh, and the reason he didn't expect it is because he's a megalomaniac. He thinks he's the most brilliant person on the planet. He listened to none of his generals. Right. Just like Hitler. Hitler's generals said, are you crazy invading Russia in the middle of the winter while there's another war going on? And he said, I'm a genius, guys. Right. So shut your mouth. And fortunately, fortunately, he didn't listen to them and he was destroyed. Right. Right. Uh, Let's tell some jokes. Come on. Enough how else. bad are things? It's March 3rd. It's going to be March. It's going to be March 4th. I hope. The way things are going, that remains to be seen. A lot of people, and by a lot of people, I mean me, uh, can't believe that things are, it's just one bad thing after the other. And I, you know, I talk to my loved ones and I say, just don't watch the news, read, you know, don't have it going all, but how bad would, if you're a psychiatrist, I'll ask this of Ethan. What do you tell a patient who comes in? You, do you have the bell? Is the bell handy? Oh, hang on. Yeah. You, know, you said how bad it is. I'm going to answer on a scale of one to ten. How bad are things? Yeah. I mean, you, are you ready? Usually you go in and you, you, you say to your doctor, I, you know, I'm depressed about Trump. And the doctor says, come on, that doesn't really involve you. There's a, a uh, hatchet in your skull and you're bleeding. Why aren't you talking about that? Uh, but at what point do you, do you say to your your patient? Yeah, it's everything. You know, you the, the world is really depressing right now. You want to wait. Um, you want to wait till the second session to say that, because if you let that bad news out of the bag in the first session, it's just it's bad. It's bad policy. It's bad. It's bad uh, as a as a business person. It's bad as a practitioner. It's bad as a friend. You want to keep things. You're civil, saying but, that if 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 you blame it, if it's not a a mental, if if it's not you, it's the world. What do you need to shrink for? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Then you just go get a coffee. Yeah. <laughs> right. And talk to a friend. So you're saying it's a bad business practice. Well, let's ask. That, I mean, that's not the only reason. I don't want to be sound too cynical. But when you, you started to ask before, how bad are things? There are seven right now. They're at a seven. There are seven. On a scale there of seven. On a scale of one but, to what? One to ten. One to ten. But I think things have never been better than a six. So the world is always, there's always a lot of bad stuff going on. I was just listening to the, uh, 
the Dharma talk of the guy in Michigan I really like. And he was saying, in this vein, he was saying, you know, things were really bad during the Peloponnesian War also. And th I mean, you go through history, things are things are bad. We just keep doing this to each other. And they had a plague. Didn't, they, didn't Athens have a plague? I'm sure they did. They had a plague. Yeah. And um, they did, as I've, I might have said before, they, they did in, invent democracy and uh, the theater and, and the sense of psychology. And then in the last 3,000 years, all they've given us is the tuna melt. <laughs> <laughs> The Greeks. I mean, their heyday is way in the past. I mean, they're great. I, lo I love, but the... <laughs> the tuna melt. And the tuna melt deluxe. The deluxe, that is, that's not, that's not bad. Is the tuna melt kosher? It, it, weirdly, it is, but it's, but it's, it's a horror show. And before I was vegan, I actually, it was my go-to item. My at son a, at loves it. Yeah, the tuna melt. I love that. Thing. But but fish but, fish and dairy, you can match, it's, right? Uh, it's the kosher, it's the glot kosher version of surf and turf, the tuna melt. Yeah. They decided you can mix dairy yeah. and fish, but not yeah. dairy. And yeah. it's like three-card Monty. Yeah. They're moving things around and <laughs> It's because it's I was hoping I was hoping you would pipe up with it. The because the the okay. halachic, the Jewish legal reason. I want to hear this. It says, I think it's in Leviticus, and thou shalt not seethe seethe a kid in its mother's milk. Huh. I thought okay. it said braise. It wasn't braise. It was it was seethe. Seethe, seethe. Yes. What does that mean? Um, it means you shouldn't cook a kid, a baby goat, in its mother's milk. Right? Which, Does that make which, sense to you? It sounds humane. That I mean, there would be something pretty awful about doing that. Well, if he's so alive, are you, if you kill him first, he's not... Even if you kill him, isn't there something like... Uh, <laughs> Beyond ironic, it's it's like when Melville points out that these whale ships that are out there hunting and killing whales, the all of the lamps on the ship are lit with the spermaceti oil from those very whales. That it, yeah. it just re, it doubles the horror. Right. The cruelty is doubled. Have yeah. you finished Moby Dick? I finished it, and um, you know, I, it was incredible. Not enough, not enough pictures, I would say. A lot of words. <laughs> not, that's my only complaint. And it's fu um, it's funny, right? I haven't read it. Amazing. It's funny and then it's 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 a sh it's so long and there's so much build up and then the payoff is even better than you would expect. That's what was crazy. I was like this can't. How could this? And then sure enough, he just holds he holds his cards close to his chest for, you know, 500 plus pages and then the ending is is unbelievable. I got you got to read that thing. I, I recommend where he, where he says we're going to spoiler alert. No, no spoilers. I'm kidding. Um, but it's great. It's great. I loved it when Captain Ahab says we're going to need a bigger whaling ship. Or maybe yeah, that's it's a, good. It's good. Maybe yeah. that's yeah. what are you reading, Dr. Hershenfeld? I am reading a lot of psychoanalytic stuff because I'm teaching a bunch of courses. So I really don't. Oh, you know what I'm reading, though, in the non psychoanalytic world, a wonderful book. I can't even pronounce the author's name. Dickens is pronounced Dickens. 
this is the car ride. This is this is the car ride. I'm driving. You're in the back seat. Your father's in the passenger seat. I'm trying to have a nice conversation, and you lean Dickens with a lot of donut powder on my face. <laughs> I say it. Oh, it's called Submission. Is the name of the book. Well, back something like that. It's 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 a French name, so it's spelled in some totally ridiculous way. Mm-hmm. But it's about the Islamic Islam. That's means, what Islam means. Islam means surrender. Oh, no, I read it. It's that novel from about six years ago about all the novel about right. Islam, Islam taking over France. Yes. Right. Islam, right. I liked it a lot. I, I like that. Thing. Well written. But doesn't really Islam good. mean surrender? So, yes, exactly. That's why he titled entitled the book. Oh, it's funny. I thought because the word Islam, it has that like SLM, like Salam. I thought it had to do with peace. No, it means well, maybe similar route. It means huh. give up. It means just surrender. Can I tell you? Can I tell you a little vignette? Yes. Or a vignette. As long as, as it's relevant. As long as it's relevant. It's relevant. And humorous. All of the above. You can go well, with a vignette. You, you don't why... have to keep it short. Go with a vignette. Why you should always turn to me for political analysis. About six years ago, I guess it was, I was sitting in an Eli Zabar's restaurant on Third Avenue. Very nice restaurant. Don't get bogged down in the details. Keep it moving. <laughs> what kind of soup? What kind of soup? I was there with my friend Salvatore. And there was a table of two women sitting next to us. And we engaged them in conversation, nothing lascivious or prurient. Flirtation. (laughs) And it turned out this was the night that Trump had won the nomination. The election or the nomination? What's that? The the election the or the nomination? Okay. The nomination. And they were despairing. And I said, what are you talking about? This is the greatest news I've ever heard. This is going to be the destruction of the Republican Party. So this is why you should always ask me all political questions, because I, I, I'm right on target. I said the it's same good thing. Answer. I, I said the yeah. same thing. Yeah. I, I, there was no way. Never under underestimate America's thirst for new. That it's that, that we he was new. It was it was something that we had never seen before, and we love new things, yeah. even if it's martial law. I found you know, it interesting. Heard- Go ahead. You go ahead. No, I heard Bob Bob Odenkirk being uh, interviewed by Howard Stern, and he said something about in these pitch meetings for jokes and for sketches, frequently the new idea would move to the top just because it was new. And it's the job of, of whoever's running that show or whoever's the head writer to, to resist that temptation to say, oh, the new thing's better and really sift back through to those old three jokes ago might have been better. You got to not just right. go for the new. Some yeah. comedy writers call themselves closers and they wait <clears throat> till Thursday uh, and they uh, go, I'm a closer. You, you schmucks mm-hmm. were giving... I come in at the and the jokes are worse, but they're they're new. Right. 
I found an interesting right. or, word origin. I was reading John McWhorter, uh, his books on mm -hmm. linguistics. The, the shit and science are related. They come from the same root to, hmm. uh, to, uh, to cut. Digest. Oh. No, no, to cut. And that science is is cutting knowledge. Like just you keep cutting till you get down to the specifics. But I haven't figured out how it's related to I do. And then shit uh, as the same yeah. root. Get back. Get back to us next week on that. Would I, you? That reminds me. The funniest phrase I ever heard for a tuchus. The funniest word was someone called it a turd cutter. I love that. That sounds like a ship. I know a turd cutter. <laughs> it just sounded cute, and I don't know that. that really, right. I'm, yeah. I'm going to teach now, guys. So enjoy I'm your that. goodbye. Bye. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Professor. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor Philip Hershenfeld. Let's plug some gigs. Where are you performing next? Oh, oh, yes. Next week, uh, Friday night, I'm performing in Soho. Uh, it's called the UG Comedy Show. UG exclamation point i'll plug it again next thursday night the and how do people comedy show. how do people get in touch with you oh uh ethan hershenfeld.com yeah ethan hershenfeld.com and um send me a note also oh. um i wanted to say yeah i'm reading this uh it's just i wanted to quickly say what i'm reading um Thoreau walked along the beaches here twice in Cape Cod. He walked like a 25-mile walk, and he wrote about it in a book called Cape Cod, which I had never heard of, but it's, it, it's good stuff, so it's worth a read. It's very it's like that same era as Moby Dick. But also I'm reading something called We Are All Whalers. It's a guy from the Oceanographic Institute here who points out that even if you're not actively killing whales, there's a lot of stuff we do day-to-day -day that impacts the northern right whales, specifically uh very adversely so there's certain things we can change certain habits and you're up in cape cod right i am but i'll be back in a day or two i'll okay. be back i was i was going to be in new york but uh i caught a bug and i not covid but i i had to hang out here for a while fantastic thank you ethan we love the thank you Fells. is thank it been you, two years David, and thank you dan yeah it's two years let us now do community billboard and I'm going to bring Emil in. Maybe we, should we bring in? Do, do you want to do birthdays? Yeah, let's do some birthdays. I'll, I'll do birthdays. I'll okay. do birthdays. Okay. Should we bring <laughs> Ethan think. in to do birthdays as well? Let's let's. Yeah. Sure. What, what's birthdays? What, what is that? I am the. I know how old people are. So Dan quizzes us, and I, I'm never wrong, and. What we'll do a round. He'll ask you, this is so-and-so's birthday. Then Emil gives the age, and then you and I have to guess if it's higher or lower than what Emil uh -huh. said. Okay, so I, I, get, I give the age. You give the age. So Emil's going first. So the first uh, birthday for today is John Bon Jovi. Oh, John Bon Jovi, yeah, of course. The perfume Who? guy, right? Yep. Uh, his birthday was on the second. All the fragrances. I know. I know all his fragrances. Just sold. Just sold his uh, one of his apartments for a lot of money. Uh, all right. Uh, so he, he's. You want his name? You want his age? I, I give. I give you his age. Is that yep. It? 
Okay, so I always get uh, John Bon Jovi and, you know, the guys who do Eye of the Tiger mixed up. Uh, I, I'm not a big Bon Jovi. He's He was like an East Coast thing, and I'm a West Coast guy. But I would say John Bon Jovi is about 63. Ethan? Higher or lower That's than interesting. I was I was actually thinking sixty two, but I'm gonna say but I'm just to just to be contrarian with myself, I'm gonna say higher. I'm gonna say higher too. John Bon Jovi was nineteen sixty two. He is sixty. He's sixty. Ah. <laughs> yes, there it is, dude. <laughs> I'm told he's very good. I'm told he's great. So uh, Emil is winning next celebrity birthday. Who's going to go first this time? Me. All right. Feldman. And I'm never wrong. Joel. Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen, the, the, the evangelical minister from Texas who didn't let anybody into his mega church when Houston was facing Hurricane Harvey. Lakewood, Lakewood Church. Yeah, allegedly. Clean capitalist for Christ. That's who he is. Joel Olstein is 55. Mm. Now, Ethan, I, I think oh, Ethan follows Davis. Oh, he, he's older than that. But You're he looks younger. He has very good doctors. I, I say lower. I say he's younger. Joel was in uh, 1963. He is 58. Mm. Emil, who gets, so you were, Ethan gets one. Okay. I have none. Ethan. You're giving them a head start. Right. Go ahead, Ethan. It's All right. Here we go. Shaquille O'Neal. Oh, Shaquille. Shaquille. Shaq. Yeah, Shaq. You want you want his food age, or do you want? I'm going to say Shaq is. I think he's a little. I'm going to give Shaq 54. Emil, I say lower. I say higher. I say 55. 1972. He's 49. <laughs> All right, last one. Emil now has two points. Ethan has one. I have zero. This is a fun game. Wow. I know. Yeah. How old are right, you? Have you ever played IMDb game? scores? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. I'll write that down. <laughs> Let's play IMDb um, scores next week. Yeah. All right. We got a, a Cuban American movie actress, Eva Mendez. Uh, do I have to guess the age? Is it my turn? Yeah. Um, this yep, is for the first. game, the set, and the match. I would say Eva Mendez. Is she related to the not the the guy from World War Two? That no. Uh, Eva Mendez. Were you, were you going I, with Mangala? Is that where you went? <laughs> No, I was, Ava, Ava Braun. I was. Uh, I'm trying to figure out. Mendez. She, How do you get from Mendez to Mangala? It wasn't Mangala. It was, it was like three train stops away from. 
The Menendez right. brothers. The Menendez I, brothers. I could that I could understand. I think she's uh, God. I, I think she's 40, 40, 44. Ooh, that is a very good guess. Feldman. Uh, are we doing how much do they weigh or how old are they? <laughs> I'm going to say age. I, I'm just so maybe we could get her on the show. I'm going to say much, much lower. <laughs> much lower. No way. No way, Emil. No way. I'm going to say older. Ooh. Older. 1974, 47 years old. Oh. We have a tie. We have a tie. We have a tie, Dan. What do never. we do? I never win. Well, this. the only the only names I have left are people that are already dead. You want to go for one dead person? You have to guess uh, when they were how old they, they were when they died. Yeah. Or can we guess oh, what yeah. they what they died of? I don't have that info, but I have their birth year, death year, and how old they were. All right, do somebody from the question. If the guesser nails it, do they get two points or anything in that game? You just we, just we haven't figured that out. Okay. Right. While while Dan is doing the math, Steve Scrovan, who co-hosts the Ralph Nader Radio Hour with me, reminded me of a joke that Jackie told, and I said, "Oh, I got to tell this joke. It's so good." Guy goes to the doctor. The doctor says, I got bad news. You got three weeks to live. Guy goes, oh, my God. Is there anything I can do that will help? The doctor says, well, you might want to go home. And every night before you go to bed, rub mud all over your body. The guy goes, do you think that'll help? The doctor says, no, but it'll help you get used to the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, a, I want a second opinion. Oh, you're ugly too. Yeah, I know. but I thought that's that's just uh, Jackie that's will tell joke. what Jackie does. We were talking about Jackie. Is he'll he'll tell thirty jokes, many of which are purposely stupid. So he lowers your expectations. Your guard goes down, and then he hits you with a joke like that, and they're like five out of thirty. Are can just, I ask He. He's like a joke historian. He knows yes. every joke, but does he? Is he more curating them, or does he write some of these? He curates most of them. Yeah, but yeah. there isn't it's a amazing. joke it's he doesn't encyclopedic. Know. What yeah, it's we encyclopedic. should do? What we should yeah. do is try to stump him, right? Because that's what his act is. Where you tr you you start a joke, and he'll finish it. There's ne I don't think, and and there's some great jokes that I don't remember that he knows. Like jokes. That's the like amazing great. thing, because even if you've heard it, sometimes you, you, you know, after a few years, you forget the it sounds like he never forgets. Dan has segment for years on Stern, Stump the Joke Man. Yeah, right. we should. Dan, at the next meeting, we should talk about having Jackie come on and use the chat room to. Oh, but, hey, how are the uh, what are the what are we, super chats, by the way? Um, Since we were talking about it earlier, we have. Zero since then. Super chats. This is where people make donations. This is where people. This is how we pay the, uh, the staff <laughs> through super chats. 
Super chats. What's the tiebreaker? Let's do this. All right, let's do it. Then we we have to talk about some serious stuff. Okay, we're going to let's go with uh, the age when they passed away. And the person is Alexander Graham Bell. Oh, the age. Oh, I I know. I know this. 1936. That's not his age. Oh, no, I mean, he died in 1936. His age. Um, um, who's who's doing this guess? Uh, it's between Emil and Ethan. So yeah, d- d- you, you know, know why he guess. died? Oh, who gets close to this price? You know why Alexander Graham Bell died? Just... He didn't invent nine one one. He forgot. Uh, <laughs> he said, "Doctor, quick, come here!" And doctor couldn't hear him. All right, yeah, it'll be whoever gets closer, and uh, Ethan is first. I'm going to say he goes first. The ripe old age of 88. After 11 p.m. when the rates are cheaper, by the way. Our party line, uh, door number three. I knew, I, mean, I I think he died. That's too old. That's, that's very old. old. That's very old that's back too, in the day. They, they, did not, they did not have the, that high a life expectancy. So I, I would say 50, what were you, what, Ethan, you said what, 80 what? I said 88. Oh, I, I better say 87 to be safe. <laughs> oh, Jesus. That's good strategy. That is. I mean, that, 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 that is a gamesmanship. That's cruel. That's cruel. But He was 75 years old. What year did well he die? Played. And was he a portrait painter? Was he also like a renowned artist? Or was that Marconi? I was just reading I, David I, McCullough I th- last week. I th- and I think I read that like Alexander Graham Bell was like an amazing portrait artist who studied in France, I think, or it was Marconi. I Maybe he did graffiti, like um, Basquiat. Too bad there isn't some kind of thing, like a, a machine. Yeah, we where can you look this stuff you up. You can look this yeah. shit up. All right, let's wrap this up. Dan Frankenberger, right. very quickly, uh, plug office hours and hours and tell us... Uh, this Friday night, we have office hours and hours, which it's office hours on steroids, pretty much. It's going to go for 24 hours, and you can go to davidfeldmanshow.com to uh, sign up to the get the Zoom invite. And now you and, say and office we hours on steroids because everybody's going to have tiny testicles as well, right? That's right. No yeah. balls. No balls. And we just, we just got a super chat as this was going on. Cobb fan made a donation of three bucks. And, well, thank and you very much. Thank you. And all that money goes towards the, the people who are helping to produce this show. Every penny. Where did Dan go? I just left. Why? Because it's time for you and Emil to do your segment. I have to get a... I'm gonna, is, would it be rude if I went and got my uh, my sandwich? Oh, I can is, there any oil? is there any oil on it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Hang on for one. Yeah. Hang on for one. I can talk to Dan. Talk to I Dan. Talk to Dan. I, I, I'm so hungry. Dan, uh, the super chat. Explain the super chat idea, because I, I've seen it in other places where people say, oh, I like this so much. And then they 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 give money. Right. They, they say, right. So it's it's become popular over the last five to ten years on YouTube that when there's a live stream show going on. So uh-huh. it's a way for the uh, viewers to donate a few bucks if they want. There's just like a little button on YouTube, and sometimes people will donate a buck, and 
Oh, is it only on YouTube? It's not on like it's, uh, it's, it's on other platforms as well. But yeah. I think uh, YouTube is where uh, most people would would just recognize the platform. Well, what can we do to pump it up? To pump it up for you know whoever is the beneficiary of this of this super chat. I think you eat sandwiches. Is that a loud sandwich? What? I'm eating. I'm eating a a wrap that has. Uh, a little tofu has tofu tofu on it and fake chicken. Oh, tofu and you know, my wife is downstairs making a tofu tofu soup, and uh, I, I would have brought her up here, but she was just she, she had been in so many meetings today on Zoom, and she she had all she could do was make tofu soup today. All right, let's so, let's man. get serious here. Thank you, Dan. Okay. Thanks, so long. So long. I'll see you uh, tomorrow night. Or we'll check in on the Super Chats. Okay. So, Emil Guillermo. So good to be here. So I'm good so to be hungry. here. With- <laughs> <laughs> there, in all seriousness, I'm being yes. rude. Somebody in New York attacked five Asian women. I know. I saw that. I I saw that uh, just like a like an a couple hours ago, I saw that report. It's ridiculous, and you know I don't I don't know the details of this guy, but the last couple have been homeless people, and uh, I think this guy was was Caucasian though. Um, but you know we're coming up to the one year anniversary of the Atlanta spa uh, killings. Really? And, yeah, and coming up on the i believe the 19th and the the fellow who uh, the perp who's already been put away for uh for for four of them in one county he's going up for hate crimes in fulton county so we'll have to see what happens there but there is an appetite to go after him for hate crimes in fulton county whereas there wasn't in cherokee county but it, it just you know funny how time goes by and you think that we have we're beyond this, but but we're not. It, and it's uh, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, Joe Biden has done a number of things in terms of executive orders, and and I think this has been it's it's sort of exacerbated because we have uh, I don't know if they really are all hate crimes per se. They may just be the people who this guy encountered. I mean that that I mean because that's one of the problems with the the two that have happened recently, Christine um, Christina Lee, Michelle Go, uh, who were accosted by uh, homeless people. You know they're not going to be uh, seen as uh, I don't think hate crimes is they're looking into it, but they it's hard to say. But after a while, it doesn't matter if it's you know hate oriented because these are attacks. Something needs to be done. And the, the larger problem that comes up is what do you do with people who are homeless or people who have mental um, mental instabilities and and they they don't get treatment. So very were, complicated, but like I said, it uh, dovetails with this idea that we're coming up to a year where uh, you know the Asian women in the Atlanta spa were, were murdered and right. then you know they stop AAPI hate. You know, I've been looking at. Can, can uh, I just address that? Do you mind if I address? Yeah, yeah. 
Sure. I read the New York Post. I yeah, I know. I, I can tell from some of the stories you bring up, but yeah. yeah. I don't I'm not a post hater. I like I like it's the Rupert Murdoch. It's the same company that gives us Fox News. But right. the New York Post, it's written in a way it's it's fun and it covers it, it's designed to make you afraid to leave your home. Uh, they, they build yeah. up all the crime. They always make it sound a lot worse and it feeds racism. If right. if a person of color so much as you know sneezes without a mask on, it's you know the cover. You know, uh, so there was a guy two nights ago who was carrying his feces in a bag, and he walked up to a woman, and he emptied the feces on her hair, his own feces, and started rubbing it into her scalp he was arrested and he tells the cops shit happens and uh goes before the judge the next day i'm not making this up and, yeah yeah no and, and he goes this was some bad shit and then he says f you to the to the judge right yeah he says the f word and i'm reading that and with all that's going on in the world, you, in the safety of my apartment, I kind of laughed. He didn't kill her. It's wrong. Yeah. He rubbed. I mean, it's terrible. I, I would hate that to happen to me. Yeah. Better as a skit or a joke or something like that rather than reality. The fact that it's real makes it. But the man uh, obviously obviously is mentally ill yeah and I, obviously and as, and as so, are most of the people who've who've been perps in these attacks by the way the guy uh i'm just reading as am news which is the uh it's a it aggregates asian american news uh, throughout the nation seven asian women in new york city in the span of two hours and it happened on the uh, 27th between six thirty and eight, and they and they caught him, right? Uh, they're no, they. I think they're still looking for. Uh, according to the report, they're still searching for the man. And so, but it's it's a white guy with a blonde Aryan-looking guy, uh, with a bat. He was wearing a backpack. Set. That's a lot of wimps. Seven in. Two hours. It almost sounds like uh, you're the fellow you were talking about. Oh, now they got. Oh, sorry, I got the later story. I, I thought they got him. Yeah, there's a, a later story that I found here. They have him in custody, and uh, so charges are pending, according to this report, which was yesterday. So we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I think we got to take these things seriously. But like like I said, it's not so much an Asian crime. Maybe it's just because this was a guy in the subway. It's I think it's maybe it's a matter of homeless people or people with mental mental. Uh, yeah, if you do seven Asian women in a row, that's well, you got to the guy has a preference clearly. But uh, yeah. I don't know. We'll see. 
you know, they're they're looking for people to come forward and to be, uh, they, and they have them on tape. They got them on the the CCTVs. You know. Well, what what yeah, is this? I, is, do you have any evidence to suggest that Trump created this, or the atmosphere created Trump? That that Trump. I mean, I, w my sister says. Oh, yeah. That yeah. Trump gave permission for the gloves to come off. And I wonder, no, maybe Trump is a product of this current climate. Well, all I know is that when Trump started uh, using the Kung flu reference and, you know, the, all the, they started scapegoating Asian Americans for the virus, uh, I think. You saw these instances occur. And when Stop AAPI Hate, which is a consortium out of uh, San Francisco State University, when they put it together and they've come up with more than 10,000 instances, some are just things like, you know, people saying slurs, hurling uh, epithets at, uh, at each other. And some are more, uh, more violent, including death. I think... We got to look at it. I don't. I don't know if the evidence is there, as you say, but the coincidence certainly is there that Donald Trump's scapegoating has has fueled this. Now Trump's out of office. Biden's come out with these strong words in, in defense of the Asian American community. One of the first things he did in office was uh, release these executive orders, reminding people that Asian Americans were people too, or were Americans too. I mean. You know, it, like, did he have to do that? Did he have to? I mean, that's how far, how far, how far, uh, how, how far low we we've we've uh, come in America. We've got to be reminded that Asian Americans are are Americans too. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Well, we'll see. It's all of the evidence. Fulton County, they're going after hate crimes on the on the uh, the perp and the Atlanta killings, and that's. That's going to be important. The Asian American community is looking at that. With critical but, race uh, theory, how do you teach with the banning of critical race theory, which wasn't even being implemented? But are you allowed to yeah. teach in Tennessee the, the Japanese internment camps? How do you teach that? I, I, I think you just have to say, look, this isn't critical race theory. This is just history. This is not. I mean, critical race theory, you're talking about. Uh, an idea that goes back to legal scholars who are trying to look at the law and look at uh, what was happening with uh, with people of color. I mean, that's so far from what is just basic American history. And it could be of people of any race. You know, I mean, I I think we need to we have to teach these uh, uh, these instances of history. But it's going to uh, make like my kids feel they're bad. It'll make your kids feel smart because they'll know what executive order 9066 was. But I don't want they'll my kid to, I don't want my kid to feel that she is to blame for that. Even well, though, she's not to blame for all of it. She can she can be blamed for some of it if she's, you know, is responsible, but we're not going to like hang her up by her thumbs or anything. I, I don't want to traumatize. I don't want to traumatize my kids. Ah uh, yeah, we don't want to trigger people. They don't they don't need to be triggered. But you know what? I'm I'll let me just mention a trigger point that's coming up this weekend, David. And it's why I'm not going to be at office hours uh, this week. 
Sunday is uh, 57 years. Bloody Sunday, March 7th, 1985. And uh, it's funny that when you think about it, you know, Kamala Harris is going to be there. A lot of uh, a lot of people are going to be there to uh, commemorate, you know, the you know, the march. The, the first part of the march, right, didn't happen because they were stopped. And then it, and then you know, the uh, the bloody part came out. People got beaten up and then there were subsequent marches but everyone is descending on Selma this weekend on Sunday that's something that people should know and in fact here's the importance of knowing that knowing you, that you said Sunday. 1985 Nine, no 1965 65 65 I thought 65. you said 85 I, I no I said 57 years right it's 57 years since 19 March 7th 1965 okay bloody Sunday so uh, the the coincidence of this and where we are now with you know the world and of course domestically if you heard the State of the Union address there was a, a mention oh we need to pass the Voting Rights Act we need to pass the John Lewis Act which is you know it's a funny so uh, State of the Union address you should see my column on the ALDEF blog, ALDEF.org slash blog. Because basically, you know, Ukraine was everything. And Ukraine was just a little bit of that speech, not strong enough. It could have been stronger. It could have been, here's why we are, you know, this is why I'm the president and the leader of the free world. But it just didn't rise to that level. He did mention it. It was strong. It could have been stronger. Right. And then he mentions he mentions the, the Voting Rights Act, just like as an aside, almost like he just clicked through the boxes and checked off things that he should mention that he would like to have passed, but he's not going to have it's not going to pass. It should pass. The, the interesting parallel between where we are now and then is that. Boy, if you saw that LBJ documentary on CNN. LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, the 36th president, was talking with Martin Luther King over Selma, talking, talking, talking to him about civil rights. They were, they were, the documentary revealed all these phone conversations between Johnson and MLK. And they were supposed to not get beaten up, right? And, but they, they did. And they, the, the people who were interviewed in the doc, they knew that, oh, Johnson, now we got some leverage. Now we're going to be able to pass voting rights. And it's funny how Martin Luther King was in a house in Selma when he saw LBJ give the speech that pretty much announced we're going to have voting rights. We're going to get this voting rights legislation passed. Right. I have to interrupt See, you. I, 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 hang on for one second. We're getting reports. Plaxorisis. Plaxorisis. Uh, no, hang on there. A fire has broken out at a nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is on fire, according to the mayor of a nearby town, as Russia is laying siege to the uh, the area. Yeah. So. Uh, well, this is why this is the only story, right? I mean, we try to make these kind of connections, um, but, you know, it all goes back to, to Ukraine. 
Um, Dmitry Orlov, the mayor of the nearby town of Enogadar, is shouting a threat to world security as a result of relentless shelling by the enemy of the buildings and blocks of the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. The Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is on fire. And the, yeah. the mayor is blaming uh, Russia for shelling uh, the nuclear power plant in... Uh, well, they, 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 uh, the Russians took over Chernobyl, right? And... We know we know about that backstory, and there were people were fearful since then about what they were going to do with the other plants, and I, I think this is why, you know, I'll get back to Soma. And but I'll just someday. mention one other thing: RT America has uh-huh. shut down, laid off all its staff permanently. The general well, manager, all prob- the general manager of RT says they are permanently ceasing production as a result of unforeseen business interruption events. <laughs> Layoffs will be permanent. Well, they they were, well, well, I have no sympathy for a propagandist. I mean, hosts, RT. correspondents, producers, and others gathered in RT America's lounge as the head of the network delivered the news in person. Well, here's the thing about RT. Yeah. You cannot get information that isn't, if you can only get information about Ukraine that's coming from the West. Yes, RT is propaganda, no question about it. But, but, so is CNN. And, you know, do your own research. We should be allowed to hear Russian propaganda because well, well yeah but all right I think you I think you're right as long as you know it's propaganda it's all if, if you're if you're coming from the perspective that it's all propaganda well then well then, Google as I understand it earlier this week Google and Apple made it impossible yeah. for Europeans to download the RT app in Czechoslovakia mm. uh, you can get arrested for uh, going online and spouting pro-Putin propaganda. So, well, look, I think there's a, a place for them, but the the unfortunate thing is some people uh, who are news consumers don't know that you know the you know that it's propaganda versus it is a a, a legitimate form of journalism. I mean, I don't believe that CNN is propaganda. I might believe Fox is. I think that maybe some of what CNN puts out is, but for the most part, I think it is a reputable journalistic enterprise. So, well, I have to say that I was reading RT two nights ago, and while it is slanted towards Russia, who I am appalled by, right? I didn't think it was as egregious as I mean there were there were a couple well, of sentences that were twisting well, events but we don't really know what the truth is do we Well the, this is how propaganda works right it makes you question and it makes you doubt you should be skeptical anyway 
when you get your information, but some people are going to be slightly more credible than others. Well, what about the I propaganda? Would... We were told, we, all I've heard from American generals who are watching, they're saying, Putin, that army is a lot weaker than we anticipated, and they don't have enough food, and a lot of these soldiers thought they were just doing training exercises. Now it turns out they, they, they've been lied to, and they're having to fight uh, Ukrainians, the morale is shattered. That's part of a disinformation campaign that gets back. That may be true. That may be partly true, but it is in the best interest of American networks to interview generals who are saying that Russia is doing poorly to well, undermine the morale of the Russians. So that's a form of propaganda because it looks well, like it looks like one week in, Putin is not doing you know doing that badly you know in terms of winning. Uh, well, he's not going to do that badly because he's got more 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 firepower, more more manpower, more more artillery. He's he's outnumbered these uh, the, the Ukrainians, and I I think that. I, I think for the most part, uh, most of the Western sources have have reported fairly. But, okay. And maybe know, RT is I, shutting down because the economic sanctions are working and Russia's losing. Yeah, so but, I, I don't know. But I I don't think the economic sanctions are, are enough. And as I said in my column, I think that things should have been stronger worded by by uh by biden and i'm ready look i just came back from paying five dollars at the pump i five dollars in california which like 51 cents out of the dollar goes to taxes and they're thinking about rebating some of those california gas taxes because uh there's, there's a surplus in california for for the time being and they thought okay well let's let's lessen the the blow to consumers but look i i don't care what it is i would rather Pay at the pump for peace. If, if you know, whoever decides to turn the screw on the sanctions get went a little tighter and harder on energy and on ag. If we put those sanctions, I know that a lot of people don't want to do that because it's going to hurt Americans and probably more so the the people in Europe. And that's why you know allies in Europe are important to. Uh, to to consider, but you have representatives in Congress saying, "Look, uh, you know, I don't know if we want to do this because it's going to hurt people in the United States domestically, and they're already hurting by inflation." I'm paying five dollars. I'm paying five dollars already in California for not even super premium anything, just for straight off, you know, you know, run of the mill unleaded. I'd rather pay a lot more if it meant peace and no body bags and you know people safe and if, if it meant an end to a war that i as a pacifist you know have a problem with i i don't know how to talk about it if there's no one talking how, how do you how do you talk about it when you know people say oh, well putin's illogical well we'll turn up the sanctions but not not to the degree they need to be so i think i think it, we're we're ready almost i mean with what you just reported 
about the about the uh, the, the nuclear plant on fire. I, I think we might be ready for some shared mutual pain, which I think everyone is trying to avoid in the West. But right. otherwise, if you don't do that, then we're going to live with stories like what you just read and right. stories about the body count. We're already up to like 2,000. The official count in Ukraine was like something around 2,000, probably more. Right. I heard that this morning. You know, 500 uh, Soviet soldiers. You heard Zelensky in his press conference today talk about how the Soviet, uh, the Soviet, the Russian soldiers were were made to carry their own little, uh, you know, their, their, you know, when the 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 ashes, their, their crematorium, they had their portable crematorium, so they didn't didn't have to send bodies back to to Russia. But how? What? What an image of soldiers carrying their own portable crematorium. But how do we know that's fight. true? Well, I, I just know that Zelensky said it, so I'm quoting Zelensky. Right. So right, you're right. I'm I'm quoting Zelensky. He's going on on live stream talking about it, and th- this is this is one of the problems with journalism. When it's a press conference, everyone's there. He's talking to the media. He's putting out what he wants. All we could do is quote him. We could also verify that if we can, if you're in a position to verify. But at best, we have the word of Zelensky, the president under siege, you know, in a bunker. Who's trying to demoralize the Russian people by by telling them that they're losing. If that gets through. If that gets through, we don't know if it gets through or not. Right. I mean, if 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 that you have to think that the the people uh, who were invited to the press conference were mostly Western press. Right. I don't know what percentage of that gets through uh, the uh, the censors of uh, of Russia. But you're right. This is part of the thing. Who do you, who do you trust? But I'll tell you something. I am in a greater position of trusting. Zelensky at this point than I am Putin. Right. Uh, that's just that's just me. But look, as a journalist, if you put things in quotes, you can do that. It doesn't make you lazy. It just means that look, I I don't have the kind same kind of access and the same kind of uh, uh, budget that CNN has to go into an area. And they sent look. One thing I will say about CNN, they they're finally sending in a person of color uh, to to cover the the front lines it sounds like a small thing but who else would report but a person of color who else would be sensitive to ukrainians who are either asian south asian or african trying to flee the country and being stopped at the border and being held longer than they are i mean you don't hear that on many other places but you know you get a you get a, a person of color who's a reporter who's sensitive to that that's something that that you don't hear. But let me just say this. I'm ready, David, to start the peace or pump for peace movement with the reverend here. I want to pump for peace. I'm I'm for the high the tougher sanctions. Now you you hear you saw Zelensky's uh, aide write that guest essay in The New York Times saying, look, we we need the tough sanctions now. We they, they need the no fly zone. And we know why no one wants to go to the no fly zone. Because that's World War Three, but I, I I don't know how much longer we can wait to see Putin meet out this kind of violence and this right. kind of damage. 
Well, we have to wrap it up. Let's plug uh, ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Can I say this, David? Uh, On the PETA podcast, I talked to members of PETA Germany who went into, uh, they went from Germany to the border of Ukraine and Poland to try to help animals and feed animals and help people there. And they're going into i last co- talked to them about three hours ago they were going into uh, lviv but they were held up uh at the border but the plan was to take as many stray dogs and abandoned dogs uh and take them into poland back to shelters where they can be housed and they could be safe and and also get some veterinary care so i talked to uh, peter germany on the peter podcast and of course people can listen to on uh, my uh my live stream, which is recorded on YouTube, uh, the Emil Guillermo channel, or on Facebook at emilguillermo.media, where I talk about all the things I talked about here, like pumping for peace. I'm ready to pump for peace. I hope you're talking about gas. Now I'm talking, yeah, yeah, okay. that that pump, yeah, that that pump. Right. I'm, I think, don't you think, David, wouldn't, wouldn't you pay $20 for gas if it meant you know, Ukrainians, you know, not another Ukrainian dies. Well, the whole idea, we have to wrap it up, but the whole idea of paying more for gas is to get you off fossil fuels and into mass transit. That's, that's. Maybe, that is, but also, look, I'll pay, I'll pay the price for gas if it also means the sanctions on oil and gas get extended to oil and gas from Russia so that Russia really is hurt and so that Putin could be, for once stopped from doing things that are indiscriminately violent and harmful. Fantastic. Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast, as well as a columnist for the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. We're running behind, so I'm going to say goodbye to you. Follow him on Twitter at Emil Amuck. Let us now go to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is standing by. He is a lawyer, a a barrister, a member of the Supreme Court Bar, as well as an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, and of course, ran Americans United for separation of church and state for nearly a quarter of a century. I know you want to talk about some stuff, but when you look at Ukraine, Reverend, and Joe Biden, Am I wrong? Because I I keep asking this. If you know that Putin is going to attack, and you've said this, you know, 10 days before the attack, what do you do if you're the president of the United States? What is your obligation to the people of Ukraine, the people of Russia, and the world? If you're the leader of the free world and you know that Putin's going to attack Ukraine, what do you do? If you have 10 days before the attack. You know, I honestly think that uh, Joe Biden did the right thing 10 days before. But I think so far he's played this very, very well. Um, He's taken certain things off the table. No ground troops in defense of Ukraine. He's made it clear that this no-fly zone idea. uh, uh, A lot of people get confused about it. No-fly zones historically 
you designate a certain part of the world or part of a country, and you basically say any military aircraft that goes over this area will be literally shot down. You don't chase it, you shoot it down. And that's why so many people say if that was the case, um, a no-fly zone guarantee, which is what Ukraine does want from the West, would be World War III. Because any time a Russian fighter went over, it, there would be an obligation to shoot it down. So you, I don't think you can do that. I think that I wish that people would take seriously the fact that these sanctions, although they seem to be working, I want to talk in a minute about just how little we know and what crucial things we don't know about what's going on in Ukraine. But if you um, if you believe some of it, things are not going terribly well. I mean, how many times can you look at that 40-mile long collection of tanks and other militarized vehicles and wonder, gee, is it really going to get there? What will happen to it? It's um, so you're you're saying so you're many, you're you're saying that Russia doesn't seem to be doing all that well in Ukraine is meeting stiff resistance. It's meeting stiff stiff resistance is what we see, but what we also don't see. How do we know? For example, I just watched NBC. How do we know that all of the people that are being interviewed by the correspondents from NBC or CNN that are over there? are in fact of one mind. I mean, they, they tend to be people, uh, they have a dog and a couple of kids and they're interviewed and one of them is crying. And is that representative of everyone or is that a highly selective group of people to be interviewed? And it gets, it, I think it gets worse when you go into Russia. They're desperately trying to find people who say uh, my son's in the army. I'm very afraid of what's going to happen. Tearful. There, there was even a story on CNN today about uh, some organization that is providing Russian soldiers with an opportunity to call their mothers to commiserate with them. And it, you know, it tears at the heartstrings. It plays on all kinds of fantasies we have about the way know boys and their mothers function but is it demonstrably true does this happen a lot is this just one little cute story is this propaganda is it is it propaganda is it propaganda or is it not and um but the the other things nobody talks about who would succeed putin what do we know about it. We do know that Medvedev? he has suggested what would it be Medvedev? It could be, but it could be some a lot of other people. So now we see now there's a narrative and it's not just coming from Sean Hannity that maybe we should assassinate, maybe we should encourage. And in fact, one of the oligarchs who hasn't been back, you know, to Russia, I think since 2009 has offered a million dollars for somebody to take him out. And I know people on the left, too, that have said there should be more people looking for him to be taken out, been assassinated. If you even think that's a 
potentially good idea, you have to know who would succeed Putin. And Putin said he might not run again in 2024. But of course, he'll be elected because it's all quasi-fraudulent elections. But we don't know. If someone, it kind of goes back to Hitler. There was this major plot to assassinate Hitler. It failed. And uh, even Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great theologian, although it's never been clear to me exactly what role he played in, and he clearly was encouraging it. But at that time, who knew who would replace Hitler? There were lots of evil actors in Nazi Germany besides Hitler himself. Would it have made a big difference? But now the, the stakes are much higher. If you take out Putin, who's threatening in vague ways to use nuclear weapons, maybe, uh, maybe be somebody who'd be more willing to use it. What if, you sh- what if you got rid of him and half of the Russian people said, well, you know, we didn't like the war, but we, um, you know, we, now we really don't like the people that took out our elected leader, Vladimir Putin. We don't know any of these things. Nobody ever asks these questions. The debates, the discussions, the interviews on all the major networks just ignore even dealing with these issues. They ask the same questions. CNN, you can watch any show. If it's at 8 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock at night, and you're going to see the same correspondents asking the same questions pretty much of the same people. Lots of retired military people are diplomatic people who haven't been in Russia, you know, for 10 or 20 years. And they're all asked to opine on this. When you and Emil were talking about Russia today, which is now uh, basically off the air, um, Russia today is a propagandist outlet. But then again, there are people on it. When Ed Schultz was thrown off of MSNBC, and I think he was, I don't know, uh, because he's dead now, but and I never talked to him about why he thought he was, I think he was thrown off because of the Keystone Pipeline. He, he was against it. Nobody else. You know, the NBC is so interconnected with energy companies that it's hard to, to figure out the difference sometimes. Nobody else was going after that. He did. He took him on. And then all of a sudden, he's fired. So where does he go? RT. <laughs> which I think at the time was actually called Russia Today. Then they cleaned it up and called it RT. Tom Hartman is one of my favorite people working in radio. He's always been. Here's a guy who single-handedly went city to city to city as a progressive, a really smart progressive, and got on local radio stations. Then he was given an opportunity, which I think he was still on RT even a week ago. And Christopher Hedges. Christopher Hedges, yeah, I mean, he's I don't just <clears throat> he's kind of an, an odd figure in some ways, and and I guess Dennis Miller had a show, but but Hartman and Ed Schultz, these are not people in my experience who were ever um, compromised by their appearance. But I know when I started going on Ed Schultz's show on Russia Today, even my own staff said. Why are you doing this? Uh, you know, may might make us look bad. But I never knew Ed to compromise on anything. And he didn't talk a lot about foreign policy. And 
you know, MSNBC has a lot of people on it. I, I've told you my story about it. I mean, they're so interested in having people on that network who don't rock the boat in ways that the leadership of NBC doesn't want them to be rocked. And are they a propagandist? I don't know, but they sure it's become increasingly lousy journalism. Tom Harton. I mean, good God, the guy, the guy's written like 20 books. I know he's amazing. Books of, he, he talks about these things and, you know, when Air America started, I had high hopes for it. And then they had, you know, Liz Winstead was a big player in that at the beginning. Then they fired her. And, um, you know, what were they we left with? We were left with uh, Rachel Maddow, who, you know, is fine up to a point. And then now it's got, uh, I've never figured out Chris Hayes at all. I, I've never, fig- but I knew Delta Joe Scarborough, who now I think is on for four four hours, certainly was a creator of what we now come to know as the, as the right-wing Republicanism. And um, the guys, you know, they just gave him another hour. What's the point of it? What is the point of having Joe Scarborough, just because he doesn't like Trump, although he certainly loved Trump for a very long time, now he doesn't like him. He criticized him during at least the last three years or two and a half years of, of his presidency. That's not enough. That's not enough. The guy was an architect of the new right in America. I don't give him any credit, none, for what he's been saying, uh, what he started to say about Trump. I don't care. I just as soon have somebody else say that. Right. right. So I think RT, what, whether you call it propaganda, it's kind of like Al Jazeera. People didn't want that. I used to go on Al Jazeera. People would go, oh, well, that's, a, you know, like, like that's a, there's a bunch of, Islamic terrorists that, that watch it too. I don't care. If you're going to get the message out, that's what you need to do. Al Jazeera, to is, it, Al Jazeera is a great network. I agree. And I, I agree. go to their website all the time. And I'm looking at RT. The website is still up. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> let me read you a couple of headlines. This is It's done. It's sure. out of business. In fact, I think it's now shut down. I can't get to it. Up. Oh. It's been shut down. I was just looking at it. Uh, Here's banner headline. Ukraine accuses Russia of shelling nuclear power plant. So is is that propaganda? That seems true, doesn't it? Uh, Sure. They've just shut it down. Yep. Yep. You can't. Wow. Okay. I had one. Uh, liberal Russian TV channel suspends operations. Moscow's Dozhd station has decided to go temporarily off air amid the war in Ukraine. Let me just read you what it says here. All right. Moscow's liberal television station has temporarily suspended broadcasts, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Russian regulators blocked the station's signal two days ago, citing alleged false reporting about the war in Ukraine. So RT is, I'm not, listen, I'm just saying RT, that's what the West is reporting. 
that sure. Russian regulators shut down a liberal Absolutely. station. And uh, don't we lose something if we don't have Russian television coming to yeah, us? Yeah, absolutely. I we absolutely lose something. And if we can't, <laughs> a, a, a listener sent me a wonderful article um, today by uh, Phyllis Bennis, who uh, is a great international scholar, foreign policy scholar, works at the Institute for Policy Studies, which gives a, a good, strong, and I think generally a very, very honest assessment of the failings of U.S. foreign policy. And she talks about how if you're going to talk about Ukraine, you have to look at the history, not just the history of two weeks ago, right. but the history of what happened back in 1991. And I know in 1991, uh, there were a lot of us uh, and a lot of people with much longer credentials in foreign policy than I have, who said, look, it, there is no Warsaw Pact anymore. The entire Soviet Union is broken up. Maybe this would be a really good time for NATO to disband. And people, serious people made that argument. The United States rejected that argument. And we decided not only to not dissolve it, but to increase it so that some of those states that were once part of the Warsaw Pact now have become supporters of nato we let them in there was even talk of uh, letting russia in at one point <laughs> there may have been well even seriously ukraine yeah. tried to get in and france uh, maybe another country as well but france balked at that and, and didn't allow them in but once you once you do that once you get to that point then you have to figure out since we can't replay history we recognize that there may have been mistakes but what do you do right now? And that's, of course, the question that's on everyone's mind. And I think it's what she argues in this article. And I, as I said, if you go to the Institute for Policy Studies, I'm sure you can read it. It's a relatively short article. Um, you have to go deeper into diplomacy. You have to make sure that this is going to work and you have to take it seriously. There have been glimmers of hope on this diplomatic front just in the last 24 hours where there's some kind of apparent agreement about preserving the right of refugees to leave Ukraine, uh, guarantee their safety. If that's true, that's one of the good steps that, that certainly could be undertaken. But it's um, it may be small. To me, and I think I said this last weak. It sounds silly to people, but, you know, war is not going to end in the world until people refuse to fight it. So it's good news that there are actually Russian soldiers who are allegedly, apparently saying, we're not shooting people that look just like us. Right. And in addition, people, the fact that there's an anti-war movement in Russia is so extraordinary. I mean, if you were if you've objected to Hitler, they'd probably shoot you right away. But they've arrested thousands of average Russian citizens who have gone out knowing that they were going to be arrested, knowing that they were going to be hit on the head, and they still go out and protest and get arrested. That's the extraordinary, that's the extraordinary power of anti-war movements. 
it was helpful when in the United States and in most of Europe, people objected to Vietnam. But this is much more essential. This is These are people who say right at the beginning of the war, we want no part of this. We've been lied to and we're not going to take it anymore. And those voices coming from Russia itself are the single and some days the only thing that I can look at this whole mess and say that is good because this is what ultimately needs to happen for war to actually cease. We have uh, we have oligarchs, Russian oligarchs and their kids speaking out against the war. The, the daughter of Russia's uh, of Putin's press spokesperson came out against the war. So. Yeah. Diplomacy. If you, uh, I'm kind of surprised at your answer. What does Biden owe the people of Ukraine in terms of getting on the blower, talking to Putin and saying, what do we have to do to stop this fighting? If you're the president of the United States, am I wrong? It seems to me that if... If you're the president of the United States, you do everything possible to get a ceasefire going. What will? What, how much do I have to pay for this ceasefire? What do you want? How do I stop people from getting killed? Isn't that what you have to do? Or is that a sign yeah, of weakness? You, no, but I... Well, I, I think he gets two kinds of advice. One is that it would be a sign of weakness. And the other, that it would push Putin so much further into the corner. If you don't have this vaulted exit ramp for P Putin, you he's got nothing. And then you have to ask the other question that is never asked. What the hell is going on in Putin's head? Every If I had a nickel for every time in the last three days, somebody on one of the networks said, uh, I'm not a psychiatrist, but my opinion about Putin is, and then they give their. They should say, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I need one. And my. But I need one. I, you know, you're dodging, <laughs> you're, you're dodging my question, Reverend. I don't think there's anything that can be done. Well, you, you started out by saying what could have been done 10 days before. There's one way that. Here, here's one off-ramp that he could talk about. But, of course, if this were ever leaked to the press, <laughs> it would be fatal. He could say, look, in five years, we're going to take this section of Ukraine on the east that is primarily Russian-speaking and Russian culturally, and we're going to let them vote on whether to form a separate country. This is, of course, what we should have done in Vietnam after the French left Vietnam. There was supposed to be a, a plebiscite. And, of course, the United States was afraid that would mean Ho Chi Minh was elected president. We couldn't have that. The guy's a communist. Well, he did. So when there we was a never vote. never allowed them to have it. No, we did. They lost. We had the vote. No, they, no, they didn't have a vote. In, 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 in 1955, they didn't have a vote. I think they had a vote. And it, we lost the Ameri They voted, and they they. Well, anyway, it'd be interesting to no, find no, out. No, the, well, Ho Chi Minh was very po popular, right? And 
If you mean we lost or he lost. We lost and then we suppressed the results. That's how I Oh, understand. yes. Oh, I, I thought you were talking about that uh, Ho Chi Minh lost. No, he didn't lose. But right. of course, we, we had a corrupted system and we covered it up and we always made him appear to be, you know, the villain in all of this. Of course, at the end of the day, after 55,000 Americans, 250,000 plus Vietnamese die, we leave anyway. We lost. And there might have been wonderful acts of individual heroism on the part of American soldiers, but the intellectual support for that war never made any sense. That's why when the Pentagon Papers first came to light, it was so important that the New York Times had to print it, that Mike Ravel had to threaten to release them uh, in a public document. I mean, these are, these are high stakes things. We so corrupt. I'm not suggesting that we're covering up as much today, but I am suggesting that we ha we have not been asking terribly rigorous questions, nor gotten people together who can help to explain what are the likelihood of individual people in Russia actually succeeding him, which persons, and what do they believe, and then just how dangerous is. Putin now or if pushed into the corner even further. It's not like nobody thinks about these things. They do. But having some commentator who went to Russia last week uh, start to opine about uh, what uh, what they think is on going on in uh, uh, the mind of, of, of Putin is, is just useless. It's, it's, it's not information at all. And these are the kinds of pieces of information that are essential to yeah. make decisions. If, you, if you're Sean Hannity and you want to say, let's cut off, you know, to kill a snake, you cut off its head, implying that that's what we should do. We should go out and assassinate him. There are all kinds of technical issues. You know, Gerald Ford uh, put into place a policy in the United States that we still have. Uh, that says we don't assassinate world leaders. And then there's another kind of uh, basic point. We're not at war with Russia, so we, we'd technically be assassinating somebody with whom we are not at war. But that aside, you, ultimately you do. there is a genuine moral question about assassination of world leaders. And... That's nobody talks about it. And people like Sean Hannity just say it. And people, because he is such a despicable character himself, they say, well, it's obvious that must be wrong. Sean Hannity Hannity's in support of it. Right. But um, these are these are questions that ought to be addressed instead of going through the same pictures of the same damn train station with very similar families. I think in one case, there was the same family on two networks lovely little children, a nice dog interviewed. What's, what are you doing? They cry. Of course it's horrible. That's what war is. It's a terrible thing. It's horrible. But it, should you spend time talking to the same family again with their dog, or should you do something to look at what's behind all of this? Not just what mistakes we made, but what are the things that can be done? And how do you make an assessment of what to do when you have a person, Putin, 
who may in fact be mentally ill. How do you assess that? It's not like, you know, there are people that write books about this stuff, but somebody ought to find them instead of finding some more, one more retired diplomat who hasn't been to Russia for a decade to opine it, it, about it, what's going on. It, it feels like you're poo-pooing diplomacy. Do you think Anthony Blinken and Putin exhausted all diplomatic channels to prevent this invasion? I don't know. I don't honestly know. Well, I mean, we I, saw I, Zelensky saying, yeah. going on national television, please don't invade us. We have no quarrel with the Ukrainian people. Did we see Joe Biden go on national television and plead with Putin not to invade? Did did we see Joe Biden? All we saw was Anthony Blinken, our Secretary of State, will not meet with Russia after Putin, two or three weeks ago, recognizes the breakaway republics in the Donbass uh, region. So, is that what you do when you're on the brink of war? You go, that's it. We're not talking anymore. Is it? Aren't you supposed to talk all the way up to the? The first shots are fired? I, I would be very, very surprised if we haven't been doing a lot of, of uh, mid-level negotiating all the time, including the time that we said that. But we still... Lincoln can I, can still I ask your question? Can I ask you a question? You've, yeah. run, you've run a major organization for 25 yeah. years. If you left certain things to people underneath you, and there was a problem with another organization and it was if it didn't get resolved it would be cataclysmic would you trust the people working underneath you to have mid-level conversations with the people from the other organization who are also mid-level representatives or wouldn't you get on the horn and call the leader of that organization i i Frankly, I would do both. I mean, I had, I have done both. So, I mean, we're is talking it, isn't about Biden being I mean, manipulated? We're talking about an internecine battle. I'm saying we have a president what? who is controlled, who is taking advice. He's doing what George W. Bush did, which is I'm going to surround myself with the smartest people in the room. And I'm going to weigh all their suggestions and then move accordingly. He's being. It feels like he's been manipulated by these former West exec lobbyists. And and they're saying to him, don't worry, we, we've got it all under control. It seems to me when you're on the brink of war, the president of the United States should not be saying uh, Putin's going to attack in 10 days. He should be calling Putin up and saying, what do we have to do to make sure you don't attack? What do we do here? How many times well, we he did have that conversation, not 10 days before, but a few days before. But when he gets nowhere, what is he supposed to do? And if he gave if he gave an address, which, it, you know, the State of the Union address was mainly an address. Well, well Putin, he got nowhere because right? he wouldn't promise uh, to, to not. He didn't make a promise that Ukraine would never join NATO. All he had to do, you know, you try everything. How about promising Ukraine doesn't go into the NATO bloc? 
he didn't try. It's not like he tried. What did he try oh. to stop this? Unless you think, you know, well, it's worth fighting a war so Ukraine could join NATO. I don't think he... I think it would have been very dangerous to say that because although I'd be perfectly happy with it and you would, I'm sure, I don't want Ukraine in NATO. But as I said, I really don't think, I mean, we should 20 years ago have dissolved NATO. Right. But it would look weak. It would look weak. This guy, he's constantly being attacked. Biden's constantly being attacked, not only by Republicans who find every reason in the world to oppose everything the guy does. And then a lot of us who snipe at him from the left about a variety of issues. If he if he said, here's a speech, and I want to say to you, Mr. Putin, or on a telephone call, I will never we will never vote here in the United States to allow Ukraine into NATO. If he said that, and that was reported anywhere, if he said it publicly, he'd have been crucified by most of the American people, including the entire Republican Party, who once they got over a minor sense that maybe we had no vested national interest in Ukraine, they've now moved from that onto uh, assassination, bloodthirstiness, and I think it would have been suicide for him to do that. If you're do I afraid think that of that's a legitimate weak. solution? If you're afraid of looking weak, then you are weak. If, if you're if you're worried about optics, I don't think I think America is strong enough that I, I like to believe that America and the West is strong enough to prevent war unless it wants war. I think there are people who want who, who either think war is good for the military industrial complex War is good for the banks, or they want to trap Putin in Ukraine. They think they're pulling a big new Brzezinski. But uh, if you don't want war, as John Lennon said, and Yoko, war is over if you want it. And I think we could have stopped. I like to think highly enough of my country that we have the, the power the muscle and the money to prevent Vladimir Putin from invading Ukraine. I do. I have faith in this country yeah. that we have that kind of, we can be that persuasive. I have faith in in this country. Well, I mean, I I guess I don't. I mean, I guess I don't. I guess I guess I am. Uh, you know, we we don't even have people who are willing to say that our incursions into the Middle East, our long war with Vietnam, that they were not just mistakes, but that they were deliberate decisions that were made that were pointless. We were lied to and we're ready to be lied to again. And that's what I'm afraid is going on now. Right. That, no, I don't think it's, look, Biden's, Although I like Joe Biden, <laughs> he's not. He's when he's never been a courageous person. 
he's not going to all of a sudden in this instance decide that he's going to take whatever he's down at 32 percent in the polls i think i'll uh, i'll announce on television or an and or in a telephone call to Vladimir Putin, don't worry, we'll never vote to let Ukraine into NATO. It's, it's impossible for me to believe that he would ever utter those words. And if you're saying, well, that's what he should do, because the American people will listen to that, and they'll say, oh, son of a gun, that's right. Uh, maybe we've been lied to before, or maybe it's not as bad. You, if you're right about that, then I guess you're right that he could have made a convincing argument to Putin or to the American people. But I'm afraid I'm not that. Uh, if, if that's an affirmation of the American character, I'm afraid I have to reject that. Okay. I don't think we're that. I'm thinking about Jimmy Carter. Help me out here. Yep. I'm thinking Jimmy. about the hostages being taken in 78 or 79, 79. I'm thinking thinking of 79, the hostages, about 50 hostages taken in Tehran. And he was perceived as weak because he was negotiating with Rafsanjani and he was trying to get them out. And it went on and on. And then we tried a rescue in the desert and it failed. Right. And Cyrus Vance... Secretary of State resigned at a protest. He got pushed. Carter got pushed to do a a rescue of the hostages, which would have left a lot of people dead. Right? Right. Yes. But he waited a year and they 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 came out alive. And we didn't invade Iran. Uh, That's a good outcome, in my estimation, considering what America and Great Britain did uh, to Mossadegh in the 50s with Kermit Roosevelt. Uh, and, and, And Carter knew that. And he just waited it out. And he was humiliated, but those hostages came home alive. Russia invades Afghanistan, and he says, all right, we're not going to the Olympics. Yeah. And people hate America. You're not going to the Olympics. And some say that's one of the reasons he lost. I'm pretty sure Jimmy Carter never got this country into a war. I'm pretty sure. I think he... But he... I've done, I've done a lot of reading about the, the Carter in, in my files, and it's a, I will continue to work on this book of mine, because the two things that he did in the invasion uh, when we were thinking about Afghanistan and looking at what the Russians were doing there and how they were getting lost in it, he, he boycotted the Olympics, and he started... Pe- putting millions of young men's names onto draft registration cards. That's all he did. But if you look at the justification for those kinds of things, you know, the head of the Armed Services Committee at the time was Georgia Senator Sam Nunn, who never knew a war he didn't like. 
who was in favor of conscription of everybody for any any reason at all. I don't think Carter really understood foreign policy. I don't think he had a Carter doctor. Carter doctrine Human never rights. made any sense. Human they rights. go back and forth. Human but, rights. But, but then when but when you say the hostages came home, that's a good result. Of course, it's a good result. But why did they come home? Because Ronald Reagan was president of the United States. Is that a good outcome? I mean, the Iranians had to be playing this against the against the map of um, American politics, knowing that Carter was vulnerable, thinking Reagan might be better for them, and he'd be particularly better if as soon as he was elected. I think I think the Iranian hostages came home literally the day Reagan was inaugurated. Or the minute he right. was sworn in. Yeah, they, the minute they, he was sworn in. Right. Then they let him. And that's because George but, George Herbert Walker Bush met with the Iranians in Paris to say, don't release the hostages until uh, Reagan becomes yeah. president. You'll get a better deal with with us. Yeah. Well, he did get a better deal. Did the, the Iranians get a better deal? Yes, of course. They got but, uh, but, weapons. But yeah. it's, um, I, I just... I I think the biggest worry I have, I don't know what this fire at the nuclear plant means. I mean, it's all, I assume that this nuclear plant is better than Chernobyl's. I'm assuming that some of the catastrophe of Chernobyl that was predicted apparently didn't happen. But um, we, we've got a nuclear trigger here. This is The Iranians didn't have nuclear weapons. The Vietnamese didn't have them. Hitler didn't have them. Um, but now we're in this a nuclear world, and the biggest possessors of nuclear weapons are the United States and even more Russia. Right. You you have you have to weigh that. And I'm, again, there are people that are vastly more qualified than any of the people that we're talking to here. Um who ought to be giving sound advice about just what the nuclear capabilities are, would, if he puts, as he did, Putin put the uh, nuclear forces on, on alert a couple of days ago, and uh, there are all kinds of nuclear weapons, of course. You don't have to use intercontinental ballistic missiles. They're actually battlefield weapons, nuclear weapons. You carry them on the battlefield. They cause enormous damage. But it's not a complete conflagration that destroys the entire planet. Before, but yeah, uh, I, I don't think just no way. I I can't imagine what he could say or could have said that would have guaranteed that Putin would have said, "Well, come to think of it, I'm not going to do this." I do think that Putin, honestly, he doesn't want simply to not have. Ukraine become a part of NATO. He wants to take over the entire landscape of that huge country because he considers it, or he says he does now, it's just part of Russia. It's never left. We don't want a little piece of it back. We want the entire land landscape to, to be part of Russia once again. That's what he wants. 
hard to negotiate with that point. Well, it's hard to, don't you think America, if instead of trying to uh, nuzzle up to the oligarchs in Ukraine and help them launder their money, we worried about the Ukrainian people and negotiated with Putin to try to find a, a, a more positive outcome? Don't you think if- yeah, Of course, of, of course, but I mean, it's, you know, it's all of these, the, the ruble is worth a half a cent now. The, the entire value of currency in the country just objectively is now gone down 35 or 40%. I wish one of the other things we talked about instead of just uh, how this was likely to uh, do, do damage to the oligarchs, which is good, there's real people in Russia who aren't going to be able to buy bread anymore. No matter what fringe arguments can be made about how Putin's not as terrible as some people think he is, he ain't going to go hungry. You know, it's like people who want to buy gold. I always used to say to people who are peddling gold, uh, it's, as he'd say, it's the one thing that never loses value. And I would say, listen, I'm going to have three loaves of bread. And how many gold bars are you going to give me for those breads when the when the apocalypse comes? Yeah. Right. So there's nothing. So you you can't. There re, there are real injuries made to real people, no matter what we do. If we if we think we can keep the blood off of our hands by simply sending more Stinger missiles into this zone of war but we're not going to send any people that's a distinction but when the stinger missile hits the wrong person it's not going to matter the blood's still on the hands of the arms merchants of which we are and have been for a long time the single largest arms dealer on the planet yeah so you asked how bad can things get for Russia and how bad can things get for Putin? At some point, the the noose will tighten around Russia economically and Putin will be forced to step down. That is what Biden is hoping for. Well, look no further than Syria. If you want to know how this plays out, there's a distinct possibility that we can see we, we will see a replay of what happened in Syria, Russia backed Assad since when did it start? 2011. That war has been going on mm -hmm. for 12 years, and everybody tightened the noose around Assad and thought it's only a matter of time before someone either assassinates him or his own military turns on him and he's out of there. Well, Putin stood by Assad. Assad is still in power. And you look at Aleppo, you look at the way the, the, the siege warfare that Syria uh, implemented with the assistance, I believe, of, of Putin, of Russia. Uh, I don't know uh, if economic sanctions will get Putin out of there. I don't know if his own people are going to turn on him. I don't know if his own people turn on him 
that, that, that he would be vulnerable the same way Assad, you know, if, was not, of course not. So these people have a way of surviving. Seems to me, and we, we do have to wrap it up, seems to me the easiest sure. thing to do is talk to these monsters and we have the power to level them even russia even with their nuclear weapons we have economic and military power we can we've turned the whole world on putin if you are coming from this kind of position of strength that i think this country has you hop on air force one you fly to geneva and you say vladimir what what do we do here what what do you need how can i help you here that's how they do it in hollywood <laughs> that's how that's yeah, how that's, really, that's how bernie brillstein I mean, would do it what do you need yeah jack richard richard too but um i don't know what i don't i can't imagine in the context of what may be going let, let's assume that most of these reports are right that there's a growing anti-war movement in russia that they're the oligarchs are really really angry and not just the ones that have left a long time ago and want to assassinate Putin, but the people that are still there and that they're really upset about losing their yachts and all of that. Um, there's a, I just think there's a huge difference or, or a huge step to take from all of those things to anything that you've just said. That is to say that Russia will, Putin will say, well, you know, I, I, I can get out of this now, or I, I, I changed my mind. I just don't think this is a guy who's going to be able to say that absent some real concessions that I don't think he's still prepared to make. I don't think he really, you know, the reports are, again, we don't know where these reports come from. He's obsessed with this. He's getting every half hour he gets a report about how the war is going. That's a sign of a guy who's worried but is he worried enough to do anything on his own volition? Can we depend on some oligarchs to say, well, you know, let's give, let's add to the million dollar bounty another million dollars and we'll get my third friend who three million, somebody will take them out. I just think that's unthinkable. Even if it was morally acceptable, I think it's, it's just unthinkable that this is the way this is going to end. So, um, hey, we didn't uh, we didn't do anything lighthearted t today, but I do. I thought this was this was uh, this was shits and giggles. Was, was, right, exactly, it was just. Um, um, hey, we were talking about billions last. Year. Yes, I, I can't get through the sixth season. I'm like, it's just. I, I we love it. I, I love it billions. Great. I love billions because yeah. it doesn't take yeah. itself seriously and it's capable right. of doing some extraordinary things that are brilliantly funny. The acting is amazing. A little too much yeah. music and I don't like their choice in music. It's mm. but uh, but all in all, it's fun. And that's all anything really has to be. And it's edifying. It gets you in the minds of a, of a district attorney. But you were pointing out the cultural affirmations that were made that were very, very deep ones. And I was hoping uh, you could tell me when they mentioned Cocoa Butt, 
What did they mean in the last episode? Coco Butt. It was in the last episode, the one that just played on Sunday. I have no idea. I wondered if you know what. No. No. It, That's it's, almost you as, it's almost as though the ghost of Dennis Miller is has is punching exactly. up billions. It's it's yeah. that's why yeah, I love cocoa. it. Cocoa butt. <laughs> the cocoa butt. Okay, the, some of us that grew up uh, in the '60s were fascinated for a while by professional wrestling. Not long before Dwayne the Rock Johnson was involved, or uh, right. or uh, Hulk Hogan. These were guys like Bruno Sammartino, Martino, Gorilla Monsoon. The Sheik and Bobo Brazil. And Bobo Brazil's iconic move to end his was the cocoa butt, where he would hit into somebody's forehead and daze them and then go after them and take them down. The right. cocoa butt mentioned in Billions just last week. Well, Mafi is a big wrestling fan. Yeah. He's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Dan Soder is great. Dan Soder is such a great actor, the comedian. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, for nearly a quarter of a century, ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He is a lawyer, a member of the Supreme Court Bar. He is also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, who saw Dr. King speak at Riverside Church. You saw the famous speech. Didn't I saw you? it the day later when I went to the United Nations. Oh, you saw it at yeah. the United Nations? Yeah. Oh, I, I said that. I mentioned that several times. I thought you saw it. I was not. Room. No, I knew I knew Bill Coffin and all the people that were at the Riverside Church, but I happened to, I go went up with busloads of students to the United Nations a few days later when yeah. he spoke. And that, that, that of course, was when he decided to link the demands of racial and economic equality with ending the war in Vietnam, which was very, very, very controversial. I don't think he would say right now, Biden's in a tough position. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't think he, I, just, I think, I don't think, uh, He'd say something along the lines of Biden's hands are tied right now. I don't think. I don't think. I don't think he would try to explain real politic and I don't know. <laughs> I'm just I'm just telling you what I think we know about Joe Biden. Right. That he's a man of limited courage and has ex and it has demonstrated that time and time and time again. Yes. And uh but perhaps, perhaps things would be different if uh, you were whispering in his ear. Right. I don't. Right. I don't know. Reverend, go to Reverend, go to BarryWLynn.com for a treasure trove of this man's writings and his appearances on shows like Firing Line and The David Feldman Show and John Fugel saying. Thank you, sir. Thank you. We'll see you Got next week. Got any advice? Final advice? I'm sorry. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, by the way, I'm taking a train tomorrow. I'm getting on a train. Really? Yeah. 
Where going, are you going? I'm going uh, upstate near Albany. Albany. Upstate. Albany. I'm going to be sitting on a train for two or three hours. I can't wait. Oh, yes, you can. I, I, you, can. Well, you don't love Amtrak? I do love Amtrak, but I thought, don't complain about spending two or three hours on the train then. Don't suggest that you don't like it. I love Amtrak. I, if I, 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 I could sit on a train forever. That's when I'm at my happiest, sitting on a train. That's great. I, I love mean, trains. I, I mean, love trains. Yeah, my, my friend, uh, uh, the late Utah Phillips, a folk singer and socialist candidate for the Senate from the state of Utah, when the war started in the Middle East, uh, he stopped flying anywhere. He stopped performing any place he couldn't get to on a train because he said, I don't get my salaries by dying, by having people die for oil. He just wouldn't get on an airplane because of all of the oil that it consumed at a time we were at war, allegedly over oil. But dying for diesel is okay. Yeah, diesel's great. And, and dying for natural gas is almost a sacrament. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you. I'll uh, see you next week. Stay out of Bye-bye. trouble, Reverend. Only, only good trouble. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Who am I missing here, Professor? There we go. Do we have everybody? It's the professors and Marianne. All right. I'm. right. Let's just get right into it. Let's uh, start with Professor Jonathan Bick. Hello, David. I, 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 I'm like stunned by what's going on in Ukraine. What, do you, what are your thoughts? What, what do you want to talk about? But I'd like to go around the horn just to get everybody's uh, responses to what's going on. This failure of diplomacy. Yeah, I- yeah, I, 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 we can't avoid this topic. Obviously, um, it's a tragedy. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, the actions that Putin is taking in Ukraine are monstrous, and uh, we, we have to decide the best way to end it. And uh, I, don't, I've come up with five different possible approaches. Um, I don't know if you want me to go through them. Yes, or we can yes, please. Them. Okay. All right. So the first one is that uh, save the funniest NATO one for last. Va- save the funniest one for last. Oh, the funniest one for last. Yeah. Oh, that's going to mess up my order. <laughs> <laughs> I was starting with the funniest one first, oh, which okay. was uh, NATO invades Ukraine and forces Putin out. Ah, um, that's this funny. is. Uh, obviously not a workable solution uh, because Putin has nuclear weapons and he might use them. If you think he's a madman, if you think he's mentally ill, uh, you want to be especially careful in considering this first option uh, because he's more likely to use them if he is mentally ill or if he's a madman. So I, I don't I don't think anyone here, I, I don't I don't want to speak for anyone, but I don't think anyone here is advocating that NATO, uh, you know, invade Ukraine and, and push them out, try to push them out. Uh, the second thing is a no fly zone. Uh, 
this, which has the same problem as the first, because as soon as NATO uh, or the U.S. enforces the no-fly zone, you're going to have a shooting war on your hands uh, between the West and and Russia. So uh, I, I wouldn't support that either. The third is that NATO and or the U.S. supplies Ukrainians with arms, um, which has been going on to some extent, uh, but you could increase that and um, hope that the Ukrainians are able to either defeat the Russians, which I think is probably unlikely, or cause enough uh, damage, enough deaths that uh, they rethink what they're doing and make it clear that they're not going to be able to take the entire country. Uh, the fourth approach would be to negotiate with Putin. Uh, Putin has said that he wants three things. The first is that Ukraine stay out of NATO. The second is that no new members of NATO be admitted. And the third is that NATO pull troops out of Poland. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, um, particularly given Putin's actions. Uh, you know, Poland's not going to want that, and it might not be wise. Uh, but if we offered him two out of those three, he might go for it. I mean, he's been saying for decades now that Ukraine, we will not tolerate Ukraine being a member of NATO. Ukraine expressed interest in becoming a member uh, the NATO powers expressed interest in Ukraine becoming a power, uh, a, uh, a member. This was a major reason for this conflict. And to ignore that or to try to dismiss that, I think, is nonsensical. Uh, the fifth uh, way I, I came up with to try to get Russian troops out of Ukraine is uh, to seize all assets of Russian oligarchs that support uh, Putin uh, that are outside of Russia. So everywhere, all the London real estate, all the real estate in New York, all the bank accounts we can find, all of the yachts that we can you know, find, all of the uh, sports cars and all, all the rest of it, private planes, etc. Seize that and say... We will return these assets if you convince Putin to get out of Ukraine or you get rid of Putin. Those are the five I've come up with. I'd like to see how people react to, uh, to that. Professor Ann Lee. I think those are all really good ideas, John. Um, I, I compress them a little bit more because I like nuance and uh, chaos. Um, I only have three. The first one is have the U.N. do everything. That is, have everything arbitrated through the U.N. And, and I agree with you. I think seizing uh, financial assets is great. Have the U.N. do that. And in fact, have the non-aligned nations be in charge of that because you know that they're going to seize every goddamn thing that's out there. <laughs> um, number two. Wow. Uh, Never heard of it. I mean, I, we don't get a cut? I agree with it. <laughs> well, indeed, that's the, the whole issue about non-aligned nations. Um, number two, uh, there's been some suggestion of a humanitarian corridor. 
that is to allow people to flee. And I think they should do that. I think you should create one between uh, Kiev and Poland and have it totally monitored by a whole bunch of NATO jets. So anything that wanders in there gets nailed. Uh, and uh, that will make it at least amusing. Uh, uh, no, it, it, I think that that actually a fully, because a no-fly on over all of uh, Ukraine is, is just an impossibility. You just can't do that. And uh, uh, thirdly, you know, the, oh, uh, I should also mention the fire is out or the fire has been controlled in that oh, nuclear reactor in the in the southeast of uh, Ukraine that was that got shelled. And and so they've apparently the, the fire crews in to put out the damn fire. Whoever launched the artillery barrage in the first place should be sent off to whatever the new Siberia is. Well, no, actually, it's probably Ukraine. <laughs> anyway, uh, and my third is uh, I think that uh, uh, Biden should be much more creative about this from a, a pragmatic Machiavellian point of view. That is, there should be peace, uh, ceasefire talks or peace talks and have Trump lead the delegation and have it located at Trump's hotel in in Istanbul because he can't pass <laughs> that sucker up, and so he's totally screwed because he can't he can't refuse to do it because he's going to lose the profits. So, right. and and it, well, anyway, uh, yes. So uh, comedy comes in threes. So I hope the third one was okay. Right. <laughs> Professor Hussein, and then we'll go to Professor Marianne. Well, I mean, um, I don't know what to say with these wonderful proposals, particularly <laughs> the latter, uh, the last one of Anne's that at least will have some, you know, Zelensky is a comedian. He might actually, you know, uh, enjoy that and uh, go for it. I just think we're... You know, gaming it out, I mean, it's also like how people often try and talk about the Palestine-Israel situation. Mm -hmm. Well, what if you drew the lines here? What if you did this? And that sort of minutia is really more important to get the people who have a real genuine stake in it uh, to feel that there's a real reason for them to negotiate. And I think whatever happens, um, there has to be good faith willingness to um, provide a solution and address the underlying causes, the longer term structural causes for this conflict. And the longer term structural causes are not about demonization of Putin, though he deserves it and has clearly, you know, committed war crimes like Condi Rice and others who are, you know, busy uh, condemning his war crimes. Right. Uh, I thought that was quite interesting. You know, that there's talk about hauling them to the ICC, an institution that the United States doesn't recognize and is not a party or signatory to. Great idea. But first, why don't we join it and then put in put Condi Rice and George W. Bush and Dick Cheney and uh, all those people first. Um, so I think there has to be some goodwill, some genuine desire um, to, you know, provide some structural solutions. And I think if there had been that, we wouldn't be where we are uh, already. So I'm, you know, a little pessimistic about the possibilities for negotiations. Maybe, 
you know, there's some sense that this really could spin out of control and that it's not being well contained, in which case perhaps that might motivate the United States and NATO to, you know, actually take this uh, seriously. But I think if there is to be a solution, there's going to have to be a way. Up oh, your. There's going to have to be a way to. Um, you know, convince uh, Putin, who I think has made a very big mistake here, probably miscalculated dramatically, thought uh, that, you know, the first couple of days of the invasion, Zelensky's government would get spooked and, you know, run off. Um, and now this is looking into, you know, Ukraine has been militarized. It's received a lot of support in arms. This is not going to be the cakewalk that perhaps he might have imagined. So there's going to have to be some way for him to extricate himself from this and feel like he's gotten something out of it, because otherwise it'll just continue like we've seen Syria, you know, like we saw Iraq, like we saw Afghanistan, you know. And what really disturbs me is that the American political establishment and the media are um, really got, have gone into this extreme war fever and what they're planning on doing, it seems, is number two, I think it was of Prof. Johns, um, which is basically creating the same, you know, a parallel version. So I'm speaking about this from the perspective as a Middle East historian. So you look at what's happened in the Middle East is that Russia's invasion in Afghanistan was an opportunity that was provoked, you know, um, they thought that they could create Russia's Vietnam, the Soviet Union's Vietnam. And so what did they do? They went around and recruited the most extreme, you know, religious fundamentalists they could find, promote them as freedom fighters, and from around the world, encourage the Arab Afghans to go as volunteers, equip them with, um, you know, high-tech weaponry, stinger missiles, and so on. And this is exactly, it seems, the plan now. Yeah, it's like yeah. a right-wing jihadist is basically. So what we're looking at is a right-wing fascist international. We already have had evidence that there are, you know, European and even some North American extreme far-right white nationalists who have gone to Ukraine, trained with the Azov Brigade. Um, and, you know, you have 10 billion flowing in aid. Biden just approved it. Drop of a hat. Let's send 10 billion um, a lot of it's going to be weapons are going to flow in to groups like C-14, extreme neo-Nazi groups, and it's going to create long-term huge consequences, it seems to me. You know, Hillary Clinton was on MSNBC talking about, you know, the scenarios almost gleefully, you know, that, well, you know, it worked once already with Afghanistan, yet there were some unintended consequences. Yeah, you mean like 9-11? So 9-11 is and the creation of a jihadist international, you know, that, um, you know, we had the whole war on terror, you know, invasion of Iraq as a consequence of it, etc. Unintended consequences. This is what happens when you play this kind of game. We've done it before, but it seems like we're not really learning our lessons. And what it means is that we're going to be willing to subject the Ukrainian people, the Russian people, uh, you know, to extreme suffering. And the whole world is going to suffer from this, you know. 
um, economically in, in many ways and the callousness, the crocodile tears, you know, for the people of Ukraine. I mean, my goodness. I mean, they just seem to be um, excited, it seems to me, about the potentialities and possibilities. And it's a very dangerous game. And if you look at it from the perspective of what happened in the Middle East, it has devastating and long-term consequences. So I hope that there will be negotiations, but it means that the U.S. has to you know, actually take them seriously. Um, that's the only group. Now, of course, we could sit and just demonize Putin and go on and on. And we don't have any you know, control over him. We do, however, I, well, I don't know if we have any control over our own elected right. officials. That's a big problem here. But right. theoretically, we are responsible. They're responsible to us. And we're responsible, not necessarily to talk about this from the, you know, Empyrean heights of how we should look at the issue, but actually what we could do to genuinely save lives. And that is, I think, push uh, our administration to allow those negotiations to go forward and not to try and stiffen, you know, Zelensky to completely, you know, play completely hardball. There has to be something because there are. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, there are already the expansion of NATO and many other factors since the 1990s um, have played a role in this. And we've played a role at each at, you know, at each um, step along the way, whether it was 19, you know, 1989, 1991 period or whether it was expansion of NATO in 96 through 98 or whether it was at the Bucharest, um, you know, kind of meeting where it was announced that, uh, you know, NATO would desire to and wants and intends to expand to Ukraine and Georgia. We saw what happened when Georgia, you know, we already had an invasion like this that happened. I mean, that one worked out better so-called for for Russia because Georgia you know, kind of capitulated quite quickly and he broke away two provinces from Georgia, you know, that had wanted to be autonomous. And so now they're separate. You know, what is it? Abkhazia and something, something else. So we've got exactly the same pattern. Maybe there's at least something that we could point to uh, is there might have to be autonomy for these two provinces where they can still have Russian language and so on. Um, you know, if we don't want uh, this to, to, to go on. So I, I think that's how I look at it, is we have to address the underlying, you know, problems first. Professor Marianne Cummings. By the way, I've agreed with everything you've been saying, Professor Marianne Cummings, except for the, uh, the uh, Azov, some stuff about the Azov Brigade. But you, you've... Uh, I, I come around to you. But you really should read. You should read. Uh, you should read uh, articles by people who actually do deep dives into this. Right. Uh, there was one article that really went into it in the Nation in 2014, and um, and Katrina Vanderhoevel has been writing extensively. She just wrote an article, I think, in the last month about something nobody here has mentioned yet in this session, referring to the Minsk protocols. You know, after the, uh, after the coup, after, the, uh, after a civil war was put in place, and the two rebel provinces close to Russia, on the Russian border actually broke off, there was a deal brokered by the EU and Russia 
and signed by the Ukrainian president. And this is 2015. This is after several months of the Minsk, civil war the has Minsk gone on. The Minsk agreements, right? The Minsk agreements. Yes, Minsk agreements. They're called the Green Minsk Protocols. Um, and uh, Katrina Vandervoven does a very does a deep dive on this in uh, a recent article of about a month ago. And they're still there. And it's still roughly, you know, what people have been talking about. You said the, the party, but in specifically it was about the Civil War. Both parties stand down, disarm. You know, we basically, every, everyone settles down and we start talking about how the provinces can get, uh, to, can get autonomy. But stay part of the Ukraine Federation. Don't know exactly what that means, but that um, Ukraine stays neutral. This is what Russia has been demanding for years. In other words, they don't join NATO. Um, You know, I I think that one of the two things that um, that Zelensky ran on, he ran on anti-corruption, and he also ran on reviving those talks which he did successfully, because as I pointed out maybe two weeks ago at the crisis.org uh, website, they, they plotted all the incidences from the last three or four years in the Donbass province in the Civil War. And it went down dramatically starting around 20, 2020. I think he was elected 2019. And I think it was November 2019. But um, anyway, so he was doing that. Now, of course, you know, the anti-corruption thing, I was just recently looking up, you know, why all of these people, all of our, uh, so, so many of, of our lobbyists and consultants and the children of prominent U.S. Uh, politicians have been doing business in Ukraine. And I get back to an article by Axios about the Panama Papers. Holy crap. Okay. The uh, politicians involved in the offshoring, uh, these, uh, uh, these offshore businesses, Nigeria has 10. There were a lot of Nigerians caught in Kiev this past weekend. Yeah, United Arab Emirates, 11. Honduras, 11. Russia, 19. Ukraine, 38. Including Zelensky, one of several politicians who is now was facing charges of setting up all these shell companies, you know, that uh, were connected to, I think, the production company from his TV show. Right. He's a a lawyer. Maybe he's he's not just a comedian. He's a lawyer. Maybe you also have to play the game. Right. As Mike Ehrmantraut explained in one episode of Breaking Bad about his days in a corrupt police department, everybody was on the take. There and everyone felt safe. One guy not on the take, everybody else, everyone else doesn't think. I'm, I'm just completely uh, uh, speculating at this point. But, you know, uh, that's it. I mean, uh, we have no moral authority, a zero moral authority in the world. We have absolutely taken a wrecking ball to international law. That's what we did with all our power after the collapse of the Berlin Wall. All our power, all our military power, all our economic power. We could have been a force for good. We could have been pushing people on climate, on economic justice, on racial issues. No. What did we do? 
we have just perpetuated nonstop war. Oh yeah, we were bombing this weekend. Anyone know where we were bombing this weekend? We were bombing in Somalia this weekend. Our proxies are bombing in Yemen this weekend. The hashtag uh, came up over the weekend, uh, trended a little bit on Twitter, not white enough. In other words, people's concerns about people, as Chomsky said, there are worthy victims and non-worthy victims. Even in Ukraine, I mean, thousands have died in that civil war. And, you know, when we declared in December, and I don't know why we did that, it was in an article, uh, Howie, Howie Klein has been having several guest um, writers on his, on his site, and one of them has been Eric Zeus, has been covering this Ukraine crisis for a number of years. Um, in December, the talks brokered by Macron between the U.S. and Russia, the U.S. flat out rejected the Minsk protocols. They'd never done this before. I mean, in 2015, the Obama administration was nominally signing on to them even as the Undersecretary of State was undermining all this. But nonetheless, you know, this that was a change. I don't know why. But we're stuck. It's going to be a negotiation, unless you want world, unless you want world war. Uh, it's going to be a negotiation. Then it's just going to be a matter of, uh, you know, PR, how you handle, and how the how the uh, how various social media has been handling it has been rather ham-fisted. I mean, I got a reprimand because I posted an article which I just saw on ESPN. I was just watching hockey the other day. Apparently, there are death strikes now, or death threats of NHL players who were right. born in, in Russia. And I, so I posted this. I said, how stupid and cowardly is this? And I posted it. And then Facebook took it down and warned me that was a strike. It was went against their community standards. Really? What community? Yes. I took a screenshot of that, and I posted it on my YouTube I said, you know, because I said, this is absolutely absurd. I mean, uh, hockey players are getting death threats. What do they have to do about it? Now, Russian students, university students here are getting harassed. And bull- what do they have to do about it? I mean, it's the worst thing we could be doing for students over here. I mean, we're supposed to be showing them an example. But anyway, you know what? Who cares about all that? War, war in Europe, big deal. Guess what happened yesterday, two days ago? Mike Madigan, erstwhile Speaker of the House in the state of Illinois, mm. Democratic Party boss, nailed, <laughs> got him. It was a 22-count indictment from the feds. Bam. And basically... Um, it was it, it was an op, it was an investigation called the Madigan Enterprise investigation, and uh, it was just basically uh, accusing him of using his power and influence to exercise and preserve his you know his, his law firm and the and enrich his buddies in his inner circle, and um, you know among other things. Now Madigan last year was was uh, voted he he. Did not succeed in being voted to be uh, to, to be speaker. That was a big deal. He stepped down as as Democratic Party chair. 
And that was over uh, accusations of sexual harassment in his offices and people who were associated with him. But this is something different. I mean, this uh, this indictment included the big one, which infected uh, four, uh, four million households, mine included, which was over the years, he was uh, his his underlings and his people were getting jobs at Con Ed, Commonwealth Edison. And some of them were like no-show jobs, like no one could figure out if these people did anything at all. And in exchange, uh, because ComEd is regulated, has to go through the state regulatory commission to raise rates, was able to raise rates on all of us. I mean, we were paying some of the highest rates of electricity in the country. So, you know, um, they got it. I mean, it was many thought that this could never happen. His statement was kind of funny. Um, I I was never involved in any criminal activity, Madigan said through his attorneys. (laughs) The government is attempting to criminalize a a routine constituent service, job recommendations. I mean, I wish I could write this funny. If I could write this funny, I could have your job, David. Oh, take it. Uh, anyway, let's go around and find out what else everybody wanted to talk about. Professor Ann Lee, what 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 else is on your mind tonight? All the talk of uh, explosions and just made me think of eating cabbage. Uh, so I I would remind us that we're supposed to have our our cooking segment. At the oh same my God, time. what what happened? And Dave and PA, am I? They didn't raise their hands. I know that is Dave and PA here. Raise your hand. No, it, I, I I think Joe in Norway is making cabbage. Oh, okay. I know. There we go. Sorry. Let's very quickly go to Joe in Norway for the cabbage cam. This is uh, the best, my favorite part of the week when. Either Chad and Dave and PA are making something, or Joe in Norway. Sorry, Joe. I'm a. Uh, and while we're waiting for Joe to sign on, we had a State of the Union on t- Tuesday, and we had elections in Texas on Tuesday. But most importantly, let's talk cabbage. Look how everybody starts smiling. Joe in Norway, tell us what you're making tonight. Good evening, everybody. Um, in uh, protest of the Russians rolling in their tanks, uh, I'm going to be rolling cabbage leaves instead. So I've been, uh, I quickly pickled a head of cabbage and, and um, vinegar, and I've got, I'm going to stuff it with rice, yellow lentils, and cashews. And I've got shiitake mushrooms to put in there and carrot and onion and garlic. Fantastic. Well, we look forward to you uh, doing this. And uh, might take more than an hour. Well, something tells me we'll be here. So uh, should we talk about the State of the Union? Should we talk about the elections in Texas? Uh, Let me go around and find out what. Uh, Professor Lee, is there something you wanted to talk about? Um, well, I think we, we had a little bit more uh, progress toward uh, 
forward whatever the select committee was doing. So there's a little bit more movement ahead in terms of getting John Eastman to cough up uh, emails. I think what was useful or interesting, the way that the media framed it, that in effect, it, it sort of um, solidifies or makes more concrete the fact that Trump actually committed a crime. I think that frame is becoming a little bit more solid. Um, Tell us who John Eastman and, is and what the uh, what the ju- a judge ruled in California that uh, you, working off a January sixth committee uh, brief that th- there was criminal fraud involved. T- tell us who John Eastman is and what John Eastman. Uh, former dean of law school at uh, Chapman University, uh, member of the Federalist Society, uh, wrote two memos, uh, one shorter than the other. Uh, Frankly, the second one, I think, was a cover my ass version to cover the first one, which is very short, but succinct about trying to uh, essentially uh, corrupt but do something uh, in a a very bizarre interpretation of the Constitution, and more specifically, um, the Electoral Count Act, uh, trying to suggest that Mike Pence had more power to do whatever that what was ostensibly a ceremonial duty. And uh, the fact is that it was, you know, it, it's clearly codified. Trump got very behind it, and there's so much corroborating evidence to show that Trump was in favor of it that essentially uh, uh, it is uh, it shows there's uh, there's something really quite actionable. Uh, and uh, what Eastman has been trying to do is to resist giving up more materials that discuss very specifically the the operation of these uh, of of uh, the kind of tactical elements of how to, to go ahead with the essentially what involves overthrowing um, or rejecting the election, throwing it back to the states, et cetera. The fact is, of course, that Pence resisted. And because he resisted for several days, this is the crux of what makes it um, uh, a kind of illegal activity because now we see all of these other elements around it where people are now you know, sort of confessing to what exactly was going on. We have a lot more detail. And so essentially the the select committee is, is just, you know, it's all due diligence. They're just moving continuously forward to try and get all of this, um, all the ducks in a row. The problem, of course, is in parallel, this is sort of revealed that, you know, either the DOJ is working incredibly secretively or else... Uh, uh, Merrick Garland has is not really doing what he should be doing in terms of trying to to, to line up an indictment, but uh, of Trump. But we'll see. Well, the January sixth committee, they 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 think the January sixth committee will make a criminal referral to yes. Merrick Garland, and he will be pressured to act on it, but he doesn't have to. So that's correct. So we could get, you know, we it's called, you know, it's fit. Uh, some people refer to it as Fitzmas, uh, where, you know, we, we got screwed again. We're going to get screwed again, and Trump will not yet 
But anyway. Right. Do you actually think, though, he will ever be put on trial? No, I don't think so. But, you know, there's always hope. Yeah. So, I mean, frankly, I, I, I think uh, I think Ukraine was there to help distract us from it. I was with just, all due respect. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, distract us from Trump and distract us from how feeble the Biden administration is on domestic issues. Uh, not keeping too many promises. It's hard to be a Democrat. It really is. I'm trying. Professor Bick. Uh, well, I just wanted to point out that, uh, you know, the U Ukraine uh, war is distracting us from something that is even uh, more dangerous, which is um, global warming. And, uh, you know, the new report that came out uh, saying that we have a very narrow window uh, in which we can try to avoid the worst aspects of uh, climate crisis and that no one seems to give a damn that countries are not taking it seriously. What, I mean, which, country is, in, which country in particular? Well, the U.S. for one, right? right. Uh, but uh, I would say most countries are not doing what is needed. Uh, they're not even trying to make an attempt. And, and if you think that this war in Ukraine is bad, I mean, w you know, when people can't eat, when people can't live in, in large areas where they're now living, because the temperature is so extreme that they die, uh, you're going to have conflicts all over the world. Yeah. You know, the people have got to take this seriously and have not. We can't just accept the government saying, oh, well, we tried. We tried to do Build Back Better, uh, but Joe Manchin didn't want it. So I guess, fuck it. We'll just let the board world burn. Right. And Biden can't I, bring really you can sit around and do that. You know, you're worrying about, oh, my God, Putin, Putin, Putin. Well, you know, there's not going to be a world left to inhabit in a few decades. I mean, people are. <laughs> that's that's a little uh, distressing to me. Biden can't even bring himself to just do an all out ban on uh, Russian oil. That's like the nuclear option to completely uh, stop the flow of what's killing us. And use yeah, this as I, you know, I watched the State of the Union address. I don't think Biden mentioned global warming at all. I mean, if he did, he must have done it in passing. But as it's the most important issue facing us as a country and as a species, we really have to focus on that. You know, and, and it's... Um, yeah, I think upsetting. the, the um, death rattle of American news as, as we shuffle off our mortal coil because of global warming will be the last headline will be prosecutors say they're close to an indictment of Trump. <laughs> be, of Trump, right? Yeah, we got him. This mm -hmm. time we got him. 
We're almost ready to indict. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Profe you had something else uh, before I go to Professor Hussein? Well, I, I, yeah, I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, nationalism is the real enemy here. This is where all of this is coming from. I mean, we should really uh, audit the resources of the world and decide as a people, how are we going to move forward together in a way that has some amount of equitable distribution so people can keep on living? This, this idea that nation states are going to uh, sort this out, each looking after their own interests and trying to grab as many of the resources as they possibly can is going to lead to our destruction. We've, we've, I know this sounds, you know, kind of way out there, but we've got to do, we've got to approach this issue differently than we've been doing for the past many centuries, or we're not going to survive. I agree with you 100%, but then again, I'm microdosing psilocybin. Professor Adnan Hussein, without nationalism, wouldn't we just break down into internecine wars between ethnicities and religious groups? Don't we need nationalism? Yeah, just to break up, uh, you know, <laughs> the other sources of conflict. Yeah, well, I mean, it is amazing how much... Um, conflict nationalism has created and produced. I mean, oftentimes people uh, bemoan uh, and perhaps Prof. John would be among them about uh, the terrible legacy of religion as a source of conflict. Uh, but in fact, actually nationalism, um, you know, is much more responsible, I think, for hostility and conflict. Um, when did and nationalism often you have religious you nationalism. I asked you about this that is, on Monday. Nationalism came about in the 19th century, essentially, right? Well, I mean, you could argue that the nation state as a form is something that developed over a long period of time in, you know, from late medieval through early modern European history, in particular places like France, England, you know, became nations and nation states. And, you know, a kind of system that ended up working itself out in Europe was globalized in the modern era with the breakup of... Um, land-based old empires, as well as the breaking up of colonial empires, um, and that the nation-state form um, did, wasn't well adapted, you might say, to sudden exportation in the aftermath of these huge convulsions that had already changed the, the world. And what it did was it created these expectations that you would have um, kind of common identity in order to have political rights. And I think this is a really big problem. I mean, that's not a good basis for political rights. I mean, I think Prof. John was correct when he was talking about how it's really much more important to take um, a global humanist perspective um, if we're actually to resolve the real problems that are facing us as we can't think about these as uh, problems that could be solved within uh, nation states. It requires a level of cooperation and a level of political imagination that goes beyond tying your particular rights to citizenship status within, within the nation state. Um, the other aspect of the nation state is that it was meant to be a solution to the wars of religion. It's true. There was this relationship between, you know, 
uh, Protestant and Catholic uh, countries. And in in Europe, there were many mixed, you know, polities that had mixed um you know, communities of uh, Protestants or Catholics uh, ruled by either a Catholic or a Protestant king. And this was seen as a source of conflict. And you had to have some resolution. The secular state was one way of trying to resolve the question or the problem of how you relate identity to, you know, political governance and political rule. And I think that's been the problem is that we shifted kinds of forms of religious identity into these cultural nationalist units. And that didn't work for so much of the rest of the world, including parts of Europe, where we had, you know, problems in the Balkans, you know, the World War One being touched off by, you know, the collapsing of the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire and the assertion of new national groupings in the Balkans. So what we're seeing here in this conflict is, again, a kind of contest um, over, well, we could talk about it as, as, as national identities um, being pitted against one another, uh, one that doesn't recognize the others at all, right? So this kind of expansive vision of the Russian empire. Um, but by the same token, what is Ukrainian nationalism? I mean, you know, Ukraine, uh, what I th think is really problematic here is that you have these extreme far right visions of Ukrainian national identity that themselves have a very distorted view of the history of that of that region that is clearly composed by many different peoples over a great long period of time of interaction. And all of those are being suppressed. And actually, it's being fueled increasingly. Look at the way it's talked about in the media is that how could this be happening in Europe? And we've even heard commentators. I mean, Ukraine is not a European polity. I'm sorry. It's a mixed polity that has a variegated history. It's part of Asia as well. And it's had peoples of various different backgrounds. But the way in which it's being talked about is as if this is something that's happening to Germany. And, um, you know, we even have, you know, commentators talking about how terrible it is to see, you know, um, Blonde-haired, blue-eyed, you know, blonde-haired and blue-eyed people suffering, you know, uh, war and devastation. I mean, this isn't Afghanistan and Iraq, as the as the you know uh, commentator said, um, because it's okay to have war and devastation there. That's what we've been trained to believe. Those people's lives don't matter, and there are places where, you know, there's places where peace needs to be preserved, and there are other places where violence can be exported to in order to maintain that. That kind of subordination. So I think um, I don't I don't find the hyperventilate. This is a great tragedy that's unfolding the way that it's being talked about every moment in, in our public media and by our leaders is not contributing to any real analysis or real solution. Um, and it is a huge distraction, as Prof. John was saying. Yeah, the really address it. The Washington Post had a piece. Uh, they collected about 10 correspondence talking about how shocking it is to see blue-eyed, blonde-haired Europeans uh, suffering uh, the way you would expect to see people in Afghanistan and Iraq. Very glib white reporters from the UK and, and the United States, CBS. It, it is shocking. The, uh, yeah. Professor Marianne, your thoughts? 
I, I wouldn't say that they're more racist than we are, but at least our racists do have some like media training. Like I saw some of those clips, like ABC News and NBC. I said, guys, do you know that this is like going on all over the world, right? That didn't seem to bother. I mean, they seem to be not self-aware at all. Maybe they should learn but, about Baba uh, Yar if they want to know what happens in in. <laughs> Ukraine. Well, you know, I, I was there was uh, some discussion a couple a few days ago, and um, there's some consternation in circles in, in the United States that some of our allies aren't quick enough to condemn Russia. And they showed a map of the world of all the countries that was not were not officially they were sent, sending statements of regret. We need to resolve this quickly, but they did not outright condemn Russia. I'm looking at this map. And I'm going, ah, oh, there's a definite correlation between the overall skin tone of this country and, you know, they're wanting to do that. Because as I said, right now, we're bombing in Somalia. The, I mean, this is not a new thing. It's been going on since the Bush era. And Amnesty International has been taking the U.S. to task for years because U.S. claims there's really no civilian casualties and... Uh, Amnesty International has been keeping a running tab on hundreds and hundreds of civilian casualties in this. And that just doesn't even get above threshold in our news media. And that, I think, you know, all the fun and frivolity on their, you know, uh, uh, these all these white people wringing their hands over blonde-haired, blue-eyed people getting killed. I think that's kind of the point. I mean, we've been doing this kind of stuff with impunity to people of darker skin from countries deemed as, again, as Chomsky would say, they are not worthy victims. But anyway, I was gonna say what's going on. There is weird things going on. So where's John Kerry? Apparently John Kerry has been go- has been attending talks with Russians on uh, the START agreement. What's the START agreement? He's our climate czar uh, though. It was, what's he doing talking about nuclear but, weapons? No, well, because that's been his uh, that's been his thing for years. I mean, and in fact, um, those talks are still going on. Uh, they are basically talks to limit strategic, the strategic nuclear warheads and to eventually get rid of all stockpiles of weapons grade plutonium. Uh, a few years back, I did a little calculation for one one version of our subcritical nuclear reactors wherein we uh, burned through the 34 metric tons of weapons-grade plutonium we, we allegedly have stored someplace in South Carolina. And, uh, and they revived it last year, 2021, until the next time uh, they revisited is 2026, so they're working on it. But, um, you know, I, I just uh, wanted to to change tack here because you did mention something earlier. We did have elections on Tuesday. Yes. Uh, during the, and um, I would love for Alan Minsky to talk about this further. It um, wasn't a very good night for the Democratic Party overall because the turnout in the state races for governor and attorney general and lieutenant governor was almost two to one Republican. And Louis Gohmert, Louis Gohmert did not win, sadly. P. Bush is in a runoff. You're talking about for, for, attorney, state, for attorney general, Paxton's job. Yeah, right. Paxton's job. 
So he, they go to a runoff. What happened though for progressives was a pretty good night. Uh, uh, Greg Caesar uh, was running in the 35th district. You know, uh, I think a new district that I think includes some of the Austin area. He mm-hmm. won overwhelmingly. So that's a very, it appears to be a safe Democratic district. Uh, Jessica, uh, Jessica Cisneros is going into a runoff with Quaylar. Quaylar, one of the worst Democrats in the House. Um, and, uh, you know, it looks pretty good. I mean, it was pretty close last time. This time, it was three. They didn't have a definitive winner, although there was one point where Quaylar near the end was a little over 50%, and then his numbers went down. David Wasserman has been following this, and he um, credits Quaylar's living to fight another day to a whole clutch of Trump-supporting Democrats in his district. Okay, go for you. David Wasserman has a very microscopic, you know, sort of analysis of all these districts. But his, right. I encourage people, if you really want to find out about this stuff, to go to his, uh, read his threads on Twitter. But um, the there was a third party, there was a third candidate who didn't quite get 5% of the vote. I looked at her website. She appears to be lefty. You know, she appears to be uh, like progressive. So, so maybe going to a runoff, those votes go to Cisneros, and we might have two very strong progressives in next year's uh, Congress. But anyway, would love for Alaminsky to talk a little bit more about that. Voter suppression in Texas worked? Might be a little bit. It might be just, I don't know. It's usually voter turnout can be a sign of overall enthusiasm for the party for the November election. Um, but I'm not that familiar with exactly what has changed over the uh, last several years in Texas to suppress the vote. Right. But, and am, um, am I wrong? Yeah, for... That could be. I mean, there's no doubt that could be. <laughs> and I'm wrong for rooting for George P. Bush, even his uncle W., endorsed Paxton, right? He couldn't get the endorsement from his own uncle. Yeah, well, that was, uh, he's uh, he's Jeb's kid. Yeah. He's with, like one of the little brown ones, according to his grandpappy. Right, right. Happy Bush. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. He was, wasn't he like agricultural uh, commissioner? I, I, I think that's what he is, yes. There was a great gal he used to have regularly on the show. She's running for, I think, transportation commissioner. Stone, yeah, railroad. She, yeah, Kelly Stone was running for yeah. uh, railroad commissioner, which is the most, like, more important than governor. That's what they do in Texas is they, they hide mm-hmm. all the power in lesser known jobs it's a it's a shell game uh and she's not ran she wasn't running this year was she i don't i don't know i, I, I don't have, think i have to check and find out if i'm on her enemies list or not uh anything <laughs> professor <laughs> ann lee anything anybody wants to bring up well i as uh as on was talking about you know this this whole issue of uh the com- complexity of, of ethnicity. Ukraine is incredibly instructive in the sense. And as as 
Marianne was talking about, you know, the coverage has been really problematic. Uh, but because I flipped back and in terms of uh, uh, mainstream media TV channels, uh, it is interesting that CNN has taken a little bit of effort to, to note the differences between um, uh, people of color trying to get over the the border, the Polish border, uh, and it's the Ukrainians that have the issue with with uh, people of color. The Poles don't, um, and, and and that was kind of fascinating to see the real differential. And and you know, as as problematic as the or as, as sort of limited as the coverage was, I think people really did get a sense that there was discrimination or bias in, in, in the way uh, refugees were being treated. Uh, on the other hand, they never mentioned the fact that, you know, it was mandatory conscription for, uh, or maybe they just talked about it too much and didn't sort of point out that, well, the Ukrainian government is taking every able male Ukrainian and sending them back in because they need them to grind and, you know, put them into battle. Um, right. But I'm writing something on 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 the, the problem of, of, of gender with the context of Ukraine because it, uh, wages and a whole variety of other things are incredibly problematic for Ukraine. I mean, they, uh, it is an incredibly poor country, despite the fact that it has pretty well built up cities. And it has incredibly, you know, widely variegated population in terms of, uh, you know, kind of work regimens and, and gender division is incredibly extreme. Um, but then again, I'm I'm more obsessed with the fact that they do screwy stuff like uh, put all of their they have a very big uh, female component in their army. Uh, there's something like fifty seven thousand women are are fighting, and there's an incredible tradition of of women soldiers that goes back to the Soviet period and and to the Great Patriotic War, and uh, it's just really interesting. I mean, there was like a a thing. In the middle of all this craziness, they, the, some of the sites are, are citing in, in 2021, there was a huge kerfuffle over trying to make women um, uh, recruits uh, march in high heels. It was just like... Was the that, I thought that was a put on. No, no. They were trying to get them to march. Yeah, because I think it, in um, former former uh, uh, Soviet bloc, they liked... And, and with all due respect to uh, certain socialist uh, republics, having women uh, uh, march in heels is, I guess, hot. <laughs> well, the, the French females say they can do every... French female soldiers say they can do everything Ukrainian female soldiers did, but backwards. It's a Ginger <laughs> Rogers. It's a, no, that's Ginger Rogers. That's Ginger Rogers. <laughs> And she wasn't retreating. It was, it's a, um, a lot of work there to put. <laughs> okay. but before we go, uh, the, uh, Poland, there were reports that uh, Poland was, uh, the police had intervened because uh, Polish white, na white nationalists were beating up on Ukrainians of color. There, there were some stories about that uh before we go you had mentioned uh professor hussein the right wing and somebody asked me somebody i really respect asked me how do you define the right wing like the international right wing the, these militia who are coming 
to fight alongside the Ukrainians from from France. Uh, what is the international right wing? How would you define it? Well, I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. One is, is that you have the concurrent rise of ultranationalists and fascists in their own particular national environments. The fact that it's happening at the same time all around the world suggests that there's some phenomenon that they're all reacting to and that they might have their own local forms uh, because, you know, nationalisms don't always collaborate and cooperate with one another. I mean, there's, you know, it's hostile. They have uh, unique ideas about their special, you know, place and destiny and history and so on. But the fact that it's happened, we've seen like in places like Hungary and, you know, Brazil and, you know, very disparate places at approximately the same time suggests that there is something, you know, broader than just what's uh, going on in their own particular n- nation. So it's ultra-nationalist, you know, groupings. The other component is a more, um, I would say, conscious um, internationalist orientation that sees, for example, race as the dominant, you know, so white supremacy, but broadly across different countries. But I would say even more a kind of expansive idea of, um, uh, you know, civilizational ideas. So somebody like Steve Bannon, for example, I mentioned this on Monday, somebody like Steve ba- uh, Bannon might not fit into some other programs of uh, far right uh, thinking because he actually thinks that there should be some overture and uh, collaboration between the Latin West, you know, and that tradition of Catholics and Protestants, uh, Western Europe and, and so on, with the Orthodox Christian Christians in a kind of more global affiliation uh, to confront um, other you know, parts of the world um, and incompatible civilizations, particularly Islam. So, you know, Islam has provided in the post 9-11 era a wonderful opportunity for providing white supremacy with a foreign policy, basically, is how I would I would say it. Um, so the, I think there's two ways to, to think about it. Um, as a conscious attempt at affiliating a a kind of united front against civilizational and racial and cultural enemies and um, a response, you know, to neoliberalism. And it's, you know, uh, I think Paul Mason had a very interesting, we talked about it with Dr. Harriet Fraud about a year ago, a very interesting analysis about how you might think of the contemporary ultra-nationalist, far-right, white supremacist, white nationalist movements as um, a particular problem of character, psychology, socio-psychology that responds to the disintegration of neoliberal personality that's no longer viable. Um, And so that's what it, you know, it turns to. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, Professor Adnan Hussein is the host of the Mudgeless podcast and Guerrilla History. How do people, uh, who, who are the guests this week? 
Well, uh, we just published uh, an episode with uh, Professor Dana Olwan on gender violence and the transnational politics of the honor crime. Very interesting book, and we had a great discussion. And I finished recording, and it will be out next week. Juan Cole, Peace Movements in Islam, a new book that he edited. Very interesting as well. Exciting. That's the Mudgeless podcast. That's and, right. And yeah, Guerrilla History mudgeless. is, who do you have on Guerrilla History? Well, Guerrilla History, we had an episode uh, just from less than a week ago about uh, the history of Russia and Ukraine relations going you know, way back and also kind of responding to and analyzing the Putin's distortions of, of, of history. Um, so looking at, at, at those relationships in a longer historical time span than, you know, the last few months. Give my best to Henry. Professor Ann Lee, read her over at the Daily Co's. Annie Lee, Professor Marianne Cummings is Parks Commissioner of Aurora, Illinois. She's an elected official as well as a physicist. And Professor Jonathan Bick, what are you teaching at office hours Friday night? Uh, well, we're going to do a, uh, it's going to be late, it's going to be at midnight, but a uh, guided tour of the Twilight Zone. Uh, it's an episode that is called The Shelter, which is referring to a nuclear bomb shelter. So I thought that might be appropriate given where we are today. <laughs> is this the doctor who is prepared? Oh, uh, uh, yes, yes, yes. That's a great episode. You remember yeah. that? Okay. Yes, I do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember him being That's the one. I remember it being great, but he was way too old to have a kid and a wife that age. That's how I remember it. But we'll see. To be discussed. Office hours, Friday night. We're doing twenty four hours of office hours. Joe in Norway helps produce office hours. Let's go to the cabbage cam. And tell us about your your meal and tell us about office hours. Yeah, so I'm just about ready to roll the cabbages. I made a tomato sauce and a filling of rice and lentils and a shiitake mushroom. So we'll be rolling that shortly. And then I'll submerge them in the tomato uh, sauce and put them in the oven for a couple hours. You, you and then office hours. Well, oh, hang on. I have to tell you, it's mesmerizing. When you start <laughs> cooking, everybody just gets this beatific look. What do we have for office hours? We have oh, me. Those, we, have, uh, we have uh, Texas Tom will be teaching us on peaceful dialogue. We have talks about climate change. Professor Hussein is going to be teaching. It's It's jam-packed, isn't it? Kelly in Nebraska will be giving a presentation on the Poor People's Campaign as well. Great. And Professor Adnan, will, if he, he's doing his course as well. I'll be bringing out my walk burner outdoors, do some walk cooking outdoors. Okay. Rain or snow. Fantastic. Provided we, we are not downwind from the nuclear reactors. Hoping well, for the, the uh, strong Arctic winds. The International Atomic Agency says there's no signs of radiation. Mm. So, no. When have they ever misled us about? Fingers crossed. Yeah. 
All right, there's Professor Harvey JK. We'll we'll keep you. I'm going to mute you, and we'll keep you. We'll keep watching your food. I know Professor Harvey JK is a foodie, and Alan Minsky is the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, and Professor Harvey JK is. I'm looking for the theme song here. Professor Harvey JK is author of numerous books, including Take Hold of Our History, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, FDR and Democracy. And they are going to republish this fall his very first book on the British Marxist historians. So we're looking forward to that. And here's the only reason these two show up. Misky and K, they go together like PB and J. Like Thelma and Louise, like Mac and Cheese, like Sacco and Benzetti, like meatballs and spaghetti. Allen's in LA, Harvey J's in Green Bay. When they get together, they got a lot to say, cause they're Misky and K. could do what Professor Mike Steinel does, I would be a very happy man. Go to MikeSteinel.com. Well, the aforementioned Professor Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky, let's get right to the State of the Union. We've been talking about Ukraine all day. I, I want to get your, your take on Ukraine and uh, the elections in Tuesday on Tuesday in Texas. But first, I know, Professor Harvey J.K., I know that you did a 180 after the State of the Union and you thought, this guy, this guy has got it. This, he is, they were right. He is the embodiment of Franklin Delano Rosa. Did I, am I misreading you? 
Yeah, I, I did a 180. I'm now standing on my head all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but you finally got the 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 Biden magic, right? And you he well, is you know, you know, Marx put hate Marx put Hegel up the standing on his feet and Biden put K upside down and put <laughs> me on my head. That's that's all I can tell you. So uh how was the State of the Union? How was how the State of the Union? Well, well, let me ask you first, how but, is before we get to buy? I actually have a pile of things to say and I want to get, but I may end up saying them out of order. Okay. But, but you had something you were going to ask me first? Well, how is, before we get to Biden's State of the Union address, if you could give us very quickly your estimation of the state of our union, how is the state of our union? The state of our union is critical. How is that? It's critical. <laughs> you mean we're being hypercritical? We should just be happy with it. You think that's it's it. okay? You know, okay. don't worry, be happy. That's it. Yeah. You, exactly. That's it. Right. Is it in all seriousness, yeah. before we in, get too in much of In all seriousness, the, the, the state of the union the other night, sorry, no, I'm cutting you off. I is it Is it as bad as I look? I'm looking at myself right now and I'm thinking if the state of the union is as bad as I look, we are this it's end times. Is the country as bad as are we Ukraine, the environment? Can it be as bad as it actually is? Can it be? Uh, yes, it, it can be. OK. And. Uh, no, look, I mean, everyone, I, I couldn't, I didn't watch the cable news commentary afterward on CNN or uh, MSNBC because I don't watch those things. But I, but I imagine that they all thought it was just a truly dynamic and, and he laid out a, a, an agenda. I mean, all the stuff that you would normally hear. And, and I, I just thought to myself, how can we be, how can it be anything else than, 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 crazy right now when no one no one talked to biden about what he needed to say they just let him do what he no but i think that they his writing team communications team literally just picked up all the crap of the past year chucked it into the state of the union message so he could cover every bay every Constitu every interest group the Democratic Party worries about could sit there and hear at least some reference to their concern. Well, um, except for, say, the half of the Democratic constituency that are uh, drowning in student debt, which didn't get mentioned once. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's true. But what I'm getting at is it, it with all of that, my point ultimately is he said nothing. That's the point. He said absolutely nothing except he repeated the failed agenda of the past year without talking about how we might move forward. And I, I want to be very clear that I found it. I found the speech utterly forgetful, except that I took so many notes that I've got it all up here. OK, go on. Let um, me hear. But, yeah. What else? Well, let, let me let me start with some examples of things rather than I'm going to start with precise things when he introduced this, the C, I assume the billionaire CEO of Intel to celebrate, to celebrate the fact that what Intel is going to invest $20 billion in some complex in Eastern Ohio. 
You know, all I could think of was and then and then went on to sell it to, to at least compliment or praise GM, but failed to mention that GM had just in the last few years shut down Lordstown, which probably would be in a 30 mile distance, a 30 mile distance from, where, from wherever this guy is going to set up the Intel. So that's first. OK, that's first. Then. But everything was a one line. It was like one lines, you know, like voting rights, uh, workers' rights, um, the, the, the challenge of women's choice, um, the trans stuff. I mean, it was like over. and It was just all this stuff. And, you know, people said to me, well, what, what do you expect? And I said, I expected them to have learned a lesson from this past year. I've been, you know, that maybe they'd have paid attention. Maybe somebody would bother to read a little history. Maybe John Meacham would realize that he gave terrible advice to begin with and, mm-hmm. and, and literally go back and reread history and come back and say, Hey, Joe, we gotta, we gotta take a different approach. In fact, the only saving grace of the speech the other night in those terms is I never heard the phrase soul of America mentioned once. Okay. But now having said that, I think there were alternatives that he could have made. Other presidents, you know, took the time to not only to have, say, the corporate billionaire up in the gallery. This has been a year of of worker activism. Why didn't he bring some Starbucks workers and put them in the gallery? Why didn't he bring some Kellogg's workers and put them in the gallery? Why didn't he bring Chris Smalls and put him in the gallery? Why didn't they bring a couple of miners from Alabama, put them in the gallery? That's just for, you know, Oh man, you're getting me angry. Now you get, whoa. Well, I'm angry. Every time I talk about it, I get angry. And how about this? How about if we're going to talk about voting rights? He doesn't say, he doesn't talk about, he talked about voting rights. He talked about the suppression of, of, of of voters uh, rights, but, why didn't he think about possibly telling the vast American electorate, especially those who feel threatened by these developments, what they might do? Like in the 60s, there were marches, right? Why not? When he talked about a woman's right to choose, why didn't he say we had a women's march when Donald Trump was going to be inaugurated? I'd like to see women turn out again and let people know. Why didn't he look down at the two what what's it Kavanaugh and uh, the woman you know whose name I always blank on but you know the woman with those eyes that kind of like haunting Coney uh, Barrett scary eyes yeah Coney Barrett I mean why didn't he look down and say you folks have no right to strip Americans of their rights that's not why the Supreme Court was ever created I mean that's what I would have liked to have seen and you know of course. It's sort of a fantasy, but it's not a fantasy. There would have been every opportunity to do something like that. So the State of the Union, it took us nowhere. It gave us, there were no marching orders other than pass this, put it on my desk. You know, you know, Congress can't pass. The, they're not going to get these things done. The voting right, they're not going to pass it. He could have also, by the way, called out. He could have said, it's not only the Republicans. We have folks in my own party who are standing in the way. Look. When he talked about the American Rescue Plan, there's this great line. I, I've got to I've got to refer to this. This is great. Okay. Well, how about this one? For the past forty years, we were told the tax breaks for those at the top and benefits would trickle down, and everyone would benefit, right? But that trickle down theory led to a weaker economic growth, lower wages, bigger deficits, and a widening gap between those at the top and everyone else in nearly a century. He might at least have apologized for being one of the neoliberals 
who was pursuing that kind of agenda. How's that? Right. Okay, could have said, we all make mistakes and it's time we did we, we made up for them, right? I mean, that's another example. And then the other example, this this is a great line. Wait, I got this. How about this one? How about this one? These are great. I'm not looking, this is what you're talking about capitalism, right? And once again, he had to tell us he's a capitalist. Well, by the way, he's not a capitalist. He's been a public servant on my and your taxpayer dollars right. all of these decades. He is not a capitalist. His job is not to be a capitalist. His job is to, to operate in the public interest according to the Constitution. But he says, I'm not looking to punish anybody, but let's make corporations and Americans start paying their fair share. I don't know if people realize the next paragraph, he practically lost it. Look, last year, he says, look, last year, and then he, he stopped and he said, uh, like Chris Coons and Tom Carper, my distinguished congresswoman, we come from the land of corporate America. There are more corporations in incorporated America than every other state in America combined. And I still won 36 years in a row. What the fuck was that about? But he's like okay. anti-corporate, like, like that, 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 that they voted for him, even though he's anti-corporate. Yeah, I mean, I, and he wasn't anti-corporate. No. I don't remember any occasion. I mean, he defended he defended the credit card companies. He voted in favor of probably raising the interest rates on people who are having trouble paying. I mean, this is just this was, you know what I mean? It's just and not to mention Chris Coons is the guy he talked about past the fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. And it's Chris Coons, who is one of the yo-yos for capital, who said no. Sorry. What not are you talking? No, no, I love you. This is great. This is your. This is amazing. This is you. You know what? I no longer feel guilty for the things I say about him. I feel obligated to defend this guy because I thought I would feel that way too after that speech, and I felt I thought no way. By the way, how about this? This is really good. I'm a capitalist, but capitalism without competition isn't capitalism. No, then it's just purely probably oligarchy. But anyhow, capitalism without competition is exploitation. One of my former students sent me a note. He said, what kind of garbage is that? It's too bad given, given the fact he was capable of forgetting lines and words when he said Iran one time instead of you know Ukraine. He, my student said, it would have just been smarter saying capitalism is exploitation, not capitalism without competition is exploitation. Right. It would have been good if the teleprompter, if some lefty was running the teleprompter and pulled those two out. Right. You know? So after the midterms, great job, Professor K. Are you finished? Do you want to keep going? Please. Mm, well, I don't want to keep Alan from offering something. He's, he's got food in his mouth. I only have one. I have to do because the food Joe's cooking looks too good. I have to eat. I, I know. He gave me a low blood sugar attack last week. I had to eat. Alan Minsky. Uh, yeah, I do have something else to say. Good. Yeah, no, I'm we gonna say right that. I'm going to let Alan digest no, it. Here's, here's the condition for who we support for president in 2024. They have to agree that Harvey J.K. is one of the writers for the first State of the Union address they give, given his professional qualifications. I think that should be a that should Amen. Be right there. Amen. Back to back to Professor K. Okay, so I, this so I sent this note around. I sent this note to friends high and low. In sum, Biden said all the right things and he said nothing. He offered a checklist for for the Democratic base, except he called for more dollars for police. But he advanced no story, no vision. He didn't speak of how rights were won, and that to defend them requires us to fight to enhance them. So. You know, it's, 
What a night. It was just such a... What a disappointment. Yeah. You know, he was a disappointment the day he took office. There were yeah. a lot of executive orders he signed that, you know, I, I should review those next week. And he came in, there were, there were some things he's done. But uh, we have to start defending him, don't we? We have to start saying nice things. Do we, Alan? Um, you know, I was, um, I actually had a, a meeting with some people from the White House around, uh, they wanted to talk to peace organizations around um, the Ukraine and, uh, you know, share their thoughts, hear us. Um, and that was right before the State of the Union. And I was very focused upon what the messaging would be around Ukraine. And I, I suggested in the in that call of these thoughts I had things that I thought fit with where he was on on the Ukraine and ways he could amplify the message. And um, and so I was ready to do some very positive tweeting out, uh, especially thinking obviously from that call that a heavy portion of the speech would be about the Ukraine. But I think they said he moved on within eleven minutes or something, ten eleven minutes, and then the balance of the uh, talk was not about the Ukraine. And I was very frustrated, um, especially once he got past the Ukraine. Um, it was, um, again, no mention of student debt, almost no mention of the climate emergency. Like, I don't think climate change or the climate emergency, I think they, the phrase, some phrase relating to that with the word climate was used once. There were policies he pointed to that clearly were motivated by the reality of the climate emergency. But again, very, very little said about that. And um, given where we are, given the IPCC report that came out this past week, that in itself is pretty stunning. And given that he didn't talk that much about Ukraine, it wasn't on account of it wasn't on account of the Ukraine that um, um, I'm going to take this from a family member. I'm a little worried. I, I can um, pick up. I want to pick up one of the things Alan said. Well. Something I did forget, and Alan sort of reminded me by saying what he didn't talk about. Just imagine if he had been up there and he reached into his jacket pocket and pulled out a pen, right, and said, tomorrow I am signing an executive order that literally absolves our young people of the student debt that we have accumulated in this country. I mean, just think of the thing... It, they needed look. They didn't need and me. He can do they, that, they needed a, right? some Hollywood director to come and talk to him. He can do you that. know the drama of the moment. Make it you know do it right. I'm I mean, think of the things he. As I said, the people he could have had in the gallery could have held up the pen on this. He could have talked down because he's up above them. Talk down to the Supreme Court justices and tell them what what the Constitution actually provo- was intended to 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 do with the Supreme. You know empower the Supreme Court to do, that you do not strip Americans of their hard-won rights. I mean, there are lots of things that could have happened and didn't do it. He was brought... Is everything okay? Yeah, it's okay. Sorry, it was my sister I wanted to pick up. By the way, she did call me, though, because I don't know if you've seen it or if it's been brought up um, on this uh, show so far, but um, apparently there's some... Uh, attack that's occurred on the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. Yeah, they put it out. They put it out, and the Atomic Energy 
International Atomic Energy Commission is saying no radiation has spread. So good, good. That's that's what good we've heard us. so far. But then again, I'm getting my news from Russian television, RT, and <laughs> they're now out of business, by the way. But you would you wouldn't think that they'd want to this one I think is is in eastern Ukraine. It is the largest nuclear uh power plant in Europe, the third or fourth largest in the world, I think. And um, yeah, it would be very stupid to do that to the Russian population because I do believe the tendency with the way the world turns is that would all go to the east right. as much as much as it did with Chernobyl. Right. But then Putin would have said that the, that the, uh, the Ukrainians basically blew it up to, to send the stuff their way. That would have been the top of the news on right. RT in, the, in Russia. Let, let, let's pivot away from Russia temporarily because we've been talking about it all night and I definitely want to hear your reaction. I, I'd like to find out if you're for or against the invasion of Ukraine and just making light of tragedy. That's what we do here on the show. Let's get back to the midterms. Texas had primaries on Tuesday. Professor Marianne wanted to know what Allen's take was on the uh, congressperson who was who won in Austin, the candidate who won in Austin. We have a socialist, and he's great. Greg Greg's a great guy. He's going to be fantastic. Very um, uh, does not uh, pull punches. Uh, very forthright and direct. Um, uh, and you know, the, it was also an effective uh, representative for his constituents on the Austin City Council. So he's going to be a very good congressperson. And, and I also think he'll, I, I think he will also be a very high profile congressperson in that Austin is obviously, you know, a considerable political and media center in the country. Cisneros? Cisneros is, um, you know, I don't know if people looked at it, but um, Cisneros, uh, two thirds as many people voted this time as last time in it. That's what happens in off year elections. And I think Bernie being on the ticket helped her a lot last time. What helped her this time is that the district expanded into more of Metro San Antonio. Um, obviously, a lot of money is going to be thrown at it. A lot of money has already been thrown at it. First, you know, just stepping back from it, what an insane political system. I mean, look at how much money was in that race already. Now, divvy it up per vote. How much does each vote cost? It's insane. Okay. And a lot, it's unfortunate she didn't win on the first ballot because. Um, now a lot of money and energy from the progressive left will go back into that race as, as opposed to into other races. She definitely has a shot. Um, and, um, she has an opportunity to introduce herself. Uh, you know, when you have a primary in March 1st, uh, in, in, in an off year election, that in itself is part of the incumbent protection racket. Right. Yeah. And, and so she gets to now go, uh, you know, Twice as really, she had about seven weeks to campaign since the district was set. Now she gets about nine to ten more weeks, no more than that, eleven about to campaign. So considerably more time. I think she can win it. It's it is going to be a very high profile race. I don't think it's going to sneak up on anybody at this point. Um, and hopefully she'll pull it off. And it's going to be very low turnout. The expectation in the primary runoff now. Don't forget Beto was on the ballot. There, there was a gubernatorial primary on the ballot. Oh, by the way, that money did produce results. Look at how many people voted in Kassar's race in Austin. Turnout is so low, which is why it's so important that however many people are here, 
uh, watching this on all the platforms. If all just y'all just got active, you know, we can win a lot of these races around the country. This is low hanging fruit, folks. Is it apathy? Is it apathy or is it voter suppression? I mean, it's the long term trend of people feeling like the representatives they have don't represent them. They don't directly address the issues that they face in their lives. But what about these draconian laws that they pass in Texas to chill the voter turnout? Well, really, a lot of the mail-in ballots were rejected because of how difficult they are to fill out. And, of course, that was a Republican push because the Democrats, and we all know, used them last time, and Trump discouraged their use. And right. even though in the past Republicans voted heavily more by mail, uh, they can't think past the, the last year or so of the political narrative, last two years. And so they were pretty much making it very difficult. That's not assumed to have hurt Cisneros. It's actually assumed that that probably would have hurt Cuellar to have was more of the vote would have been mail-in from his camp. At least right. last time she won election day and lost in the mail-in vote. So you have you know, to be over that. 65 to qualify for a mail-in vote. I would assume um, that would skew Republican in Texas. It would also skew conservative towards Cuellar in that district, of course, too. Yeah. yeah so yeah. and all that stuff. Are we saying it was a good day? It was a good it was a good day for progressives. It was good getting Kassar. He's definitely now squad number seven. Member number seven. And he's okay. and and is then, he going to uh, win? Oh, it's a runaway. It's, it's, it, he, we are the, the progressive left are, are the beneficiaries along. Yeah, uh, they pack so many Democrats into these districts and their gerrymandering strategy. There's no way he's going to lose. So I mean, one scenario that wouldn't be, I mean, we're looking at a catastrophe for the midterms for Democrats. Would you agree that it would be not so bad if Pelosi lost the House and went away and and we lost some Democrats but gained uh, a good number of DSA? We, we built out the squad. There's and a it, lot that's very bad about the scenario you described, and then there's obviously stuff that's better. Well, what potential? Now, what What do you think? A best case scenario? What What? How much could we increase? Not necessarily the squad, but the DSA, the 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 far left, the, the almost oh, at well, one time non-existent. We, we, well, I mean, yeah, there actually have been a few of the candidates who looked like they were going to have a good shot to win. Like in Yarmouth's district in Louisville, where there was a good uh, you know, Justice Democrat endorsed that whole district. And then Cooper's district in Tennessee, the Republicans blew those districts apart. Not so much Yarmouth's district, but the way it's it's organized now is not the best for the left candidate. In Tennessee, they just completely split the whole district up and blew it apart. Um, so they anti-gerrymandered that packed in district around Nashville. So they lost, we lost a good seat we would get there. I think we could really come out of this with about uh, doubling the size of the squad. Is, is You know, Cisneros wins, let's say, and then Summer Lee wins. There are a few other people. Love Senator Vincent Fork down in Georgia 13. He'd be an interesting to see if he gets included in the squad because he's 65. But he's fantastic. Nina has a shot. Don't think Nina doesn't have a shot. You take the national focus off of that and leave the people of Cleveland to their own, then you might see that uh, – you know, Nina Turner is a more popular person there than Chantel Brown, um, and that the politics are more attractive. So we could come up with 12, 15 squad members, and then just a generally 
more progressive caucus. Now, I didn't maybe a scoop to the folks on the Feldman show. I don't know if you've heard this, David, but there's a lot of uh, speculation, more than speculation, that if the caucus does shrink and it's more pronounced in being progressive, that Pramila Jayapal will basically move out Kathleen Clark and become the progressive standard bearer to challenge. Oh, in the middle of a scoop, he's frozen. To challenge whom? I would say Nancy Pelosi. But he's frozen. Oh, my God. Yeah, see, I don't know what he ate, but that sure did it. It's the curse of Clarence Birdseye. Once again, Clarence Birdseye <laughs> strikes again. Birdseye. That right-wing <laughs> troll. Well, uh, what were your... But I want to give you... Here's some good news out of Wisconsin. We have had so little good news politically. So... The Supreme Court of the state of Wisconsin decided that they would accept the governor's proposal regarding redistricting. So as a consequence, it's it's more likely the Democrats will not lose a seat in Congress from Wisconsin. And it may actually position the Democrats to take away one of the Republican held seats. And it may actually lead to a, a larger caucus of Democrats in the House and in the Senate and Assembly in the state legislature. And I can tell you, given what's been the case since Scott Walker 2010 victory and the Republican hold on the legislature, that, that that's a real development in Wisconsin. Right. And you just got to keep was, grinding away yeah. and look for your victories and, and yeah. keep fighting. Was there ever a time you were optimistic about the way things were heading in this country? Um, well, yeah, I I, I told my students, and I think I've told you before that if you had asked me, this is a sign of optimism, if you had asked me even in the, even in, even in the Nick, well, especially in the Nixon presidency years, I think it would have been, let's take 1970, 71, you know, as the, the dates I'm talking about. Um, I, I, I assumed we'd have, we would have going to have national health care, you know, by the mid seventies. Right. I, I figured it was a done deal. And that's, that would have been a real sign of progress in terms of social welfare. Right. Um, I, mean, Alan, excuse I think prior to this. Yeah, go ahead. Go take it. Go back to Alan. Go Let's back go back to, to your that's scoop. Alan. Alan. Oh yeah. So um, yeah. Pramila Jayapal. Um, a lot of people believe that she will challenge Hakeem Jeffries to be the next, uh, leader of the party, if, you know, the Democrats don't get the majority, the caucus shrinks in size and is conspicuously more progressive, all of which right now sort of are the odds on likelihoods for um, where things will end up. Um, I'm a little bit more hopeful about uh, holding on to the House. Uh, it's I wouldn't say it's odds on that it will happen, um, which, you know, goes back a little bit more to the way that the like the mainstream press and the public are processing things like Biden's speech. Um, and again, a lot of that is just, it's just, it's the shallow end of politics. Um, but Biden is, is, is seen. I mean, I, I don't know how many people I've spoken to, but they'll say things to me like, you know, my parents are watching him and all they can say is this guy shouldn't be president. He's way too old. He's way and too old to be president. These are older people saying this. Oh, this is what's being told to me. Yeah. yeah. And we talked to, I talked to a lot of people about this and, um, um, you know, and obviously I'm, I'm, I'm anti-ageist. I, you know, I would love 
I, I'm very much in favor, I'm a huge advocate for Senator Vincent Fort getting into Congress and with him for a lot of our partner organizations, PDA's partner organizations like Justice Democrats, love him. But I do think there's sort of an implicit ageism in what they're doing. It'd be great. And of course, they all endorse Bernie, right? But I'd love to see them to endorse a 65-year-old candidate, not only and be endorsing people who are, you know, 45 and younger. And, um, but, you know, there, there's that. And then there's the reality of how Biden appears to people. And, um, you know, especially on the international stage with, you know, he's, the, you know, in the first 10 days of the Ukraine-Russia crisis, um, there hasn't been that much of a bump for him. Usually when these things happen around the world, the U.S. president gets a big bump in poll ratings. And I think that goes to, again, what what is it about presidents that gives them that bump? Again, very shallow, uh, but not an insignificant element of American politics is does the person look strong? Does the person look authoritative? You know, they're looking for that. At least that's what they tell the pollsters they're looking for. Uh, no reason to believe that they're lying. And it's, uh, you know, probably... We're probably overreading it in, in our politically correct way, uh, you know, thinking that people don't think like that about, you know, leaders during uh, times of international conflict. But that's what people tend to be looking for, what the pollsters say, and Biden wouldn't come through on that front. And this makes him, I think, to a much greater extent than was exposed uh, during the campaign, where I think uh, the COVID pandemic provided him with, yeah, Bernie is in great shape, by the way. Um, even Ooh. after the heart attack, I don't, I don't think Bernie was that vulnerable to this kind of thing. And um, with Biden, um, well, what, I think why, he, the, why did COVID, you bring up Bernie? COVID oh, somebody in the chat. <laughs> you know, I can't get the chat off. It always pops up on this image yeah. of my screen. But it's interesting because I was thinking of Bernie what, right when you said that I was thinking of Bernie. Uh, there, there are all sorts of 80 year olds, 85 year olds who are full of energy. But, you know, this is not Joe Biden's fate right now. And he's the president. And. Um, you know, I was disappointed in the State of the Union address, especially once he pivoted off of Ukraine. Um, but given what I've known about Joe Biden throughout his career, I'd still say on balance that he hasn't uh, been overly disappointing to me as president. I do think that the pandemic had opened up a space for a more progressive domestic policy a set of proposals that his administration was championing um, in terms of Build Back Better. And it you know, really was the fact of Cinema and Mansion blocking it in the Senate that kept it from going into being law. Um, but um, yeah, he's, he's not a strong candidate going forward. I don't know what can be done to make him a strong candidate. Somebody, I won't say who, David, that you and I both know told me that they were privileged to um, information about Joe Biden going back to 2014. He had one of these pay for speaking engagements. He was getting about it one-fifth the money of Obama, but, you know, people are paying a good amount of money. He'd show up and he'd speak. And the people who would organize the event paying, you know, top dollar to get this guy to speak at their event, they were told um, after he talks, just one question. That's sort of all he can take. That's 2014. 2014. Well, so, well, hang on. He was still vice president back then. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, 2018. 2018. 2018. 2018. In the middle, in the middle of the term, in the middle of the Trump term. Sorry. It is. Yeah. It's it's really just stunning what Clyburn and Obama and yeah. Beto uh, and Klobuchar and Buttigieg forced down us. And of course, Elizabeth Warren, who did not endorse Bernie. It would be a different story if Elizabeth Warren uh, supported Bernie. 
so alternative history. Was Bernie, Bernie was Bernie there on Tuesday night? I never saw the. I never. I never yeah. saw him. No, he wasn't. He but wasn't. I think that was all done so that people could sit um, every other seat. Because the camera went to Warren occasionally, but I never saw Bernie. Okay, that's good. Okay. If he were president right now, because there there's no left infrastructure in Washington, they'd be eating him alive. Unless he would ha- he would have to have he'd have to be wildly popular. His approval rating would have to be through the roof. But they would have done to Bernie what Tip O'Neill and Teddy Kennedy did to Jimmy Carter, and they were right for doing it to Jimmy Carter. <laughs> Glad you realized that finally. Yeah. You did teach me that. You did. <laughs> yeah, I see yeah, I, I see the I, I say the, it so uh, glibly uh, as though it's just <laughs> poor, you know, tripping off my tongue as though I'm Yeah. You've taught me to hate all the right people. Including Henry Wallace. I, my mother's mad at you. I never told you to hate Henry Wallace. Adley please. Stevenson. Well, Adley Steven Adley Stevenson was the problem. Okay, yes. And George McGovern. McGovern, I, I've always been very suspicious of McGovern. You've taught me so many. I'm so grateful for all the people the, the, you've the taught war, me to hate. The, the war, the war, my take now looking back on it is the war and anti-war positions um, had a lot of people looking at what was left and what was right away from what had sort of defined it economically in the preceding few decades of American politics. So the Vietnam War shook yeah. that up. So, so there's this perception of McGovern being on the left where he really wasn't that Yeah. So what if a president says vis-a-vis Ukraine, I didn't get elected to be a wartime president. I got I'm focusing on minimum wage, student debt, free college tuition, Medicare for all, the PRO Act, climate change. Get Putin on the phone and tell him, do not F my presidency. I mean, is is there a way to to solve Ukraine uh, judiciously, expeditiously, surreptitiously, and fortuitously? That last well, one didn't work. You know, we, we were pretty successful. I think we need to bring back the Dulles brothers from the 50s. I think, you know, they were pretty good at setting staging coups against folks they wanted removed. Right. And I I, I think it would have been great if, we, you know, we could invest billions in a good coup in in Moscow, I would think. Well, come on. They would have tried that. Didn't they try to get Stalin and Khrushchev? Um. <sighs> Maybe they got Stalin. Maybe they got Maybe they did, right? Those, the those old, are the uh, Jewish doctors who got Stalin, as I understand. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was um, my. Uh, we we can keep we keep try to keep anti-Semitism out of our out of our conspiracy theories as best we. Well, that's a good. That's a good. Isn't that a feather in their yarmulke? <laughs> a feather in their well, skull cap. A feather in their skull cap. I I didn't. I'm sorry. I'm tired. <laughs> Oh, it's not yeah. easy um, not being the, funny. Um, um, uh, yeah, we Putin, get you at your best. Putin is, is um, uh, one can only imagine, rather paranoid about these matters and probably thinks, uh, 
ahead as, as much as anybody could. Now, maybe that just discourages the effort or the attempt because everybody assumes he's so wily and so on top of these things. Um, but, um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of thinking. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of ways we can speculate what Putin's thinking might be about his actions and his actions over the last 10 days and two weeks. Um, but not the least of them is the old idea that we always heard throughout the Cold War that the Soviets at the time uh, would um, exploit any president they saw as weak. Um, and then, of course, this is the argument from the right wing right now that we're hearing. This is why he's doing this. And um, again, sadly, this seems to have some resonance in the poll numbers that um, people are, uh, there's apparently a very large number of Americans. I don't know if it's more than half, the vast majority of Republicans, of course, but not an insignificant number of Democrats who believe that this wouldn't be happening if Trump was president, either because Trump would be a strong president or because, well, why would it be happening? Because Trump and Putin would be in league and something else would have been worked out or whatever. Right. And he wanted to dissolve NATO. That he he, he would have said, he, I, from what I've read, he was planning to wait till he was reelected to announce that he wouldn't uh, allow Ukraine to join NATO. Would that have been the worst thing for a um, president to say? Look, you, you, we love you, Ukraine, but. We're going to protect you by not letting you into NATO. That's that's. Well, look, as of right now, the it looks like NATO is tremendously popular with all the Western European countries and is not going to be dissolved anytime soon unless the United yeah. States tries it. But if the United States tried to step away from it and it was under a president like uh, Trump and assuming that you don't yet have, say, a Le Pen government or something in France, then I think you would not. Uh, you would maybe see the Europeans form that alliance in the absence of the United States. But, but NATO's again, popular. Logic, the old Putin, West, Putin hmm? made NATO popular. Yeah, absolutely. That's what's happening. Yeah, that's right. So, and solid. The main thing is surprising solidarity. Well, the other thing, though, this is the thing, though. Okay, somebody just wrote in the, you know, we're attacking Biden too much. I don't think that a lot of the best ideas that we can put forward right now around this conflict in ways that they could be resolved are things that Biden wouldn't maybe embrace. Now, there's a lot about him and foreign policy that, of course, I feel is nowhere near the kind of policies I would promote. But if there is this, and this came up um, in the previous uh, segment you guys had, you were talking about the authoritarian right across the world. Uh, you have it in you know, Hungary, you have it in India, you have it in the Philippines, you have it in Brazil. Certainly Putin, right? Um, and um, and then you had Trump in the United States. If there is this struggle going on between authoritarianism and democracy, and by the way, the Republicans winning the Congress in the midterms, going to be a big feather in the skulk, <laughs> sorry, in, in the cap of the, wouldn't be that way. So maybe, I don't know, where Israel fits in all this is another question, right? Um, in the authoritarians, because... That's the moment that the Chinese Communist Party says, look at the American political system. It's completely dysfunctional. You got a split government. They're not going to be able to do anything. They can't respond to crises. Right. They're. Um, well, but uh, hang on. Well, this is interesting. That's what Putin thought. He right. thought we were divided. He thought NATO was divided and we wouldn't come together. I'm hoping that Biden 
I have a lot of problems with how Biden is handling this, but I'm hoping that the the economic sanctions, the unity will minimize the damage here. Uh, I I think the Chinese with Taiwan uh, underestimate uh, the West's monolithic unity, don't you? When it comes to. Um, well, I mean, the point I want to make right now, though, is this is a these past 10 days with the world um, rallying behind the Ukrainians. It really is a signature moment of why people would rather live in a democratic society than an authoritarian society. Right. No checks and balances on Putin from him pursuing this war. Um, whereas uh, in, in Ukraine, they're talking about they live in a free society. They live in a democratic society. Zelensky is not coming off as, as at all autocratic, uh, as rather in harmony with the sentiments of his, of his people. And uh, it's very much a, a, a moment where the appeal of democracy uh, you know, can really be foregrounded. And it's an opportunity to, again, with Trump's defeat, Biden's victory, Again, a good moment for democracy there. Again, with all understandings of the ways we don't love everything about Biden, still great moment for democracy with Trump's defeat. Of course, we should go about strengthening democracy domestically, probably through executive actions. I would encourage him to do that in light of what's going on with Ukraine and Russia. Am I missing world- something here? Let me ask. It seems to me that in 2001, America wanted a war of ideas, an actual war against Islam, a war against the Middle East. And we went out looking for two wars and we got them. We started two wars. It feels, huh? And it feels, it feels right now, it feels like America is looking for a war of ideas with Putin and is is strutting its stuff not quite militarily yet and the people who are paying the price the pawns in all this are the five million ukrainians who are going to end up as refugees it seems like it feels like that blinken and biden and uh that they you know, it was like, bring it on, Putin. Does it, do you get that sense? Who? Who? Both of you, that this no. could have, you don't get the sense that Biden and Blinken could have negotiated, d- d- done diplomacy to, to, to tamp this down? Well, yeah, I mean, it is strange, because if, if you had said, take the two provinces, right? Let's say those two provinces leave Ukraine. Take the two provinces and leave the cannoli. Yeah, you also, then you'd have, that would be sort of a win for the pro-European forces because Ukraine would clearly then become a majority pro-European. Where uh, was the the diplomacy, Alan? Did you see diplomacy on our side in the lead up to the invasion of Ukraine? Did you, Blinken was sent home from Geneva after Putin recognized yeah. the Donbass provinces. Don't, isn't that when you start talking, 
Did you see diplomacy? I maybe I missed you know, something. The problem, the problem with this conversation, there's a problem with this conversation that in in the crisis moments of diplomacy doesn't take place around a table unless uh, unless they've already arranged things. It takes place by way of phone calls and communiques. It doesn't take place around a table. Never does. Absolutely never does. Well, Macron yeah, is talking. Yeah. Macron talks oh, wait, to Putin. But, so wait, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not finished. The, and in the lead up to this, it's, it was striking. I, I, when I heard Biden, maybe it was in that long press conference or somewhere, respond to the question of, of Ukraine. What I got was that he didn't, he wasn't clear in his mind and in his voice. It just wasn't clear. And you can't, you, you can't be unclear on those kinds of things. This brings me back to the question of whether or not he, I know that he handled, you know, a long press conference, but I, I don't think he is up to the presidency. And I, and I want to stand by something I've been saying for months now, he will not be the candidate in 2024. And the, and the question would be who would be, because when I saw the camera go to Harris or Buttigieg, it scared me even more. Hillary. She wasn't in the room, though, right? <laughs> no. But don't you think Hillary is salivating? Maybe. Doesn't make me feel good about it. No. You know, they're, they're talking about, um, you know, uh, Chelsea Clinton versus Ivanka Trump uh, for president, a good contest for president coming up soon. And that just makes me feel very sad for Jenna Bush. <laughs> For Jenna Bush, yeah. who's out there every really? morning, <laughs> out there every yeah. morning, oh, keeping it real oh for God. us. All right, I'm taking a train tomorrow. I can't wait. Where are you going? Go to Albany, yeah. visit a friend, and I'm going to sit. Very on, nice. And I love taking the train. I'm looking forward to it. Well. Professor Harvey J.K. is the author of several books, including Take Hold of Our History, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, and uh, his FDR and Democracy, countless books. The new one coming out in the fall is your first book, History. Everything Old is New Again. Everything Old is New Again. Your History of British Marxist Historians. Yeah. And the British Marxist Historians, right. Follow him on Twitter at Harvey J.K. Alan Minsky, executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. What do you think of Joe in Norway's cabbage cam? I have to say, it's it's amazing to watch, isn't it? Well, I think yeah. I think that, uh, yeah, I think if the precondition for our, uh, the progressive candidate that we will embrace for the 2024 uh, Democratic primary nomination, that Harvey J.K. be a speechwriter, I think it also should be that it not be um, Joe Biden, Joe Manchin, or Joe Rogan, but rather Joe in Norway that we rally behind. <laughs> Some cabbage in everybody's pot. Wait, I just want to say, wait, I just want to say, David, you know how we launched the public discussion on last week on the economic bill of rights here on the show yes that was the beginning of a of a major road tour that mm -hmm. alan and i are doing by way of zoom so right. like tomorrow morning at uh, 8 30 eastern we're going to be on the ben dixon show 
Monday night, we'll be on the Jen Perelman show. Uh, later that night, we'll be on John Fugelsang's Sirius XM show. Um, upcoming, we'll be doing uh, the Young Turks. We'll be doing the Nomiki Konst show. I mean, you, you launched us, David. Mm-hmm. This is yeah, Jeff Santos' show. Let's not forget Jeff. Jeff Santos' show. Yep, Jeff uh, Santos' and, show, right? And are you going to play this? Misky and K, they go together like that, P, are you B, saying and K. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll say goodnight. Like Thank you. I'll see you next like week. Great job. Thank you. Like mm. Sacco and Benzetti, like meatballs and spaghetti. Allen's in L.A., Harvey J's in Green Bay. When they get together, they got a lot to say. Because they're Misky and K. about democracy Miskin K That's right Miskin K Mike Steinel. Mike Steinel is a jazz trumpeter, composer, educator. He is the author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, Volumes 1 and 2, Building a Jazz Vocabulary, and his new one is Running the Changes, Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckert on Origin Records. Go buy it. Go to MikeSteinel.com to find out more. Joe, amazing job. Joe in Norway. Thank you. Amazing. I, I could watch Time this to all night. Back in the oven. I'm sorry? <laughs> Time to get it back in the oven. So I just wanted to show get it back more. in the oven? And how long one, do you cook one, it for? One more hour. Hmm? One more hour to go. And the pickles. How long will the pickles be in the mason jar? Uh, those are refrigerator pickles, so can eat them in a few days. And and you could leave them mm-hmm. out for years, right? No, no, not these ones. These are refrigerator dills. So I'll I'll put them them in the refrigerator, and they'll be gone within the week. 
kids will get to them. Oh, it looks so good. So great. Thank you for doing that. It's so... It, it, thank you. Yeah, thank you. You have to put... You have to do like a book or a cookbook or something. Joe in <laughs> Norway's cookbook. Hey, I want to thank Joe in Norway for helping out on the show and especially office hours. He does most of the scheduling and it's going to be a great one. Office hours and hours. Nothing gets done around here with Dan Frankenberger, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, the Invisible Ninja and Hannah Fartman. And uh, I want to thank them all. And Professor John for showing up yesterday for our weekly meeting to keep the show fresh and new. We are available wherever you get a podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, we are there. So please uh, subscribe to the show and uh, give it a good review. That always helps. And share this with all your friends. The crew, our YouTube channel crew, uh, they they uh, are clipping. Uh, Invisible is in, is clipping portions of every episode and putting it on the YouTube channel. So please subscribe to the show over at YouTube. It's a great way to access clips. There's a time code. I know the show is coming in today at about six and a half hours, but there's a time code that we put up so you can click on specific moments in the show and get uh, directly to it without having to wade through probably me, I would assume. Thank you all for uh, showing up in the chat room on YouTube. Somebody else gave some money and I don't know, there is it Deborah? We'll, we'll thank you on Monday's episode. Thank you to all the people who uh, help pay the bills here with the Super Chats. And uh, I invite you to uh, keep doing that. And I'll read your chats out loud. All the money goes towards our YouTube crew. So I appreciate that. Ricky, how are you, sir? And then we'll go to Rodrigo. Let's go to England. And then Rodrigo in Mexico, and we'll call it a show. Hello, we're Ricky. Hey, David. How are you today? Good. Good, good. Yes. Sorry, I've, I've just come on late. I woke up early or late, depending on how you look at it. So I uh, only saw uh, a bit of Minsky and Kay and, and the last bit of the professors. But right. I, I, I was wanting to say, I, I think, um, as always, we get overloaded with, with stuff. Uh, and uh, with Ukraine, we've been overloaded trying to learn a lot, all this type of thing, which is uh, which is what it is. Um, but uh, um, having conversations inside our community and our Discord and stuff like that, I think a lot of us are getting to the point where we're feeling that we can't do anything and that we're uh, hopeless uh, and um, we can't change our little part of the world. So uh, I just wanted to give... Uh, a few thoughts mm -hmm. on that, on how we Please. can actually be proactive yes, as opposed to just upset. Uh, is that okay, uh, David? Yeah, please. Yeah. So, um, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, uh, I think people may call me a Putin apologist. I'm not. Um, or a but, tank. Uh, I call you a tank. I'm kidding. Yeah, I might be. Yeah, I might be a bit of a tanky. Uh, I do like uh, I do like the newer Marta that they're 
producing, but that's because I'm a bit of a freak for those kinds of right. things like uh, Anna's. But um, the the thing that we we should be mindful of is that in wars, the, the the true people who suffer are the workers, the people, the the families. They're the people who suffer. And I think rather than look at um, trying to solve the military solutions, you're not going to do that. You 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 have no influence in that. What you do have the ability to influence is there is um, a whole lot of people. And hey, I get this thing about Syria and uh, and all the awful things that we've done as Western people to other countries, and they tend to look a bit more like me than they do. Uh, you know, like a blue-eyed, uh, blonde-headed kid like my son. So what I want you to think about is let's get past that conversation. Let's focus the real important things. The important things is that there's humans, whether they're Christians, Muslims or whatever, in desperate need, and they're coming to the border, and then we have to accept them and we have to help them. That's That's the primary issue here at the moment. Um, I've got friends in Germany and Poland who are driving to the border to help. You know, I've got a friend, he sent me a photo. He's got a nine-seater van. He drives from Warsaw to the border. He collects people, women, kids, you know, anyone that's there. He picks them up and he drives them, and there's a whole support network in Poland and Romania and Germany, all throughout Europe trying to help these people. So I've, I'm going to try and find out a way that we can support them financially. You know, he's 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 taken time off work. I, I, he's one of my agents in, um, in Poland. He takes, for the last week, he's, t- he's not worked. He's not made any money for himself, but he's spending all his money helping these people. Mm-hmm. So let's help them. You know, I'm not right. I'm not advocating sending sending young children into you know young boys to go and kill other people. That's bullshit. Let's support people humanitarianly, help them, um, you know, resettle their lives. I don't know if it's going to be for three weeks, or for three years, or for three hundred years that these people are going to be uh, dislocated. And like I say. At the end of the day, regardless what they are, who they are, the most important thing is that they're people and we can help them. So just think on that and hopefully I'll be able to have something where we can um, go fund uh, uh, my pal there in Poland and, and other people doing doing the right thing. Anyway, that's, that's all I had you. to say, David. Great job. Thank you, Ricky. Really, thank you. Well said. And uh, pray for peace. Or demand peace. I, I, uh, I, again, I'm a broken record. I just don't see why there's no diplomacy. Am I missing something, Ricky? No, you're right. Um, I, you know, hey, I'm sorry, Sol. I do beat up on Joe Biden, but you've got to remember that guy was in charge of Senate committees for foreign affairs for 30 years. You know that guy. That guy's part of the establishment. He's part of the 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 American war machine. And uh, in 2014, I mean, we you know forget about um, his son Hunter's uh, coke addiction or whatever it was, and um, the six hundred thousand dollars that Ukrainian oligarchs paid him. But 
Joe Biden was the man who was controlling all the activities around the Ukraine during the Obama-Biden administration, he, he's culpable. And um, like you said to, to um, Minsky and Kay, you know, we have to say, you know, when, when Blinken was, was there and had the chance to say, listen, stop, let's think about this, let's, let's put something in the way, even if it was a stalling tactic, you know, if they had have stalled until the middle of March, there's no way that Russia could have implemented this thing because uh, Ukraine turns to mud for a month and the mud, can't drive yeah. tanks. The tanks yeah. will get stuck. Yeah, yeah, keep talking, man. You know, it's, it's right. a simple thing in diplomacy. It stops wars. Keep talking. Offer and it things. gets warmer, yeah. and so you don't need gas from Russia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Diplomacy, David. Not hard. I, I, you know, I know I'm probably missing something. It just seems, I, it just seems to me, I'm really tired, but it just seems to me if you know a war is coming, you, you fire up Marine One, get onto Air Force One, and go to Geneva or Moscow and figure out how do we prevent five million Ukrainians and God knows how many uh, dead Ukrainians, five million refugees leaving Ukraine. What do we do to stop that? What do you have to say and do to stop that? Because whatever uh, we're trying to keep going by not stopping that, uh, this is far worse. We're about to see something far worse than losing, you know, our pride over not letting Ukraine into NATO. I mean, it just makes no sense to me. The whole idea of NATO is to protect the people of Ukraine. Well, if keeping them out of NATO prevents 5 million refugees, how about we don't let them into NATO until things change? I don't know. Uh, well, I've got, I've got to say, David, um, inside uh, left commentary, you know, there's a there's a, a very his, historiographical group who actually understand the situation very well, and then there's a lot of media personality. You fit nicely in the middle, where you actually, with your humanity and with your um, desire to understand and your desire to find peace that you're not getting caught up in the narrative. And you're one of the few, you know, I'd say more populist uh, uh, commentators that actually is asking questions. And I, I really appreciate that. Well, of course I do. I'm here right. <laughs> yeah, well, three in the morning. Well, so, uh, but yeah, I, I just that, well, I, I'll take a, any time you want to give me a compliment. I'll take it. But uh, yeah, I don't understand being locked into a position and not bending when there are 5 million refugees. We're going to have 5 million refugees. Who cares what your position is or what your ideology is? You, 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 you start with how do we prevent the Ukrainian people from dying? That's it, period. 
everything should so flow. That's all we need to do. Yeah. yeah. Think about it. Thank you, A human's life is important as anything else. Yep. Thanks, Thank brother. You. Let's go to Mexico. Rodrigo, how are you, sir? Great job, uh, Rorecki. Thank you. Rodrigo, there's a great group of people here who uh, are in our live studio audience. Hello there, Rodrigo. I think you may have uh, unmuted me. I think you might have. Oh, okay. There uh, we go. go. To, All right. You'll you'll notice it because Rodrigo's hands normally up. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> there we go, Rodrigo. How are you, sir? Hi, David. Uh, I had four things, but they're pretty quick. Um, I need to point out again that when one of your guests insists on talking about things they have clearly swallowed uh, propaganda on, you can gently ask them about something less damaging than asking for more sanctions on Russia. Uh, a cursor research for why sanctions well, hang on, slow don't down. work. Slow, hang on, slow down. What, what, are, what are you talking about? Uh, one of your guests. No, oh, hang on. I, I muted the wrong person. Hang on. Let's start again. One of my guests. One yes. of your guests was just asking for sanctions on Russia and a course of research for why sanctions don't work will bring up everything from a 1997 paper to recent articles from The Economist, NPR, The Guardian. Yeah, I saw that. And even The Wall Street Journal and Fortune magazine explaining why sanctions are a poor idea. Right. Now, if you wanted to ask the CIA and the FBI to freeze the accounts of all the Russian billionaires who keep the money they're looting from Russia in the U.S., that's certainly a conversation worth having. I was just reading some statistics. The wealth of the top 100 Russian oligarchs combined is $567 billion dollars. And the wealth of Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Bill Gates combined is $594 billion. Okay. So, uh, I also wanted to mention that even if you have Medicare, there's still someone whose entire job is looking for excuses to deny you coverage. So you have to pay full price. So yes, uh, Bernie's Medicare for All would be a great improvement, but the longer conservatives keep fighting it, the more likely it is that a lefty will convince progressives to start asking for a U.S. version of the NHS, no more insurance, just hospitals. Okay. And regarding nationalism, it should be obvious by now that capitalism has gotten so much worse than it was last century that if we do not transition together into socialism, all the billionaires in the world will move their money to whichever country lets them keep their money, like Microsoft did when they did an inversion to move their world headquarters into Ireland, which is still kind of waiting to get the benefits of a 12.5% corporate tax. 
if the super rich were ever more loyal to ethnicity or borders than they are to money, they aren't anymore. And last thing, I haven't heard the end of the story, but a couple weeks ago, a hacker got all the Ethereum from dozens of crypto wallets plus whatever NFTs they owned in OpenSea. Now, this happens often, but this time it kind of went viral, so all the crypto bro hackers were trying to figure out how it happened so they could say that the hole was plugged and last i heard it wasn't going well but it's probably related to the very traditional open sea website that you have to join if you want a centralized repository with not secured links to your NFTs. And that's all, thank you. Thank you, Rodrigo. I'll see you at office hours. Uh, we'll wrap it up here. Let me, uh, there you go. A few other things. Uh, Turkey, which is a member of NATO, has closed off Turkish Straits to Russian warships in the Black Sea. That's under the uh, Montreux Convention of 1936. Turkey has the right to close Bosporus and the Dardanelles Strait to Russian warships. Belarusian hackers opposed to the war. Belarus is so far the only ally Russia has in the war on Ukraine. But Belarusian hackers opposed to the war have claimed they've disrupted computer networks, uh, including Belarus's railways. Uh, after the invasion began, Anonymous, remember Anonymous? They say they have broken into Russia's defense ministry and stolen files. European Union officials said they expected Moldova and Georgia to follow Ukraine in applying for membership to uh, the EU. Economic sanctions against Russia are now said to be the largest in modern history. Volkswagen says it will halt production at its two facilities in Russia and is suspending exports of all vehicles to the country. Mercedes-Benz has joined them. IKEA said on Thursday it would suspend business temporarily in Russia and Belarus, but would provide financial assistance to the 15,000 Russian and Belarusian employees. That's an interesting way to exercise economic sanctions. BP, British Petroleum, says it will give up its 20% stake in Rosneft, the Russian oil company. It is expected to cost British Petroleum $25 billion. ExxonMobil said Tuesday that it would end its 25-year relationship with Russia. Boeing and Ford have suspended their business activities in Russia. Disney, Sony, and Warner Brothers have suspended their business in Russia. The International Judo Federation revoked Vladimir Putin's title as honorary president this week. And even worse, the World Taekwondo Association stripped Putin of his black belt. On Tuesday in Great Britain, a conservative lawmaker, Bob Seeley, read out in Parliament the names of all the lawyers in Great Britain who represent Russian oligarchs. What a great idea. Just reading out the names of all the lawyers who facilitate filthy money. On Tuesday, the British government introduced new legislation to curb 
dirty money from Russia, the economic crime bill would force foreign companies that own property to declare their true owners. Russian oligarch Vladimir O. Potanin, he is one of Russia's richest men, has been removed as one of the trustees of New York's Guggenheim Museum. Russian oligarch Putanin has also given millions of dollars to the Kennedy Center in Washington, where his name is inscribed on a wall. Brendan Paget, a spokesperson for the Kennedy Center, said of the Kennedy's association with Russian oligarch Potanin, quote, this is a complicated issue and we are actively assessing the best way to address it in the short and long terms. Yes, it's a complicated issue because the Kennedy Center is chaired by David Rubenstein, founder of the Carlyle Group. He is one of the world's, if not the world's largest war profiteer. France's econ economy ministry said it that French customs officers have seized a yacht belonging to Igor Sechin, who is a close associate of Vladimir Putin. Sechin runs Rosneft, the aforementioned Russian state oil giant. In Japan, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida announced that his country would freeze the assets of Russian oligarchs with ties to Vladimir Putin. Okay, I guess that covers everything I wanted. Um, yeah, Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader in Russia, wrote in a social media post from prison yesterday that we should oppose war in the Ukraine. He wrote, and this is great, let's not be against war, let's fight against war. All right, I think that covers everything. And uh, Russian television, RT, is down. If you would like to join us in our virtual studio audience, please go to my website and sign up. Office Hours starts tomorrow at 8 p.m. It's 24 hours of office hours, and it's going to be a great one. So please meet better people. I promise you, you will meet better people by coming to office hours. Uh, what am I doing here? Why is this not working? Oh, remove the spotlight. Okay, there we go. All right. Did I cover everything? Yes, I did. Sign up for my newsletter. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. <laughs> Chairs in the specimen shop. The back and out day don't ever seem to stop. The man went down cause his heart gave out. Get back to work, we heard them shout. They said the EMTs are common, that's what they're for. And life slipped away on the cement floor. I know the bookstores are all gone away 
me some books, I'll read them someday. Right now I got to make my raid and all these extra shifts. If I can make it to Christmas Eve, the kids will have nice gifts. And the big boss will have more money so he can go up into space. But there still won't be no chairs in this Bessemer place. Last year we had a meeting and they made us go. They gave us all pins and said, vote no. But maybe this year Union can give us a little more and put some chairs on this Bessemer floor. I'm hoping the Union might make things right. Some days I just don't have the strength to fight. This plant down here can take its toll. It'll break your body. It'll crush your soul. Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop. And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop. Everything I need Got a little bottle of Rolite And a little bag of weed Got to saw Bell on novel Cause I really like to read I'm traveling light I'm a creature of the road Got no regrets Gave up my postal code And cigarettes I'm doing much better With a touch of Tourette's I'm traveling light Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. 
few pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket in case I get a chill I'm traveling late got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender a 50 tequila in case I go on a bender my attorney's number in case I want to change my gender I'm traveling late And my expensive wrinkle cream My Emmy statue For my self-esteem I'm traveling light I got my podcast mixer And a fancy microphone My exercise bike So I have a place to hang my pants My very valuable Hummel collection A menorah made of fish heads A Christmas tree I like to keep my options open Don't you know A shoe shine kit A skill saw A crossword book a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Don't forget about my enemies list. Politics and comments too. The Taylor Dirty Joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you. 